Honorable. Yeah, good. Say, boss, I think I should start. Uh, I think so. I don't know where Dr. Sun is. Dr. Sun? Okay, good morning. Thanks uh, uh, to all of you for. Joining us today in this uh, beautiful building, thanks to the Council on Foreign Relations for hosting us. This is a meeting of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense, the first time we have uh, come to Manhattan, and it's good to be here. And for those of us who now live uh, here, uh, it was a much easier trip. So we're, uh, we're glad to, uh, to be here. Uh, we are a, uh, just a, a brief word of introduction about the panel, uh, we are a uh, panel that was formed um, five years ago this November. Uh, it's a small group and, and totally bipartisan, six members, um, privileged to be co-chair with uh, uh, Governor Tom Ridge, who was the first Secretary of Homeland Security, and um, two of the other members of the commission, Congressman Jim Greenwood, and the uh, honorable, he's the only honorable here on the podium, the rest of us I just have titles. Uh, Honorable Ken Weinstein, who was, uh, has been in law enforcement and was the Homeland Security Advisor uh, during the Bush administration. Uh, also on the panel uh, who could not be here, Governor Ridge unfortunately could not be here, uh, Senator Tom Daschle, who uh, was my uh, colleague and, and majority leader. Also, as, as you may remember, uh, his office was a target of the anthrax attacks in 9-11, uh, uh, and uh, Lisa Monaco. We, uh, uh, Donna Shalala was uh, one of our original members, served with us, I guess, for about four years, and then she went and did this crazy thing, ran for Congress, and got elected. So she left the commission. Lisa Monaco, who had been uh, Homeland Security Advisor and a lot more in the uh, Obama administration, has joined us. We also have ex officio members, uh, which means they really know what they're talking about. And um, three of them are here today, uh, Colonel Jerry Parker from Texas A&M, uh, Dr. Billy Koresh from the EcoHealth Alliance here in New York, also had a shorter trip than normal to get here, and Rachel Levinson, who, who comes from Arizona State University. And um, the leader of all this is Dr. Asha George, who's our 
uh, executive director. Uh, our group is housed at the Hudson Institute in Washington, a think tank there, and uh, we're grateful to all of those whose support uh, has enabled us to do what we've done uh, for the last five years, including uh, particularly the Open Philanthropy Project, which is a foundation headquartered in California, which is uh, by far our, our largest uh, supporter. And we thank all of you for being here, uh, particularly those who will testify. Um, our group began uh, because of our shared concerns about the uh, ability of our nation to defend against the full range of biological threats from bioterrorism, from biological warfare, from accidents involving uh, contagious organisms, and from pathogens that occur naturally and spread throughout the world, causing uh, an enormous number of deaths and serious illnesses. And I'm thinking of pathogens like Ebola, names you'll recognize, Zika, and of course, uh, influenza, both seasonal and particularly uh, pandemic. We, we have investigated it and examined the bio threat in various ways for the past five years and unfortunately remain uh, troubled uh, and convinced that our country is unprepared to deal with a large-scale biological event that would affect our national security, our way of life, and uh, the lives of too many of our citizens. Uh, as uh, Governor Ridge uh, is fond of saying, our study panel does more than study. We also work uh, to, to, uh, to strengthen our biodefenses based on our findings. Uh, in 2015, we issued our first report called a National Blueprint for Biodefense and have worked uh, hard to, since then to see our recommendations enacted by Congress and the uh, administration and taken up by all levels of the uh, government and the private sector. I'm really uh, happy, proud to report that uh, so far the government has acted on 27 of our action items uh, that we recommended in our blueprint and three more uh, we included in other reports. I, I particularly want to thank uh, Congress and um, uh, people in the Obama administration for taking up our third and really foundational recommendation that we needed a national um, biodefense strategy. It started during the Obama administration, reached fruition. Uh, the process uh, last fall when President Trump uh, d actually issued a national biodefense defense strategy, which reflected a lot of the work uh, that this uh, panel had done. Uh, again, I also want to thank Congress and uh, the President for enacting the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness and Advancing Innovation Act last month, which also uh, enacted many of our uh, blueprints recommendations. All of this, obviously, uh, is encouraging, but we know enough about the subject now to know that there's still an enormous amount to be done. And that brings us here this morning. America has a long and proud history of working collaboratively to solve big challenges and protect our people. Not always, but a lot of the time. Not enough recently uh, in Washington, but some of the time. The original Manhattan Project, as you know, was such a collaborative national project. It was a massive research and development program that brought the public and private sectors together uh, in that uh, case in wartime to defend our nation. Uh, it was called the Ma Manhattan Project, incidentally, uh, 
Um, and this I just learned because it began just a short subway ride north of where we are now. Uh, it included military and federal agencies, academia, and industry, government contracts, and uh, what uh, ultimately became our national laboratories. Eighty years later, now, uh, we believe we need a similar national project, uh, a Manhattan project, to defend against a different kind of threat, the biological threat, which, uh, while it does not represent uh, a military conflict as we know it, threatens the lives of a, an astounding number of people uh, in America and throughout the world. Um, we have an opportunity to take these threats, we think, off the table for good by using an approach similar to the one that was used so effectively with the original Manhattan Project in the uh, 1940s. And that's what we're going to focus on uh, considering today. Um, I believe that the first goal of such a Manhattan Project should be to develop a universal influenza vaccine. And, and I say that because of the reality of the influenza uh, threat. Uh, the, the potential for an enormously larger uh, threat uh, and um, the lives that are, are being lost right now as a, as a result of it. Um, I go back to 1918, 101 years ago, when, as most people know, there was a terrible global uh, pandemic of what was then called uh, Spanish influenza, uh, the estimates are, and the records are not as exact as they could be, but, but uh, uh, about a half billion people worldwide uh, became ill with that uh, flu. Uh, and uh, probably at least 50 million people uh, died as a result of the flu. Uh, my colleagues maybe have heard, have heard me say this before. That included my grandmother, my father's mother, who he really never knew because he was... Uh, just two or three, and of course I never knew her. Uh, but it, that was that the kind of loss spread throughout a lot of families. Um, the numbers back to the Spanish flu mean that about one third of the world's population at the time became sick with this disease, and about ten percent of those who were sick died. It's really um, astounding. And when you think about the fact that we are today, a century later. Uh, traveling so much more, and there's so many other ways for a contagious disease to be carried around the world quickly, uh, it, it should um, make us uh, want to stand up and do something to, to prepare for what um, most of the experts say is probably inevitable. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's the director, as you know, of NAID at NIH, uh, said um, recently, seasonal influenza is a perpetual public health challenge, and we continually face the possibility of an influenza uh, pandemic. Uh, uh, we, we are, I'll give you some numbers that are, to me, um, startling, and probably to most people, if you focus on them a moment. The Center for Disease Control tells us that Every year, uh, about 36,000 Americans die from uh, seasonal flu, and about 200,000 are hospitalized. Globally, about 650,000 people die a year from influenza. 
just compare that to the other um, tragedies that are occurring, including war, and, and see the scope of the impact. Um, the, the, the harsh reality, and I know we'll talk about it, so I'll just say it briefly, is that uh, the vaccines that we have to deal with, even the seasonal flu, are simply uh, not very effective. Uh, ineffective to a point that would probably startle and unsettle most of the people who go out to get the shots uh, every year. They're, they're, um, despite the amazing advances that have occurred in our time in bioscience and biotechnology uh, for vaccines for flu, we're still dependent on old-fashioned egg-based uh, methods of uh, production. And again, some of the CDC numbers on this in, over the past five years, effectiveness of the vaccines, that is the extent to which they help people get better or not get the vaccine, really, range from a high of 50%, 50% high, to a, a dismal low of 18% in one year. Uh, according to the Sabin Vaccine Institute, just to measure the, the, the damages caused by this, as we think about recommending increases in spending to deal with the problem, the threat, each year influenza, according to Sabin, costs the U.S. more than $10 billion in direct medical costs and more than $87 billion in total economic costs. And that's just for seasonal influenza, not for the far more devastating a pandemic influenza like the one that occurred in 1918. So these are, these are the statistics that have convinced me that this ought to be a priority. I must say that when I started on this work, because I uh, worked as, as chair of the Senate Committee on Homeland Security, and I, I thought about bi the bio threat, I was really focused on bioterrorism. And it continues to be a threat. But as I've gone through these last five years with my colleagues on this uh, panel, <clears throat> I've, I've really been struck by how much greater the impact of naturally occurring uh, bio-threats uh, are and, and how urgent it is that we do something about it. A, a universal flu vaccine is not a new idea, and that's part of the reason, I think, why we think we need a Manhattan Project to deal with it. People have been talking about it, by, by my uh, understanding, for about 20 years, but we still don't have it. Um, the government uh, through NAID, NIH, uh, DARPA, DOD, academia, and industry have all been working to develop a vaccine. And there actually is some quite encouraging work going on now, but it seems to me that all that work could benefit uh, greatly uh, from two things that a, two results that a Manhattan Project could bring. One is additional funding, and the other is uh, coordination of the effort. So I can't think of a better place to launch a national campaign to create a Manhattan Project for Biodefense than right here in Manhattan. Uh, I'm not going to sing the Frank Sinatra song, but <laughs> you get the point. <laughs> we have excellent witnesses to help us <coughs> with this launch, as well as, of course, to describe work on other uh, bio threats. One of the witnesses is... Uh, Bob Cadlick, who is now the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response at uh, the Department of uh, Health and uh, HHS. Uh, and I particularly want to thank Bob because he's substituting a little bit late for Dr. Rick Bright, the Director of BARDA, who could not be here for personal reasons. But Bob is really the godfather of this panel. I mean, he's the one who conceived of it, uh, asked us if we wanted to be part of it, 
and then helped us to get funding uh, to make it possible. Anyway, that's our, that's our agenda for today, and I'd like to call on my two fellow panel members, ask them if they want to um, make some introductory remarks. First, uh, uh, former Congressman uh, Jim Greenwood, who's been the um, CEO at uh, Biotech Association for about 14 years. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. It's gratifying to see so many folks who have come and show interest in this issue. The, the, the things we're talking about here, whether it's a global pandemic or a, bio, a significant bioterror event, are often categorized as high-impact, low-frequency events. Um, and um, the reality, though, is, is that, number one, the, uh, in, in the case of pandemic, the, the frequency, the, the likelihood of it happening is increasing, as, as Senator Lieberman mentioned, in large part because of the mob mobility of people globally. Uh, at the same time, the, the potential impact um, of a bioterror event is increasing as the science progresses, and the likelihood of it happening is also increasing because of the growth of so many terrorist organizations who uh, remain intent on murdering as many people who don't share their radical beliefs as they possibly can. So uh, I think it's important to note that the, 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 um, the probability of one of these events happening, or both of these events happening, is actually one over one. Uh, and Joe referred to this, the science, the, the experts say th it, it's not a question of whether these events are going to occur, it's a question of when they're going to occur. And so really, the, the driving issue is how prepared are we going to be for that uh, inevitable uh, eventuality. Um, the, 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 the fact that they are considered low frequency, though, um, affects the, the way they're viewed by the, the, the governmental agencies uh, and the elected officials. And I can say, having served in 24 years as an elective office, um, it, is, it is understandable that elected members of, of, of Congress, for instance, um, have, with thousands of issues on their plates, uh, with, with um, uh, history changing minute by minute, hour by hour, it's, it's very difficult frequently for them to focus on something that um, requires a, a ton of advanced uh, planning and, and, and creation of resources. And so that's, that's our, a big part of our challenge, is to get members of Congress and others in the administration to recognize that this is an inevitability for which they, that we must be prepared on behalf of our, of our population. So the idea of, of the Manhattan Project, about which we're going to discuss today, um, is really not only a very good idea on its own merits uh, in terms of, of the most efficient way to, to confront these issues, but it's also, we hope, a way to grab the attention of, um, of the public and of the elected officials so that they will, in fact, be, um, uh, take the time to, to do the, to, to, they don't really have to <clears throat> do a lot of work, they really just have to follow the recommendations that this panel has already put forward and will put forward in the future. So um, my come at, I come at this not only with the past in government, but also representing uh, a host of companies that are in the space of making uh, vaccines and also making uh, countermeasures against bioterror and um, it's been a, a great opportunity for us as an organization, a biotechnology innovation organization, to uh, bring our, our, our resources and our talent that lies in our companies uh, to confront these issues as well. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Ken. Thank you, and good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I'm just gonna be brief. I wanna pick up on the Manhattan Project aspect of today's um, session and uh, commend my colleagues who came up with that idea, not only because this is taking place in Manhattan, but the notion of what the Manhattan Project was. And um, that happens to be sort of front of mind for me because just I was telling my colleagues here just last week, 
my family and I went to Los Alamos out in New Mexico, which is sort of where the Manhattan Project more or less came to fruition. And um, it was fascinating. One of the things that I took away from it, and I think my kids did to the extent they weren't, you know, um, playing on their phones instead of looking at the museum exhibits. Uh, one of the things it took away is how successful the people of the Manhattan Project were in sort of bridging cultural, professional divides between them. And one of the things that was focused on is the relationship between the military general who ran the show and Oppenheimer, the scientist, the academic, and how they came from very different places, very different mindsets and different cultures, but they were able to merge those cultures and um, not only individually, but among their cadre of people from those two cultures and create this unbelievable effort um, that produced you know, the atomic bomb. Anyway, that's the takeaway from the museum. And so I, I thought this was particularly um, appropriate to be talking today about the need for a Manhattan Project. And this has been a theme, if you, know, you go back to our original report from whatever it was four years ago, uh, our first or s and second and third, I guess, uh, recommendations are all about the need for coordination and bringing all the disparate actors who need to be at the table when it comes to biodefense, public health, the military, law enforcement, intelligence community, all, you know, all different levels of government, state, local, and federal, and international partners. The need to get that coordination, and only if we have that coordination are we going to be able to actually um, you know, provide the biodefense that our country needs. And so I think just looking at today's lineup of witnesses, we have people um, who represent sort of all the different, many different players um, in this effort. And I think today is a good, uh, a good jumping off point for what I think it should be the ultimate objective here, which is trying to bring everybody together, focus on the need um, for biodefense and kickstart the effort. So thanks for being here and I look forward to our presentation. Uh, thanks to you both, <clears throat> both really uh, excellent uh, opening statement. So l let me now call uh, to the table the first panel, uh, Dr. Alan Ember, Biological Technologies Office at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, and Dr. Ren Sun, Distinguished uh, Professor, Molecule, Molecular and Medical Pharmacology and Bioengineering, Associate Dean for Postdoctoral Affairs, David Geffen School of Business. That's probably as close as we're coming to show business. Uh, today, uh, Associate uh, Vice Pro Provost at the University of California, uh, Los Angeles. Three uh, doctors. I'm, I'm a humble doctor of jurisprudence, so I sit before you uh, with humility. Thank you all for, um, for being here, and uh, we'll go right to it. Dr. Embry, opening statement. Good morning, and thank you for the opportunity to be here to discuss the NIH's efforts to advance the development of a universal influenza vaccine. Uh, in the next few minutes, I'll provide a, um, a brief overview of the compelling need for a universal influenza vaccine, which Senator Lieberman has done a very effective job already for me, um, the pathway forward, and finally touch on a few of the um, challenges with achieving a truly universal vaccine. Um, so as Senator Lieberman explained, um, seasonal outbreaks occur each year. Um, Seasonal influenza causes an average of about 36,000 cases per year. But in some years, as we saw in the 2017-18 um, season, it can be much worse. In that year, there were about 49 million cases in the United States, which resulted in about 79,000 deaths, which, um, of course, these uh, numbers are much higher globally. 
And although seasonal vaccines are, are safe and they're our best tool for preventing uh, influenza disease, as you said, it's clear they're not effective. Um, in the past five years, uh, the vaccine effectiveness has been under 40% and in some years much lower. Um, there are several factors that contribute to this limited efficacy. Um, but one of the most important, of course, is the virus itself. Each year, as the influenza virus uh, circulates the world, they acquire minor but significant changes in the HA protein on the outer part of the virus, which is also the main target of the current vaccines. And at any given time, there are many different influenza viruses circulating throughout the world. And as you're aware, current influenza virus uh, vaccines are formulated annu annually to protect against viral strains that are predicted to predominate in the upcoming season. And because these decisions need to be made um, in advance of an upcoming season, um, there are years when the vaccine and the influenza strain that ultimately predominates is a mismatch. This was uh, the case in the 2014-15 season when the effectiveness of the vaccine was estimated to be as low as 19%. Um, as you also alluded to, in addition to the seasonal influenza epidemics, there's a constant threat of a pandemic influenza caused by a virus that is dramatically different from those that have circulated previously and to which humans have are likely to have uh, poor immunity against. In just over the past 100 years, four pandemics have resulted from the emergence of a novel influenza virus, um, the most notable, of course, being the 1918 pandemic. Additionally, in the past few decades, animal influenza viruses with pandemic potential, such as the H5N1 virus and the H7N9 viruses, have caused sporadic human infections and deaths, um, both notably having very high mortality rates. At least two major challenges exist for preventing these devastating pandemics. First, it's difficult to predict which virus may emerge to cause a pandemic, and second, when a novel virus unexpectedly enters the human population, the virus is capable of outpacing the time it takes to manufacture a vaccine um, using currently available technologies. So although there have been significant advances in recent years, we're still inadequately prepared for the appearance of a virus like that of the 1918 pandemic. So to limit the public health consequences of both seasonal and pandemic influenza, vaccines that are more broadly and durably protective are urgently needed. Recognizing the need, in 2017, NIAID convened a meeting of 150 expert scientists from academia, industry, and government to identify the knowledge gaps in the pathway to a universal influenza vaccine and um, map out the steps required to address these gaps. Following that meeting in 2018, NIAID developed and published a strategic plan to serve as the foundation for its future investments in support of a universal influenza vaccine. We envision that a transformative effort will be required to realize a truly universal vaccine. And with the help of recent support from Congress, which NIAID is very grateful for, we are working to implement key areas of the strategic plan as efficiently as possible. Of note, in the past year, NIAID has launched a large initiative to establish a multidisciplinary collaboratory uh, centers to develop and test innovative universal influenza vaccine approaches. We've established large cohort studies to understand how our earliest exposures to influenza sh shape subsequent immunity throughout our lifetime. We've advanced several novel vaccine approaches into clinical trials. 
And additionally, we're also engaging heavily with other arms of the government, private sector, and philanthropic organizations to coordinate our efforts with the goal of supporting the high quality, innovative science required to develop broadly protective and durable influenza vaccines. While we are optimistic about the potential for developing a universal influenza vaccine, it's important to be clear that the challenges are daunting. We expect that progress may be incremental and that a significant and sustained effort will be required to reach the finish line. In addition to the ever-changing nature of the virus, one of the most formidable challenges is that we still have a relatively poor understanding of the immune responses required to protect people against influenza, which is why a significant part of our strategic plan emphasizes the fundamental understanding of the biology required to inform vaccine development. Given the inherent challenges associated with developing a universal vaccine, together with the certainty of the existing seasonal vaccine, which is known to be safe and moderately effective, there may be a limited appetite for the private sector to commit sustained resources required to advance disruptive technologies through the full clinical development pathway. This likely means that advancing innovative universal influenza vaccine candidates through the clinical development pipeline will rely heavily on support from the government or other philanthropic organizations. So as I mentioned, NIAID is currently supporting a variety of novel candidates, both in the early discovery phase and in clinical trials, with the goal of providing robust and durable protection against influenza in all age groups. Additionally, we will continue to support fundamental research to understand the immune responses required to achieve a universal vaccine and continue to provide resources to help innovative vaccine developers accelerate their candidates into the clinic. The pathway to reaching a universal vaccine is likely not a short-term endeavor, but we are confident that it can be achieved with determination and persistence. Thank you. Thanks, that was a great beginning. Thanks, Dr. Embry. We have a lot of questions for you. Dr. Beckstein. Yes, sir. Thank you uh, also for uh, allowing us to be here. And uh, I, I really commend you for um, being so passionate about this subject. Um, I also am very passionate about this subject, so it's, uh, it's a Rexine, great honor. Can you move your microphone closer to you? Closer, sure. Um, so <clears throat> uh, I think we've covered sort of the need for this uh, very well. Um, and as the guy from DARPA, I think it might be useful for me to explain why DARPA is uh, interested in this area of research and um, why we have put a significant investment in this space. Uh, DARPA, as you know, was uh, founded in 1958 uh, uh, in response to Sputnik going up and uh, bringing about some concern about um, strategic surprise. And uh, through the years, there was quite a bit of engineering, uh, some great accomplishments within the agency. And over the last uh, 10, 15 years, there was quite a bit of investment that's gone into the biological sciences. So BTO, the office that I'm uh, currently in, was founded in 2014 to take advantage of some of the research that had been done previously. One of the core tenets of BTO has been pandemic preparedness. And in response to this, uh, there were several programs that have been set up to look at early innovation research that could contribute to our national preparedness. Uh, those programs centered on several different, what we call shots on goal. We wanna take different strategies that step outside of that traditional uh, vaccine pipeline that you mentioned. Look at the drawbacks from the current system, identify where technology can come forward and solve those problems. 
Uh, one of the main areas that we've put significant investment in has been in the DNA, RNA uh, vaccine strategy. So traditional vaccines uh, actually utilize the proteins, uh, but before proteins are produced, DNA and RNA are involved in the process. And so the idea of the original program, which was called ADEPT, was to uh, trigger the immune system, uh, the human, to actually produce those proteins, those antibodies that would uh, protect against these pathogens. So you sort of short circuit uh, the problem and allow uh, vaccines to be deployed more um, efficiently, effectively, and at a faster rate. As we've moved on and shown some proof of concept that DNA and RNA vaccines uh, actually do work and may be a fantastic strategy, uh, we're starting to look at how do we move from there to scale up and get to the point where we could actually produce these uh, vaccines and get them to a point where we can actually deploy them and make them a usable uh, tool in our toolbox. And so that led to uh, two other programs, and the most recent is uh, called P3, and this program is focused on uh, making sure that we could actually recognize and respond to these pandemic events uh, within 60 days. And so one of the big bottlenecks that we have here is our ability uh, to actually produce the number of vaccine doses that would uh, allow us to respond effectively and efficiently. And so we want to hit on those numbers that you mentioned earlier, 18% uh, and those limited uh, uh, effective strategies. Um, in addition to the DNA and uh, RNA viral strategies, antiviral strategies, we also have been looking at uh, some additional ways that we could use technology to affect this, uh, um, this problem. One of the programs that I wanted to mention was also Intercept, and this is a program where we're actually using therapeutic um, uh, interfering particles. So this is a strategy that actually allows uh, the uh, countermeasure to evolve with the virus that we're targeting. So one of the problems that will probably uh, will come up quite a bit is the evolution of these viruses and the adap adaptation that allows them to sidestep uh, the strategies that we use to, um, uh, to fight them. Uh, but within the Intercept program, using TIPS, this is an early innovation that may allow us to, uh, to step that up. And then the final program uh, that I wanted to mention was one called Blue Angel that actually dates back to 2009, so 10 years ago. And this was a program where we were looking at how do we produce the adequate number of doses to uh, be capable of uh, getting distribution that would uh, fit with our needs. And within this program, we were going to use plants to produce uh, these vaccines. And this is a program that had uh, some successes, but scaling uh, and also the machinery within the plant to be able to properly fold proteins and uh, glycosylate uh, has been a little bit of a limitation. And there are some technical challenges that we still have to make this a usable strategy. However, uh, I do think that compared to other production strategies, this still has uh, a place in our uh, global response. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Um, we're being educated. Uh, Dr. Sun. Right. So thank you for inviting me to discuss our progress towards universal vaccine and its relevance on to biodefense in general. 
And also thank you, the Dr. Lieberman and, and uh, Senator Lieberman and the Dr. Embry for great introduction why we need a universal vaccine. And uh, um, Dr. Preston has introduced different variety of approach um, has been taken to address this issue. So um, I will concentrate on one approach that we have been taking over the last 10 years to um, address the issue that um, Dr. Preston mentioned. Virus has evolved uh, strategy to sidestep on the immune defense mechanism. How can we block that? So there are arm race between the virus and the host, and the virus has evolved um, multiple mechanisms to evade the host's immune response when the host, us, have multiple ways to defend the virus. And among the multiple layer of defense mechanism in the host, interferon is a critical component that um, control the virus replication in initial phase and also coordinate the immune response at the late phase, establish immune memories. And because of the importance of interferon in the defense mechanism, virus has evolved many ways to silent or suppress the interferon pathways. So if we can disarm the virus to remove those capacity of the virus to suppress interferon, then the interferon function um, properly in the host can mount more effective immune response against the virus. That's a strategy we have been taking um, to disarm the virus, and so the host can be a step ahead of it. Uh, so we, um, so to, to take this approach, the challenge is to find out what are those strategy virus has uh, gained over the evolution to sidestep the host immune response. And to address this issue, we developed a, a quantitative genomic platform and that we generate a large pool of mutants. We basically mutate every amino acid of the virus genome and to determine which amino acid is important for the virus to sidestep the immune defense mechanism. And then we inactivate those functions, and the virus become much more recognizable by the host and allows the host immune system much more efficiently than the white type virus. So uh, for the first time, actually, we engineered a virus that's more immunogenic than white type virus. So that become very effective vaccine um, to address many of the issues and, and my co-panelist has just mentioned. Um, so we, um, with influenza virus, and we have identified eight locations, and when we mutate them, each of them activates the immune system um, much more effectively than the white type. We combine them together, generate a virus that produce 50 times more interferon response than the white type virus. And then the virus is very um, um, immunogenic, and, uh, and it's so immunogenic, it cannot replicate, but it induces very robust immune response uh, in general. And also the immune response is very broad, can neutralize the virus that's very, very distant. Um, we've, we tried the virus that's as far as possible among the influenza virus A families, and it still have protections. So our data has shown that in the animal, uh, we tested two animal um, species, mice and ferrets. Ferrets are gold model um, for, for influenza pathogenesis and immune response. And we just need a very small dose of infection to, to generate uh, immune response as a full-blown virus infection. And, and have protection against the homologous and the heterologous um, strains. And the virus we engineered uh, mimic the natural virus infection. We can um, um, inoculate the animal out in the future, um, human with nasal drop or nasal spread. So eliminate the need for needle injection. 
because it can be self-administrated, so the uptake rate of the vaccine potential can be much higher than needle injection, and also because the nasal delivery uh, mimics the natural infection process. So it can generate better mucosal protection than the, um, than the injection into the um, uh, subcutaneous uh, muscle injection. So probably have a better mucosal immune response. So we are very optimistic that um, this, this approach has been very effective um, in the animal models we so far we have tested. So now let me um, take one step back and what's the general relevance um, to biodefense. And so we established a platform technology and the first um, virus we tested is influenza. It works well in the animal model. And, uh, and the vaccine has many um, properties that, uh, uh, that's good for um, future development. And, and when we developed a vaccine, we paid a lot of attention um, to enable the virus production very efficiently in, um, in manufacturing process. So the virus were engineered extremely um, incapable of replicating in normal hosts. And even in skid mice, which has no T cell, B cell, virus cannot replicate. But a virus can replicate and produce high quantity in cell that has no interferon production. So the production will not be a problem. And the dose needed for vaccination is very, very small, several logs smaller than current vaccine. So the production and the large speed of distrib dis uh, distribution will, be, um, will not be a problem. And the second um, um, is we believe this approach is broadly applicable to vaccines against other pathogens. We have taken similar approach to engineer herpes virus, and we have engineered herpes virus um, um, generate similar result in mice, and uh, and uh, we also uh, in the process of uh, making similar uh, approach with Zika virus and HCV. So this approach is applicable for uh, many virus in general, and also we believe it can be uh, used for bacteria as well and I'm not going to the detail about how to do it in the bacteria. And it, this approach also can be used for um, defined drug resistance mutations. Drug resistance is another issue in biodefense, and we can comprehensively um, define the fitness and drug resistance of viral muta mut mutations uh, in comprehensive genome-wide fashion, which will enable the prediction of emergency of drug resistance mutations, which will help um, to limit the spreading of drug resistant mutants. So I, I hope um, we have, I have presented information that we develop a platform technology um, for, um, that can potentially be used for Manhattan Project of Biodefense. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thanks very much, Dr. The, uh, thanks for your, your work, really. Um, I gather that, the, uh, that you played a leading role in um, uh, developing a, the nasal spray as a, man, a manner of delivering the vaccine, and, and I thank you for that. I'm, I'm uh, curious, really, at the start to ask you, as we think about how to uh, be, uh, how, how we might advocate that, that uh, there be uh, more support for uh, uh, development of a universal flu vaccine. If I may, how your work is financed now, is it uh, from federal government grants from university budget? Are there uh, uh, private sector partners or foundation partners? How, how do you, how are you enabled to do what you've been doing? 
All right. Um, so this is has is a frustrating process. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we started this effort ten years ago, and we got feasibility data in the year of twelve, and we published first paper in the thirteen and the fourteenth. And every year we publish papers on this topic. We openly disseminated this method. But this method is very complicated and a challenge, and only very, very few people can do it. But, and also, it cannot be accepted by colleagues in the field that easily. So we have not been able to obtain uh, NIH funding until now. And I just learned from Dr. Embry, he is in the process of um, 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 giving us the uh, award, I'm mean, independent of this panel, and it <laughs> oh. <laughs> let that be clear. Well, you know, if, yeah. if we were still in Congress, we would take credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> but now that we're out, so, we give credit where it's due. So actually, to indeed, um, it was uh, should credit to to the panel and also credit to the um, the strategy, NIA the strategy for universal vaccine. Without that um, strategic announcement of the strategy, I, said, I think it probably still cannot get funded. But it's a very unique approach, and nobody else taking it. And so it's, it's, it's different from the approach um, that has been presented um, traditionally. So, so far, it has been funded by uh, a seed grant. UCLA uh, established an innovation fund to support the project has potential translation uh, significance. Right. So I have been funded by university and a few hundred thousand dollars. And now NIH is going to pick up the funding and it provide a few hundred thousand dollars per year. That will enable us to move forward with the laboratory um, test. But that's still not significant enough to move into preclinical test and the clinical trial. And so that's another frustration is um, after the paper was published last year uh, on the universal vaccine, and I got a call from uh, many VCs. And we had a wonderful one-hour discussion. And then they go back to calculate the numbers. And they all turn it down. Um, because the investment period time um, and our amount of investment for vaccine development is significantly higher than developing other drugs. And the global market for influenza vaccine um, with all the big manufacturing and, and, and pharmaceutical company involvement is $3 billion total. But one single anti-cancer drug usually can sell for $3 billion. And then the amount of investment, amount of clinical tests need to be done for anti-cancer immune therapy is 50 to 100 patients. And but for vaccine tests, I needed you know, 10,000 or 50,000 yeah. um, volunteers. So, mm -hmm. so this is another frustration uh, that I'm, I'm seeing that's the whole purpose of this discussion is how to coordinate and, and have the co-investment from the government, the private sector, and, and to push this thing forward. Okay, <clears throat> Dr. Embry, let me ask you about this uh, question of resources. Um, obviously, in my 24 years in the Senate, but also just in life, I've never um, talked to anybody who, if you asked, do you need more money to do what you're doing, they would always say yes, of course. So, but, and of course, our foundational uh, starting a, a feeling is that uh, this, what we take to be an urgent need for a universal flu vaccine um, uh, could use more financial support, obviously, assuming it's well spent. So, and with the goal of finding an effective vaccine more quickly. Is that logical? Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Um, 
you know, we are very grateful for the support that we have. But as I mentioned, this, this really is a difficult challenge. And, but it's an urgent challenge. I mean, both for seasonal and the potential for pandemics. So um, with the size of the task at hand and the amount of research that needs to be done, not only for understanding the fundamental biology of the virus in our immune system, but also to be able to um, enable very innovative approaches and um, be able to support the development of vaccine approaches through the early preclinical stages into phase one clinical trials, and then continue that through the clinical pipeline, I think will take you know, some significant resources. And you know, as I mentioned, it, it, it's mm -hmm. as yet unclear um, what the risk tolerance is for industry to be advancing, you know, these kinds of, of products. So, uh, you know, we need to better understand that, but um, I think it will definitely, you know, take a sustained effort. So um, the three of you are really uh, doing and overseeing uh, very important and encouraging work. Um, do you coordinate with one another? Well, certainly, um, from the government perspective, uh, NIAD works closely with BARDA. Um, we have very frequent meetings. We talk about you know, the, the products that we have in the early phases um, to potentially hand them off to BARDA. We have had some recent um, collaborations with DARPA as well that are still um, early but ongoing. So yes, as well as other arms of the government, DOD and the CDC. Great. So yeah, actually, we, we try very hard to work together. Okay, so that's one of the questions, obviously, we're asking ourselves, uh, and, and in turn to ask members of Congress and the administration to think about whether there needs to be some uh, coordinating authority of all the efforts going on, both in government, academia, and in the private sector. Um, Dr. Beckstein, what, what do you think about that? Oh, I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, I think what you have here sort of represents different parts of the puzzle that come together uh, to develop a strategy. And I think a lot of what happens within the funding pipeline uh, and the research pipeline comes down to risk tolerance. So at DARPA, uh, we're very secure in what we do. We are early innovation, and we are very risk tolerant. Uh, we're not afraid to fail. Um, other agencies have a much more defined mission to make sure that they do not fail and they move things through the process. Uh, what Dr. Sun was mentioning about uh, local funding within his, uh, within his university system actually allows a lot of this early innovation. Uh, but those pots of money are usually quite small. Uh, so I think some of the funding that comes from those uh, types of programs uh, align very well with some of the things that we do at DARPA, which is look at these early innovation strategies. We want to test the waters, see if there's something there, show proof of concept, uh, and then move that to other agencies if we see success and we see um, a good strategy. Um, I do think that there is uh, a fair amount of um, coordination that occurs. Barda was mentioned. I know uh, Colonel Matt Hepburn, who is running many of the programs I mentioned earlier, um, would spend quite a bit of uh, his day actually coordinating these activities and talking to partners at uh, different agencies. And so uh, I, I think there's a fine line that comes in between that coordination and oversight, and then our different agencies being capable of operating independently so we do what we do best. 
Uh, we want to pipeline these uh, strategies, but we also don't want to be uh, afraid to fail. And so we have to make sure that we uh, maintain some of that independence within agencies to do what we do, uh, but at the same time be very uh, thoughtful about how it moves through that pipeline. Just uh, one last question, and then I'll <clears throat> yield to my colleagues. Um, Dr. Embry, I saw oh, a few months back uh, an announcement that uh, NIAID at NIH has begun the first inhuman trial of a universal uh, influenza vaccine candidate. Could you uh, just describe that to us? Sure. I, I think you're referring to the intramural product from the Vaccine Research Center, which is um, a, a novel, it's a nanoparticle vaccine, which basically is a protein that self-assembles. And what they've done um, is take the conserved part of the flu protein. So if you imagine flu as the, the protein that's targeted as a piece of broccoli. The, the head is variable and the stem is fairly conserved. So they've taken that stem and put it on the nanoparticle with the hope that um, the immune system will see that conserved part of the flu stem, the HA stem, generate antibodies to it that will ultimately be protective. Um, so that is the intramural VRC product. We additionally do have some other universal um, vaccine products that are being um, evaluated in our clinical trials network. Good. <clears throat> is, does that use a nasal spray for delivery? That one in particular does not. Okay. We are supporting um, one particular candidate that's a live attenuated virus um, that, that is delivered intranasally, yes. Uh, Dr. Sun, I know you talked about work on the uh, uh, research with the nasal spray on animals. Are you, are you approaching a human trial for the uh, nasal spray uh, vaccine? Um, not yet. Um, so, so far we have done two animal um, tests, and uh, with limited funding, we have been able to get a proof of principle data to demonstrate uh, the method is working, but we still need a lot of optimization and a lot of primary um, preclinic data to demonstrate the right. safety and efficacy in animal before we can go into clinical trial. Okay, thanks. Uh, Congressman Greenwood, please. Thank you, Senator. Um, Dr. Amber, you talked about the, um, the fact that the prog progress is incremental and in, in large measure, I think because you said of the uh, poor understanding of the human immune system and, and you talked about what needs to be learned yet. Um, so does NIH prioritize grants um, uh, in furtherance of that? In other words, it would seem to me, and I understand the NIH process is, is cumbersome and you have lots of demands and uh, no matter how much money the, the Congress appropriates, um, but is there, is there a mechanism by which the NIH says, we really, this is an urgent issue because of the, the desperate need for universal vaccine and we want to prioritize um, grants to academic institutions that are going to focus, you know, laser-like on that issue. Absolutely. So, um, following the development of our strategic plan, we released several set-aside initiatives that are completely dedicated to developing um, universal influenza vaccines as well as understanding the basic immunology. So that, that allows for a set-aside pool of money to be there for investigators uh, who are expert in that area to, to be able to apply directly. Um, additionally, um, we, we 
have several opportunities on the street right now where investigators can apply. Um, they showing that it is a priority for us, and so we, we as such, we um, have dedicated funding to be able to pick out those projects, yes. Congress tends not to like to um, uh, identify particular areas of, of research. Um, they feel that the, the, the field, the science, should drive that rather than the politics of diseases and so forth, but um, it, it, could you use more resources? And if, if Congress said this is not a really about the, 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 the disease du jour, the, the politics of diseases, but a national emergency, would uh, targeted resources help? I, I think Joe answered that question earlier. I, I think the answer is absolutely yes. Right, right. <laughs> so um, in, the, in the case of the Manhattan Project, what uh, I don't claim to be the greatest historian, but my understanding is that what, what happened is what that the United States government knew, and I think the Brits did as well, that, that it was a matter of time till the Germans developed a nuclear weapon, and that were they to do so before we did, um, they could drop it and basically declare checkmate in World War II. And so that's what drove the urgency to pull people all into one spot and, and bring the best minds to bear, and it worked. Um, so I'm gonna pose a, an absurd hypothetical. Mm -hmm. Uh, to make a point. But if, in fact, uh, a jihadist or a mad scientist said, I've developed uh, uh, a, a virus that is going to be capable of creating a global pandemic for which there is not going to be an adequate um, vaccine, and unless my demands are met in 365 days, I'm, I have a mechanism to release that. Okay, that's an absurd um, point. But, but it's not absurd in that that would constitute a 100% likelihood, if you believed him, that this is going to happen in, uh, in near time. Um, if that, in that eventuality, I mean, right now, you know, NIAID's working on it, BARD is working on it, academia's working on it, private sector's working on it, and we've, you've responded to questions from the senator about coordination. But if, if you had that level of urgency, how would you, um, this is a question for each of you, how would you reorganize the system. I mean, would it still look like it looks now, or would you go, "Oh my God, we've got to all go to one place and you know and work on this like mad and get it done"? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think um, the 2009 uh, pandemic it was a good example of, although not as dire as the scenario you're putting forward, of the government agencies coming together and working together to rapidly be able to respond to the swine flu. Um, pandemic that, that happened. And so we do have um, in the government the Flu Risk Management uh, Committee, which meets on a regular basis. Um, that, that includes all of the key government agencies to coordinate our response and efforts um, as rapidly as possible. There are um, ongoing right now, there are pandemic preparedness efforts within the government to be able to make sure that we are ready for you know, these kinds of scenarios. Sorry to interrupt you, but, yes. uh, and, and please continue. But uh, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is, is not so much the, how you would we react, be prepared for it and react to something as much as if we had to, if the urgency was to develop that universal vaccine. That's my question is, how would we reorganize ourselves if there was an urgent uh, time, sent, time known uh, urgency, if you will, to develop that? Uh, I think it would be a challenge to be able to develop it that rapidly. I think we would probably focus on, in that scenario, on 
getting the appropriate therapeutics. Um, uh, so let me, let me. I'm not. Maybe I'm not uh, understanding uh, the exact. Well, I mean, I, I, it's probably a lousy job on my part. But but what I'm trying to get at is, if you had the ultimate sense of urgency yeah. that you needed to create sure. a uh, universal vaccine. Would and be. forget about whether it's a year or not, but, it, okay, but okay. it's coming. It's coming in from outer space. It, you know, it's a matter of time. I'm, I'm trying to get to, is there a more potentially efficient way to organize ourselves if the sense of urgency was other than it currently is? So perhaps I could imagine a scenario where there's um, more uh, dedicated um, collaboration and coordination at a higher level that, that includes government, private sector, um, philanthropic organizations to be able to coordinate our efforts more closely. That does happen to a degree right now. We do have um, working groups to do this, but I can certainly imagine that it could be better and, and uh, you know, a more dedicated entity could um, overseeing all of the efforts um, could be beneficial. Did, did that answer your question? I think so, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, it was absurd and hypothetical <laughs> to begin with, so okay. thank you. Well, uh, can I add a little bit to that? So at DARPA, we actually have the program that I mentioned before, P3, which is a, prevention, or a pandemic prevention platform. And it's actually targeted at the scenario that you just mentioned. Um, the idea with that program, if you break down the process of what would happen if the scenario you mentioned would occur, the first thing that we would have to do is recognize what we're up against. What is the virus? What is the sequence? What is the likelihood of evolution of the virus? What is the strategy that we take? We have to mobilize quickly, understand what we're uh, working against, and then actually put into a pipeline the rapid response and then all the way through production. So within the P3 program, we're looking at the front end of that. How do we recognize? How do we mobilize? and how do we produce the uh, antiviral strategy that would be effective. Uh, what we've started to recognize uh, beyond that is production of the vaccine would then become an issue. And so on top of just developing the strategies, we also have to look at uh, how do we deploy the strategies once we identify the problem. And so um, adequate manufacturing of these um, antiviral strategies is gonna be a big part of that. And then the other thing that I wanted to mention was uh, when we talk about universal, uh, I think there's two ways to look at that. Um, I think what you guys are communicating to us is a single dose that just solves all flu problems, right? It, it's one right. strategy that hits that backbone that and was mentioned. And hopefully lasts a little longer. And lasts longer, yeah, right? But that's a secondary goal. The first yeah, thing. so I, you know, I think that um, that's one strategy to think about, but then there's also uh, the ability of our scientists and, and smart people like uh, Dr. Sun to actually develop that response, something that would go into this P3 platform that would allow us to uh, universally respond. So not necessarily a universal vaccine, which I think is a good goal, uh, but there have to be additional strategies. And when we kind of pull back the <coughs> aperture on this, we also look at other viruses of concern. I think that flu is a great target. I think that it's been well communicated how important that is. Uh, but at the end of the day, the strategies that we're developing within these different systems are also applicable to other viral uh, issues. Uh, Ebola is a good example. Um, and I actually think that that's a good case study 
for a relatively rapid response. So if you want to understand how slow the process is, look at the Ebola uh, response that is currently ongoing. Uh, there are places within that process that hold up our ability to move faster. Um, and, and I think those are pieces that you guys should uh, sort of focus on and see where, uh, where the process gets slowed. What I was trying to get at is that you, scenario where you cannot characterize, you're, you're gonna have no time to characterize the virus. So therefore you have to be prepared with something that's universal, which is the, the gold standard here, right? That's the holy grail we're trying to reach. Yeah. Whether, whether there is a more efficient way to do that in a greater, with a greater sense of urgency. Yeah, and we have uh, a few programs uh, within our portfolio at DARPA, within BTO, that are actually looking at um, a wider array of threats when you look at uh, chemical threats or biological threats. And the other piece that you have before the virus even gets into your body is how do you stop uh, that scenario from entering into the system? Um, so we're also focusing on uh, strategies that would actually uh, stop uptake of virus, which is another way to look at this. Uh, thanks, Jim. Uh, thanks for your answers. I, I'm not so sure that was an absurd scenario. Because, you know, the science is moving so rapidly, it's not absurd to imagine that either a, a terrorist group, but even more likely a nation state that has that is hostile to us might develop a synthetic, uh, synthetically an influenza virus. And uh, our intelligence community might find out about it and then put you all on notice. That's why I'm encouraged to hear not only what you're doing generally, but about the specific preparations of the of P3 program. Uh, Honorable Ken Weinstein. Thanks, uh, thank you for your remarks. Fascinating, Dr. Son, I just want to follow up, just curious. You talked about the nasal spray, and um, as I think you said, that, that best replicates the mode of infection, and so therefore you think it's, it's more effective. My only experience of that is, I guess one year our kids got the nasal spray and it wiped out the whole family for a week. And so I went back to shots. Um, but uh, but is 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 nasal spray? Is that uh, are there other advantages to it besides the fact that it just sort of replicates uh, the way the flu would infect you? Okay, so um, let me take one minute to address the issue of the current nasal spray. It's called flu mist, mm -hmm. and that was developed um, 20, 30 years ago. Actually, it was initiated at NIH um, the the prototype strand. And that was developed through traditional approach, which is um, reduce the virus replication capacity to a level not causing too much um, um, symptom, and but a stimulate immune response partially. So the replication capacity reduced, immunogenicity also reduced. That's why it's only partially effective. And the approach we are taking is we're, um, um, we're taking similar amount of mutation, but our mutation increase immunogenicity and further reduce virus replication capacity. So it, so that, um, so far the animal test is, is, is wonderful and achieved our, our goal. So it's, the delivery will be the same as the current flu mist nasal spread, but the virus will be totally different. And the virus property is totally opposite of the uh, flu mist. Flu mist was reduced immunogenicity has reduced immunogenicity. We have increased immunogenicity. So with very small dose can induce very robust immune response. So I hope that answers your question. That's great, thank you. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Ken. We've got a, a little more time if uh, any of the members of the ex-officio panel have a quick question. 
Dr. Koresh, do you have one? And then, oh, Dr. Dr. Parker, go ahead. Um, yes, uh, actually, uh, yeah, thanks uh, to all of you for your uh, testimony today. It, uh, one, it's very, very encouraging that uh, the spirit of collaboration and coordination and the FEMC model and so forth is alive and well. And, and I know um, in government there's much more coordination and collaboration than ever before. However, we can do more. And actually, Dr. Sun, I, you really highlighted in your testimony, the, the real challenges of bringing forward disruptive technology, you know, with the industry, commercial um, sector, and, and the need for, you know, really government funding, and, and commend uh, your university for the seed funding for your, that started your work. However, you know, I think, uh, I think you probably all three agree that the universal flu vaccine would be something that would benefit by Manhattan, you know, style approach. So, um, Dr. Sun, what would that look like to you? And what are some of the resources you might see that are needed to do that? And, and, and how could government better organize to make it more efficient for you, you know, in the, at the bench and your scientists and other scientists at other universities and, and in uh, the biotechnology industry to move faster? Okay. So I will speak from my own experience. Um, as an um, um, academic researcher, I've been following the the platform and uh, and the mechanism uh, implemented by NIH. I'm doing pretty well, and uh, one of my application I would score top one percent, so will be funded. But that's a few hundred thousand dollars per year, right? And now today I just learned the platform the resource DAPA has, which will allow us to move we'll, to the we'll next stage. We'll be talking stage. after this. Yeah, <laughs> and so I and then I'm thinking. After the DAPA platform, should it be a, a coordination of private fund and the government fund? And, and the government, it's not necessary for the government to fully finance all the investment. And if, we can, if the government can uh, guarantee or to re reduce the risk of investment, and then private fund can come in. And private funding, um, they will examine the science, examine the technology very carefully. And they bring their expertise and experience of manu uh, manufacture and, and commercialization. And so they can foresee the, the process and, uh, and invest and then, but they need to deal with the risk. And if government have some kind of funding mechanism to reduce the risk for private funding, then private can be more brave coming in, working with DAPA, working with NIH. And I, NIH has already experienced coordinating the science and investment, and, and DAPA has additional mechanisms. So if, if the Congress or the federal government um, have cross-agency collaborations to establish such a mechanism and make it transparent for us, and, and, and for us, we, we do not know um, um, how different agency works, and we know NIH, how NIH works, but other than that, it's, it's very um, opaque to us. So I, that's my Thanks. Dr. Koresh? Great, thank you. Um, we're here to help. Great. It might not sound like it from my questions, but we really are. Um, so I have a few questions. One is um, at, with NIH, there's the Sears program, there's the Centers of Excellence for Influenza. Um, where is that going? How is that funded? Where's the future direction? Um, I'd actually like to know some funding numbers. Um, and also from DARPA, what's the investment? Because it just struck me when 
the senator said, you know, it's costing our economy about $80 billion a year in losses and productivity. And so how does our investments to prevent that compare with the $80 billion we're losing? This is a whole of society. I don't think it's HHS's responsibility to pick up the whole bill for this. This is a societal cost and involves, of course, defense, but across society. Um, so, you know, what, what, what do you need and, well, not you, and I know you're limited on what you can say, but what are we thinking about the true cost versus the incredible benefits? We have possibility of vaccinating six to eight billion people. There's a market. There could be 30, 40 million billions through pigs, the same number of chickens, are we working with USDA? Are we really thinking of the potential? I mean, we wouldn't be having this meeting if it's like, what's the next incremental next step to get us where we want to be in 45 years? And we're really trying to think some big things. You know, so what, what, do you, what do you think? We can help support sure. that. And I should say, my, my words about we, into, we think that it may be incremental in nature is, is cautious. We, of course, hope that's not the case. Um, but you asked about the, in particular, about our Centers of Excellence for Influenza Research and Surveillance. Um, you may have seen that in, the pre, in our last NIAID Council round, which was um, in June, it's still available online, um, we presented the renewal of that program that will take a slightly different direction, but still, it will still be one of our flagship influenza uh, research programs. Um, it has um, been active since 2004. The, the actual cost is, it fluctuates a little bit. The base cost of the program is about $20 million. In, in, in a given year, if there are um, opportunities or additional funding or high priority projects that we're able to support, then we try and do that. Um, as it is kind of, as I said, the flagship um, influenza research program um, that we oversee. Um, I, did that answer your question? Um, here, one quick one from uh, Ms. Levinson, please. Sure. So thank you. All of you gave um, really exciting examples about progress and approaches that are being taken to address univer or universal vaccine for influenza, which is if there's a silver lining um, the platforms and approaches that could be effective dealing with flu can be applied to other, as you've mentioned, other viral infections. And really, the, a, a great benefit to that is that having vaccines and the knowledge around the world that we could have a very, very quick response to the introduction of any kind of virus could be a major deterrent to the use of those as weapons. Um, if we had the ability within 60 days to create, to produce, not just one dose, but 10 million doses, um, that would be a, would have a huge ripple effect, I think. Um, but I think the idea about risk tolerance that you mentioned is, is really critical, um, also across the board. Dr. Sun saying that the university that he's affiliated with was able to provide seed funding for a very disruptive approach is an example of risk tolerance in a way. And that, when a system is under stress and there aren't enough resources, the tolerance goes way up, I mean, go, goes down. And the ability to, to provide resources for something that is really um, innovative is less likely. And I think that the only way to address that is with not just more money, but transparency about what the, what the goals are 
and, and obviously the willingness um, across the board, and that includes the private sector, um, to put funding into those kinds of, of approaches. And I think that's something that the panel ought to be really thinking about how to encourage. Well said, we will. Congressman Greenwood has a last question. And I, <clears throat> we're over time for this panel, so I'll try to be very brief here. Uh, this is for you, Dr. Bextein. Um, in the, can you describe for me the, the ways in which the private sector, the biopharmaceutical industry, is engaged in the programs that you've described this morning? Uh, so, uh, as I mentioned, we're very early innovation, uh, but those conversations begin early in the process when we're developing programs, and we're very thoughtful. Uh, program managers at DARPA are very thoughtful about where the transition uh, capability is going to be. We have a commercialization office at DARPA, and so we interact uh, very uh, uh, throughout the program. But we're thoughtful from the beginning of the program about where it will go. I was talking with uh, Alan at the beginning here, and I talked about one of my personal programs. And um, what I did with that program, it's actually agricultural-based. Uh, I actually went over to NIA or to uh, the USDA and said, if we're successful, does this have a home? At DARPA, we developed these four-year, five-year programs. We don't want it to just be that and be done and be a fun science fair project. Instead, we're very thoughtful about where it goes after. Uh, because of the stage of innovation we're in, a lot of times that's going to go to our partner agencies within the government. So that's usually the route that, uh, that we follow. I also wanted to mention one last thing, if I can. Um, you mentioned the doses for chickens and pigs and, and such. Um, I think it's also important to recognize that there are viruses in those systems, and there is this jumping effect that can occur into human populations. That's very important. The Manhattan uh, idea here also stands. NBAF is being stood up uh, through the USDA in Manhattan, Kansas. Uh, so there's also additional uh, partnerships within those um, animal health communities that certainly impact the, the human population. That's great. I think you've just expanded <clears throat> our support in Congress from uh, Manhattan, New York, to Manhattan, <laughs> Kansas. Uh, thanks apples. to the three of you, uh, first and foremost, for uh, the uh, really extraordinary work you're doing to meet this challenge. Uh, second, I think you uh, convinced me, anyway, that we do need more collaboration of this effort, and you, do, you really could use more money if we go at it seriously. I, I know these are, what I'm about to do may seem facile, but part of the, uh, a challenge here uh, uh, is that uh, the, the impact of uh, infectious diseases, and let's focus on influenza for a moment, tends not to be seen in the same light as other um, causes of death. So uh, if you can imagine a military conflict in which the U.S. was involved, in which an average of 36,000 people were being killed every year, and in a bad year, as you said, not so long ago, 80,000. Well, there'd be an enormous national consensus to urgently end the conflict, either with the use of overwhelming force or, or by uh, withdrawing. And here we have those same numbers of deaths with, with uh, potential for much greater in a pandemic situation. And I, I think we take upon ourselves one of our main uh, responsibilities in, in this group is to become advocates, uh, <laughs> I, uh, for want of a better term, we, uh, Paul Revere's for the uh, for the bio threat to try to um, uh, arouse um, the kind of response in um, Congress and, and the administration 
that would be forthcoming if this was uh, a direct military situation. So anyway, thank you very, very much for all you're doing. And uh, I hope if you have afterthoughts, don't hesitate to write us, please. And we won't hesitate to call you either. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, second panel. Here we're uh, going to go uh, from, if you will, the national or even uh, global to uh, take a local perspective on the bio threat uh, problem. We have three distinguished uh, public servants from uh, New York City, departments of police, health, and transit uh, to discuss the biological threat from their perspective uh, and uh, what they need to defend against it, as well as perhaps challenges in interacting uh, with the federal government to achieve adequate biodefense uh, of New York City, and perhaps if you have any thoughts about how you think a Manhattan Project for Biodefense could be helpful uh, to you. Uh, we're really honored to have the three of you here. We'll begin with uh, John O'Connell, who's the uh, Deputy Chief and Commanding Officer of the Counterterrorism Division of the New York City Police Department. I would be remiss personally looking up to the heavens if I did not mention the name of Jimmy O'Connell, who was a, a lieutenant in the New Haven Police Department, passed away some years ago, probably my be, one of my best friends in life, but um, would always say to me that there was no better police force in the world than the NYPD. I appreciate that, sir, so, very much. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Chief, thank go right Good morning, Sediment Lieberman, Representative Greenwood, Honorable Wayne Stain, Assistant Commissioner Dr. Cadillac, and all members of the panel. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to speak here today on behalf of the New York City Police Department and the Police Commissioner on the department's efforts and recommendations in the area of biodefense. I am Deputy Chief John O'Connell, Commanding Officer of the Counterterrorism Division, an integral part of the Counterterrorism Bureau, commanded by Chief James Waters and led by Deputy Commissioner of Intelligence and Counterterrorism, John Miller. Infectious disease outbreaks, whether natural or due to bioterrorism, are local and the detection and response rely on local readiness and the capacities. Bio-threats are real and could inadvertently threaten life, but also the safety and the security of New York City, the region, and ultimately the nation. Undoubtedly, effective biodefense takes concerted efforts from all levels of the government and non-governmental communities. However, we do also realize that we need to remain proactive and assure we do all we can on the local level to prevent and deter bioterrorism and be ready to respond to bio-threats if unavoidably introduced to our populations and or environment. NYPD is not a stranger to such incidents. Since 9-11, NYPD has participated in the investigation and response to several bio-threat incidents, including anthrax attacks in 2001, pandemic flu, Ebola virus disease, Legionella outbreaks, and arrival of affected individuals with strains of SARS or drug-resistant tuberculosis to New York City airports. Some facts about the NYPD. The number of NYPD uniform personnel is about 36,000, and total personnel estimated 50,000 with land, air, and maritime units. NYPD has made significant strides in the area of terrorism and biodefense. After 9-11, NYPD created the Counterterrorism Bureau and enhanced the Intelligence Bureau, which have grown in number and capabilities since. Both the Counterterrorism Bureau and Intelligence Bureaus include over 1,600 personnel. More than 100 counterterrorism investigators are assigned to New York City offices of the Joint Terrorism Task Force. 
All uniformed members of the service receive awareness training in chemical, biological, and radiological threats at the police academy. About 1,800 officers are trained to operational level hazmat, and over 500 officers are trained as hazmat technicians. In addition, NYPD officers receive additional advanced seaburn training by federally funded entities. NYPD has developed and fostered a close partnerships with local agencies to further the department and New York City's preparedness against bio threats. In particular, the partnerships with the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, the Fire Department, Department of Environmental Protection, the MTA and the Port Authority, New York, New Jersey, and other local and regional agencies. The Counterterrorism Bureau has a specialist in infectious disease and staff to provide NYPD's connectivity to the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and work with public health and other local, regional, and federal partners on biodefense. Dr. Danny Zavosky is present here with me here today. The NYPD works closely with the Department of Homeland Security, especially the Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Office and the Office of Science and Technology. That includes collaboration and support to DHS projects relevant to biodefense, such as testing and field deployment of novel biotech, biodetection technologies, BioWatch, as well as supported hazard dispersion studies in New York City. In addition to those conducted by DHS, the NYPD sponsored and supported one of the biggest dispersal studies ever conducted in New York City, known as S-SAFE study in the summer of 2013. The NYPD Counterterrorism Bureau serves as the principal manager for the New York City BioWatch jurisdiction, which involves in excess of 18 agencies, stakeholders that we bring together. To our knowledge, New York City is the only BioWatch jurisdiction managed and led by law enforcement. We also have an excellent partnership with the federal intelligence and law enforcement community, especially the FBI. The NYPD focuses on the prevention and deterrence of terrorist threats. Both the counterterrorism and intelligence bureaus have units that provide outreach to the community in the prevent preventative efforts against terrorism. The more notable are the SHIELD and the Nexus programs. The Counterterrorism SHIELD program manages the department's public-private security partnership, providing training and sharing information with the private sector. The Intelligence Bureau's Nexus program is outreach to private industries, manufacturing, selling, or handling potential hazardous materials that could be used in acts of terrorism. Our Threat Reduction Infrastructure Protection Section identifies critical infrastructure sites throughout the city and develops protective strategies for these sites against all hazards. The Intelligence Bureau has detectives assigned to various parts of the world that can provide first-hand information should any incident attack take place to the analysis to process and evaluate potential implications and threat to New York City. We believe that through our routine policing and community presence, crime prevention efforts, we can re reduce the risk of terrorism, including bioterrorism. Learning from the experience of the 2001 anthrax attacks, NYPD, along with the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and FBI, jointly worked on and signed a cooperative agreement regarding joint investigation of illnesses that could be resulted from suspected and confirmed bioterrorism. In 2004, it was the first such agreement signed between public health and law enforcement on a local level. Excuse me. In addition to investigation, NYPD has a significant role in a response to a bio threat. The NYPD is the designated incident commander of all incidents suspected or proven to be due to terrorism that would also include bioterrorism and works closely with the FBI. 
even in non-terrorism-related public health emergency incidents. NYPD is a member of three major agencies forming a joint unified command with the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and FDNY. The NYPD does not perform any biological testing, but NYPD Emergency Service Unit samples all environmental hazards materials, including biothreat substances, and delivers them to the laboratory for testing. Furthermore, the NYPD supports all public health operations and interventions re requiring security. For instance, we have a key role in the transport security and transport security and the security for the distribution of medical countermeasures at the designated points of dispensing. In summary, we believe that the national biodefense capacity rests on the local biodefense capabilities. We are the front line of national biodefense and need appropriate federal support. Viability of the police department must be assured to carry out the response, but also to sustain policing operations in the city while responding to other inadvertent threats. We are counting on the ongoing federal support to the NYPD for training, exercises, and state-of-the-art personal protective equipment. During a response to a bio-threat, making decisions fall upon the level of responders and local responders and leadership. The current reality is such that, very likely, we will not have sufficient information, and these decisions will have to be made in a setting of significant uncertainty. So what we'd like to see is the following. Timely, close to real-time, specific and accurate detection capability of bio-threats. We are relying on the federal level to coordinate the efforts of innovation and development military and DHS, and to bring the technology ready for field testing. We can assist and support field testing. In fact, we would like to request that New York City is always included as a testing ground for emerging detection technologies. During the response phase to a bio-threat incident, we need tools for rapid situational awareness to quickly assess the scope of the situation with respect to geographic spread and affected population. We need access to federal resources to minimize impact on the population and critical infrastructure, including rapid deployment of effective countermeasures. Federal assistance is also needed for mitigation of the threat and cleanup, especially in underground rail transportation systems. We have a great working partnership with the FBI, and we are confident that we will be informed about any potential threats. However, we would want to ensure access to all threat assessments done on the military and federal levels and if there are bio-threat assessments performed routinely by other entities, we would like to be access those as well. Last but not least, drones, unmanned aircraft systems, have emerged as a real potential threat for dispersion of hazardous materials. That includes bio-threats. We have seen a steady climb in drone-related incidents throughout the city. They have become a threat to sporting events, parades, or any open-air mass gathering. Over the last few years, we've had incidents at the U.S. Open, the Thanksgiving Day Parade, even as far back as Super Bowl Boulevard. When an operator was apprehended flying a dangerously low altitude over a crowd, currently the NYPD has the capability to detect most types of drones, and we are working diligently to detect all types of devices. Unfortunately, due to federal legal restraints, we cannot take any type of mitigating action against a device, even if we deem it a threat. Recently, laws were passed granting our federal law enforcement partners mitigation and authority when available we will request their assistance. For example, during large events, they come help us. We are requesting that legislation be drafted to include the NYPD to mitigate the threat of weaponized drones. Thank you for your attention and give me the opportunity to speak today.
Both Dr. Zavasky and I are available for questions. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Chief. That was a great beginning. Uh, next, we uh, go to uh, Beth Malden Morgenthau, uh, Deputy Commissioner of the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Good morning, Senator Lieberman and members of the panel. I'm Beth Malden, Deputy Commissioner for the Office of Emergency Preparedness and Response at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. On behalf of the New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Arxiris Barbeau, thank you for the opportunity to participate in this panel. The New York City Police Department and the Metropolitan Transportation Authority are essential partners in our efforts to protect the health and security of New Yorkers, and I'm glad that my colleagues are here today. I'd like to provide a short background before discussing challenges and recommendations. Our nation's public health and healthcare infrastructure plays a critical role in protecting people from a range of hazards, including bioterrorism and emerging and re-emerging infectious diseases, such as Ebola virus disease and measles. Local public health departments and their healthcare partners are on the front lines and are the first to detect and respond to disease outbreaks. This requires core public health infrastructure, including electronic surveillance systems, state-of-the-art laboratories, epidemiologists, including CDC-trained disease detectives, informatic specialists who find new ways to use data to improve public health, veterinarians who monitor diseases that affect both human and animal health, and emergency management and response experts who enable all these diverse functions to operate efficiently during emergencies. This infrastructure is essential to detect and respond to diseases, and without it, we risk the rapid spread of disease and increased illness and death. It is therefore critical to our nation's security that health departments receive the necessary resources to maintain this capability. Public health and healthcare system readiness noticeably expanded and improved after 9-11 with an influx of federal public health and healthcare system preparedness funding from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. State and local health departments and healthcare systems have used these funds to invest in staff, purchase equipment, create response plans, and train and exercise these plans to prepare for a broad range of emergencies and maintain a strong, experienced workforce necessary for a robust response. This public health infrastructure saves lives and is crucial for all jurisdictions. New York City is undoubtedly unique. With a population of approximately 8.6 million, New York City is the largest, most densely populated city in the US and is an international hub for business, media, and tourism. Consequently, we face we face both high-risk, intentional, and naturally occurring hazards. A biological attack or large-scale infectious disease outbreak here will significantly impact the health, security, economy, and political stability of both the city itself, the rest of the country, and will have international implications. As a global city, we expect and plan for emerging infectious diseases to literally land here. This occurred in October 2014 when a physician who was treating patients with Ebola in Guinea returned to New York City. Just a few days after his return, the doctor became symptomatic and notified the health department. Upon notification of the doctor's symptoms and travel history, New York City responded just as we had trained. Anticipating that the growing outbreak in West Africa could reach U.S. shores, the health department led a comprehensive planning effort with healthcare partners and first responders beginning earlier that summer. When the call came, the New York City Fire Department Emergency Medical Services successfully transported the doctor to Bellevue Hospital Center, where staff donned personal protective equipment, received the patient, and isolated him in their Ebola treatment unit. Specimens were quickly transported to the New York City Public Health Laboratory, where scientists were able to test and confirm Ebola within two hours of receipt. 
At Bellevue, healthcare workers provided skilled, person-centered care around the clock, all while wearing very cumbersome PPE, ultimately curing the patient and stopping Ebola transmission. This highly complex response involved multiple city agencies and spanned both community and healthcare settings. The fact that there was no transmission of, of disease is a testament to the city's preparedness efforts. In addition to this one case, the health department also launched an unprecedented effort to monitor a total of 5,791 travelers who arrived at JFK Airport from Ebola-affected countries between October 2014 and December 2015. Based on New York City's high risk and the health department's experience in this domain, we are uniquely positioned to make targeted recommendations that, if implemented, would have broad impacts on the lives of millions of Americans. I will now discuss key challenges we face and our accompanying recommendations. First, a strong public health and healthcare system preparedness and response infrastructure is an essential component of national security. However, significant cuts in federal funding have hampered state and local readiness at a time when emerging diseases are spreading faster than ever before. This year alone, we're seeing an active Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo, as well as the reemergence of measles here in New York City and across the world. New York City relies on federal funding to prepare for public health emergencies. Over the past 14 years, the funding has significantly reduced, including a 34% to the Public Health Emergency Preparedness Program and 40% cut to the Hospital Preparedness Program since fiscal year 2005. The most drastic impact of these cuts has been the significant reduction in New York City's public health preparedness and response workforce. Nationwide, jurisdictions have eliminated critical public health jobs due to funding cuts. The National Association of County and City Health Official, Officials 2018 Forces of Change Survey of Local Health Departments found that more than 56,000 public health jobs have been eliminated over the past dec decade. Simply put, we can build a state-of-the-art surveillance system. However, if there are no disease detectives, laboratory scientists, environmental health specialists, emergency managers, and risk communication experts there to hear the alarm and respond when it goes off, then it is of little use for protecting the health of the American public. Additionally, this year, ASPR changed their funding formula for the hospital preparedness program, which resulted in New York City receiving a 5% cut. This is the maximum cut for the revised formula. We have significant concerns about the methodology used to conceive this formula, and more importantly, the negative implications this funding cut has for New York City, arguably the highest risk jurisdiction in the country. I'm encouraged that recent House appropriation bills include funding increases to crucial public health and healthcare preparedness programs. However, it is essential that funding levels remain stable over the long term, as the continuous ebb and flow of federal funding greatly complicates local abilities to make lasting, sustainable investments to preparedness and response infrastructure. In 2014, Congress appropriated a five-year emergency supplemental fund funding package in response to the Ebola outbreak in West Africa which has helped sustain the capacity of 10 regional Ebola and other special pathogens treatment centers across the country, state-designated Ebola treatment centers, as well as frontline hospitals, health departments, and first responders. With this funding, we, they have built and maintained the capability to identify and safely care for patients with viral hemorrhagic fevers and other high-consequence infectious diseases. Moreover, these funds have supported joint planning and regional coordination between public health, healthcare, EMS, and law enforcement to rapidly respond. As a result, our country is substantially more prepared to manage cases of Ebola than ever before. However, there is no plan to continue this funding when it expires in May 2020. Furthermore, funding for the CDC Epidemiology and Laboratory Capacity Infection Control 
and laboratory biosafety programs already ended in March 2019. These programs provided critical support for infection control at healthcare facilities and ensured that laboratory staff were trained on safe handling of lab specimens, which helped to prevent the spread of infections in the healthcare system and the community. If this funding is not sustained long-term, New York City and the rest of the country will ultimately lose these capabilities, wasting years of investment. Not only has preparedness funding declined or expired, but there is no dedicated funding for timely, there's no dedicated or timely federal funding to support urgent public health and healthcare system response. We must instead rely on Congress to provide supplemental funding, which is often significantly delayed and cannot be used during critical moments of an emergency when local responders need resources to save lives. For example, although the first US Ebola case was not confirmed until September 2014, local public health departments began to prepare with the healthcare system starting in that early summer. However, Congress did not appropriate funding for Ebola until December 2014. Similarly, for Zika virus in 2016, supplemental funding was finally appropriated more than nine months after mo most local health departments had mobilized their response. These examples illustrate the need for Congress to appropriate new funding now so that it can be accessed quickly to support urgent local public health response. A public health emergency fund exists. However, it only has $57,000. Notably, last month, Congress passed the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness and Advancing Innovation Act, which updates the fund so that appropriated monies can be used to prepare in anticipation of an impending emergency or for response efforts. However, this is only useful if adequate funds are appropriated in advance of an emergency. Likewise, money appropriated to this fund should be new and not diverted away from existing public health programs. Lastly, since BioWatch was deployed in 2003, New York City has worked closely with the Department of Homeland Security, the National Laboratories, the CDC, the Environmental Protection Agency, and other jurisdictions to inform the building of a biodefense architecture with acceptable performance characteristics required in an urban civilian setting. As this panel is aware, DHS is aiming to replace BioWatch with a 21st century detection system consistent with the recommendations set forth in your 2015 report. One such project is BD21, which is intended to detect biological anomalies in near real time, given, giving more advanced warning than BioWatch. Active, ongoing collaboration between local, state, and federal agencies for biodetection is critical to a robust and timely response. However, to date, there has been insufficient transparency from federal partners developing BD2, BD21, even though it will be managed locally. We also have concerns about the biodetection technologies being evaluated as part of BD21. Instruments currently deployed for military use, which have generated regular force false alarms, are being considered for implementation in New York City. It's important to note that biodetection system requirements for cities are fundamentally, fundamentally different from networks used in military settings. In an urban setting like New York City, the implications for launching a substantial high regret response based on a false positive biodetection are far more severe. The BD21 program rollout is reminiscent of the mistakes experienced and documented from the 2003 BioWatch deployment, including failure to consult with local jurisdictions from the beginning, the lack of technical details, and rush to field data collection. It's imperative that we avoid repeating past missteps. The local end users must be confident that the system is based on scientifically sound principles, that it will be used appropriately, and that the technology will generate information with sufficient fidelity for an actionable response. Otherwise, DHS runs the risk of implementing a biodetection program that is ineffective at providing the information needed by local responders to save lives. On behalf of the New York City Health Department, I'm grateful to the panel for giving me an opportunity to provide feedback and participate in this process, and I'm happy to answer questions.
Thanks, Commissioner. That was uh, very helpful. Uh, Michael Gamelli is the manager of environmental monitoring and emergency response, counterterrorism, and security initiatives of the New York City Transit uh, Department. Thanks for being here. Thank you, uh, Chairman Lieberman, Lieberman and esteemed panel. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Um, some are out there probably asking why a representative from a transportation company is here today. Well, I'm here to say why it is important to get MTA's perspective on this bi on biodefense. If you go to our website, mta.info, you can read our mission. It states, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority preserves and enhances the quality of life and economic health of the region it serves through cost-efficient provision of safe, on-time, reliable, and clean transportation services. We take our responsibility for the safe and reliable transport of 8.7 million people per day very seriously. 8.7 million is also about the number of people in New York City, the population in New York City. So we do that every weekday between our subways and buses. The MTA cannot complete this mission on its own. We rely heavily on our New York City partners to ensure the safety of our customers and employees. On a daily basis, our employees work closely with NYPD, FDNY, the Department of Health, the Department of Environmental Protection, New York City Emergency Management, and others to safeguard our customers and employees from everyday hazards and incidents. NYPD patrols our public spaces. We have 472 stations. We have 6,400 subway cars, 4,500 buses, and about 60,000 employees that work in the subway and buses. Uh, FDNY and emergency services come to the rescue of our sick and injured and respond to subway and bus emergencies like fires and accidents. New York City Health, well, New York City Health is the local lead scientific agency for, city, for the city and is responsible for conducting all laboratory testing, public health surveillance, conducting medical countermeasures, developing environmental sampling strategies and remediation following incidents all which directly affect us if a bio-incident were, were to happen. Now for our record, with its local and state federal partners, the MTA has been facilitating work on the issue of chemical, biological, and radiological agent detection since Am Shinrikyo spread sarin in the, in the Tokyo subway in 1995. Since that time, we've allocated resources to develop novel training programs and have adjusted our daily operations and responses to emergency events to ensure better outcomes should the unthinkable occur. Our work includes actively participating with our New York City partners on the federal DHS BioWatch program and stakeholders committee. I know BioWatch has been identified as having shortfalls, but um, Honorable uh, Ken Weinstein said before that, um, you know, Collaboration is key in, in conquering this. That's why it's a Manhattan Project. The, the one best thing I think about BioWatch has done, we, we all get in a room a few times a year and we talk about this. And we, we argue. We've, we've argued, you know, they've, they've talked about, um, you know, they want to do pods and have everyone take the subway there. I said, well, if you have to do pods, we have to close down the subway. And we've hashed out these, these issues together. Um, and we've, we've come together on these issues. So, so the best part of BioWatch, in my uh, estimation, is that we all talk, and it gets us talking on a local level. Mr. Gamelli, excuse me. Yes. Do you mean when you say we all talk, uh, everybody involved at the New York City level, or is it more? 
Correct. So the BioWatch stakeholders meeting that happens uh, at One Police Plaza yeah. uh, includes all of our locals um, as well as uh, federal agents well, like do, DHS that's come what, in that's as what well. We're trying to get at. You have federal representation there too. We do. We do. The 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 run the um, our our Dr. Yair has he is our BioWatch jurisdictional coordinator, and he's always there. But we also bring in uh, DHS ST folks occasionally as well. Okay, please go ahead. Um, another uh, bullet of ours is establishing a very unique New York City Transit Weapons of Mass Destruction Hazmat Response Team that can provide subject matter expertise on transit system operations to first responder agencies. What that is, we train our employees that actually know our system best to uh, the 40-hour the uh, OSHA HAZWOPER standard. So they can actually respond in a hazardous atmosphere and guide first responders, help fire and police when they respond to our system. We actually have one of the largest BioWatch environmental sampling teams in New York City. We've, we've trained them on how to take samples and, and actually work with Department of Health to um, uh, develop new uh, techniques on how to get samples actually off our HVAC filters because with 6,400 trains going through our system, train cars going through our systems, uh, they're gonna pick something up if something's released. Uh, we also have developed and implemented training of our employees to recognize chem, bio, and rad releases and what actions should be taken to mitigate the hazards posed to them, themselves and our customers. We've researched, developed, and established plans to facilitate service restoration should the release of a chem bio or rad agent ever occur. We have in the past and continue to receive tremendous support from our partners at the Department of Homeland Security, Science and Technology Directorate. Um, we monitor the health of our frontline employees, those who are face-to-face -face with our 8.7 million customers, to spot trends that could indicate a problem. Also, we've secured the commitment of our uh, president uh, Andy Byford. As published in our Fast Forward, The Plan to Modernize New York City Transit, it states, he uh, committed to support and facilitate the increased use of technology to detect biological, chemical, and radiological threats in the system in partnership with the New York City Police Department and federal agencies. Also to expand drills and exercises aimed at our customer and employee safety service restoration. So in conclusion, MTA is firmly resolved to continue our partnerships with those agencies best positioned to protect our transit system and city from any weapon of mass destruction attack. With that, I'll take questions. Thank you uh, very much. Thanks to the three of you. I'll, I'll give you an impression that um, uh, New York City really devotes a lot of uh, resources and effort to countering um, the terrorist threat, but now we're specifically talking about a bioterrorist uh, challenge or threat. And yet, listening to uh, uh, particularly, uh, Chief, your listing at the end of things you could use, and, and to a certain extent, Commissioner, your uh, statement of uh, needs and the, the, particularly the challenge to federal funding for what you're doing, uh, it seems to me that, I'm trying to state this responsibly, that, um, that the city is not as prepared as it should be and could be, but and I'd say should be, uh, to uh, deal with a, a bioterrorist attack uh, and respond to it or prevent it. And, and a lot of that, if I may say so, it, uh, is not your fault, 
but uh, it, it really does uh, require a more uh, intense, concentrated, generous uh, effort uh, from the federal government level. Um, one of the things that we said pretty clearly in our uh, initial report, and we've continued to be on it, and there was some reference to this, is that the uh, BioWatch surveillance program, which was set up in cities around the country, including here, of course, is uh, how old, we heard testimony uh, regularly, old technology that really doesn't work well anymore. And uh, we, we ought to, uh, uh, in terms of warning that something is happening out there, uh, that would be one of the first things we should, the federal government should do to update the technology. Is that, do you agree with that? Uh, I'll just ask each of you to take a quick uh, turn at that. Yeah, I, th I think the public has to know that we do have a BioWatch program. And right. uh, through innovation, we always got to look to get better and better at things. You know, I, I would compare it to the Radnuke uh, type. We pull up on a, you know, operationally, we go to a job in the city where there's a potential substance that's radiological. Yeah. We have the equipment to identify it right away. So that's when I, when I mentioned earlier what we need. We need real-time information. Right. You know, it stops panic. It stops the subway from spilling out into the street. And it stops from overloading hospitals. So, so if, through innovation and with government agencies and the, and the public-private sector, the, uh, the real-time uh, equipment would be beneficial. You know? uh, New York City, with, on the RAD uh, nuke uh, type, we have 7,000 piece, pieces of uh, equipment that can identify RAD and nuke. And our partners in the region, there's probably 17,000 pieces of equipment. So it's comforting when you're, when, you're, when you're going to a scene or doing a special event that you have something locked down. So Rad Nuke is locked down, and we know there's a robust BioWatch problem. I think we just got to get through innovation to the point where we could show up at a scene and kind of get a quick answer, real-time answer on what, what we're dealing with. Okay. Commissioner? Sure. So, I mean, we can always do better, right? And BioWatch... I think in terms of the locals trusting it has come a long way. The, um, and we learned a lot of lessons. I, I, I guess m one of my concerns is that we need to remember those lessons and apply it to what we're doing moving forward and not relearn them all over again. Um, I think that we need to balance, one of the challenges with BioWatch is that there's such a long time between um, when something might occur and when you would detect it. And we need to balance getting sort of real-time information with making sure it's good information. It, there are some jurisdictions where these systems are outside and it's very easy to go and sort of look and see what's going on and not cause major, major disruption, disruptions. Here, it's a really big deal. Um, and shutting down subway system, systems, I mean, this is how everyone gets around here. It would quickly become a national security event, even right. just responding to a false alarm. So um, I think we just, it's really important the locals be involved because we're, we're the ones that have to manage the system day to day and how we're going to interpret the response. And, you know, I agree we need better technology to help us quickly determine what it is that we're dealing with. Okay. Uh, Mr. Gamelli, is, um, are the biological detectors, let's say, in the New York City subway system adequate to the threat? So, right, we could always do better. Um, we would like them to be, to be faster, but we have a low bar for a, a low risk tolerance, very low risk tolerance. Um, like Dr. Mullen said, I mean. He just gave Beth, me his yeah, 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 Thank just, you. Thanks. <laughs> uh, like Beth said, um, you know, we defer to the Department of Health on these decisions, but we feel with a faster response, we could do a lot more. Um, 
we are looking into uh, you know studies that we're we're partnering with health and and uh, DHS to come up with low regret actions that could be take taken to uh, limit the spread and exposure, find out immediately, but take low regret actions that might not cause panic. Um, I, I could get into the details, yeah. but. Okay, that's helpful. Um, one more question. Uh, Chief, I don't want to spend too much time on it because it's somewhat uh, backward looking, but, and we're really trying to look forward here. But if you had asked me, and I was then on what became the Homeland Security Committee in uh, 2001, after 9-11, and particularly after the anthrax attacks, I would have said, oh boy, we gotta get ready for a lot of biological attacks in the, in the coming uh, years and decades, et cetera. And it, it does seem noteworthy to me, notwithstanding everything we've said, that we haven't, we've had some, but we haven't had anything uh, as uh, deadly, significant, uh, sophisticated, I, as I worried in the uh, late fall, early winter of 2011, 2001. Um, I'm sure you ask yourself the same question. Why do you think that's so? Um, we, see the, we see it as a major threat to the city. We know the, yeah. the repercussions of it. I think we've been fortunate. I think uh, the publications of you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS magazines overseas, they call for some of these things. Right. And then a short time later, you see them happen. You know, they called for uh, vehicle rammings. You know, they switched gears from, you know, uh, you know a, a V-bid to a vehicle ramming. So I think uh, we have to build going forward. I think the threat's real. I just think there's a little gap when, it, when the publications and the recruitment and, and all the efforts on the, on the bad guys to get this out, uh, I think there's a little bit of a delay, like especially with the, we've seen a little delay in the vehicle ramming propaganda and then all of a sudden it starts hitting New York City. So yeah. I think the threat's real. It may scientifically, maybe the capabilities they're not good at it yet, but uh, I think we got to really pay attention to it. Okay, that's important because uh, bottom line is we can't uh, 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 get uh, too comfortable based on the fact of what's happened uh, in the last uh, almost 18 years because the threat, uh, the bioterrorist threat continues to be real. Congressman Greenwood. Thank you. Um, Chief, we, we've, uh, in our, our, our studies and from various experts we've brought to, to bear on this in conversations. We've identified four, a list of four things that we think are critical um, in terms of the, um, what the first responders need. And I want to ask you if these are the right four okay. things. Number one is better information and intelligence from the federal government about the biological threat. Two, lessons learned about effective methods for investigating biological incidents, Department of Defense weapons of mass destruction, response training, personal protective equipment effective against contagious and vaccines against diseases we already know have been weaponized. Um, I thought there were four things there, but it looked like two to me. But in any case, are those the, the, um, are those the, the, the right, is that the right list of things that, you, that your folks well, need? Um, the communication between the federal partners, uh, in New York City, we're fortunate. It's, uh, very, it's very robust and it works very well. Um, I, in, in my shop alone, I have a DHS rep from the federal government embedded in our office. Uh, the Intelligence Bureau and our JTTF, there's no problems with, with uh, communication. We actually, in, in the opening remarks, we mentioned, you know, a great relationship with the New York office of the FBI. Um, the only ask we really had was if there's entities that are unknown to us that are doing some bio, 
you know, bio threat research or they have threat knowledge if uh, we could be part of it if there's a, you know, biannual meetings or anything like that. So on that front, I think we, New, York, New York is very unique. Uh, there's really no complaint of, uh, you know, collaboration. I'm, I'm sure that we'd hear about the threat. I, I'm sure I'd hear about it from multiple sources. You know, we have an excellent, excellent relationship with New York State DHS. And there, you know, people, we have agencies from uh, Jersey, Connecticut embedded in our shops. Mm -hmm. And then obviously the, uh, the Intel program where there's numerous detectives uh, overseas. Uh, so I don't, see, I don't think we'd have a problem with any of that. So, and do you have folks that have their sufficient security clearances to be able to um, receive that information? Yes, uh, uh, numerous. Uh, in my shop alone, we have a, you know, a, a mini skiff where we have the uh, ability to uh, read emails and have uh, phone calls and share information and uh, headquarters also. So it's not, not an issue. Okay, thank you. Um, just one other quickie for you. Um, the, the issue of drones, you, you, you mentioned that you don't have the authority currently to respond to drones even if you believe them to pose a significant threat. Could you elaborate a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think you talked about yeah. legislation that you think we're is going, necessary. We're going back, we go back to like 2007, 2008. Uh, you started seeing drones, the real estate companies started using drones for their advertisements. You know, this is the view from the 64th floor. They started, you know, we started having incidents in Manhattan specifically where, you know, they were dangerous to the public. And then, of course, the propaganda overseas talks about, you know, uh, using them as a dispersal device. They, uh, there's, uh, there's videos that promote, uh, you know, weaponizing them with handguns, all different uses. So as time developed, there's more and more drones and we're seeing more and more sightings. So we said, okay, right now we don't have the mitigation, we don't have the authority to mitigate. Which is a pro which is a major problem because so let uh, me just understand that um, do you is there are there laws or regulations that prohibit you from responding is yes. that the issue yeah what's going on right now is there's probably close to f over a dozen laws whether they're ICC FAA regulations or federal laws that prohibit us from mitigating the threat so we we went out and said all right these laws are holding us up but we still have to do the, the uh, identifying and finding them because the next best thing although it's not great is finding the operator and bring the, bringing the drone down. So we've met with vendors, the military, partners in the military, and partners in DHS, and we've come up with a, with a, uh, a system that identifies close to 90% of the drones, and we're on the verge of getting the other 10%. So the problem lies is we are not allowed to uh, mitigate the threat, even if we see a drone that has a, uh, you know, something attached to it. We, uh, Department of Justice and DOD is the only federal entities that are allowed to, no, all federal entities that are allowed to mitigate the drone threat. The technology is out there to take over the signal, to spoof it. There's numerous different things. We can, we can force it to land. We can create a bubble where it can't go over a stadium. It gets turned around. So the technology is out there. But uh, there's a call for legislative changes, and uh, we're going to need some help with that. Um, right now, uh, for the big ones, the big events, I'm not going to list them, we call our partners in the FBI, and they come up and help us with it because we'd be standing there. We're not able to mitigate it. And uh, I think we got to move forward on that. Very interesting. Thank you. So you you like to be called Beth? Is that right? That's fine. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, so you talked about the cuts in in uh, federal dollars. Um, um, has the the uh, I know two things. One, has the state uh, or the city been able to in any way compensate for those cuts um, with state or local funds? And two, I'll put both questions into one. Um, help us understand the, the impact of those cuts in terms of your preparedness. It sounds like you probably would have had to have laid people off, 
um, that <clears throat> don't then have the f enough folks that you would need to call upon in an emergency. Could you explain that? Sure. So the city contributes a lot to um, support preparedness and response for the health department um, and hospitals for healthcare system preparedness. Hospitals and other healthcare entities also contribute a lot because the hospitals get pennies compared to really what the cost is. Um, the the issue is is that public health and healthcare response is a national security issue, right? And it should be funded as such. Um, and the problem is the funding, we, we get funded year to year. New York City is directly funded. There's four directly funded cities, New York City, LA, Chicago, and DC. Um, we get funded directly from CDC and from ASPR for these two grants, which are really the only uh, sources of federal preparedness funding. Um, so I mentioned like the for public health, the what we need are people. We need a workforce that has the right expertise, the disease detectives, the IT folks, the environmental folks, the emergency managers, the risk communication folks. We need all the right folks in place to be able to respond when something happens. And we have big and small events all the time, right? And all these small events and measles, which is not small, all these events lead to us being able to do this better next time. I think to your question about what the impact is, um, we've been fortunate we haven't had layoffs, but I think sometimes what happens when we have these federal funding cuts is that when a job goes vacant, it's just not refilled, right? So when we know that the money, we're gonna get a 5% cut in the coming year, we have to know that we're not gonna refill certain vacancies. And so people are doing two, three, four jobs, and that's just, inevitably, you can't do that as well, right? Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Gamelli, um, when I think about uh, potential um, terror attacks uh, in the subways, for instance, using biological or chemical radioactive um, weapon, uh, I, and maybe it's because I've seen too many Hollywood productions, but I, I, it seems like a double part of the threat would be the ability of the uh, antagonist to stop the vehicles um, so that they couldn't, they were harder to access professionals, first responders to them if they're stalled in the tunnels. Is, is there a, and if you, some of this is not to be revealed publicly, I mean, you feel confident that um, the bad guys can't hack into the system and um, prevent the vehicles from, the, the subways and the trains from continuing to proceed? So, um, yeah, that's a good question. We do have a, a central control as well as a backup control, and they're, they're both not publicly listed. So. As far as that goes, and we also have local control of all the trains as well, um, I feel confident someone can't just go to a switch and, and, and turn it off and, and have their way with, with the trains. Although that did happen in, in 2004 with a blackout, and our employees did manage very well to evacuate all the customers without an injury mm -hmm. uh, with the help of FDNY and NYPD. Okay, thank you. Sure. Uh, you know, I'm going to stop calling you Honorable Weinstein because... I don't want to date myself, but it reminds me of old Charlie Chan movies where he used to have his honorable first son, you know. <laughs> so, uh, Ken, it's all yours. Let's, let's compromise it. Honorable Ken. How about okay, that? Yeah. Right. The, the informal, the informal yeah. honorific. I like it. That's my first time in front of the panel. No, it's, 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 it's the, the tag. Um, Chief, I just wanted to follow up on Jim's question about the intelligence sharing with federal sure. partners, and um, I was very happy to hear your comments about the strength of the relationship with the with the FBI. Um, obviously, for you, in terms of 
sort of knowing what you need to brace for, what you need to be prepared for, some of the most important intelligence is collected overseas, where yes. our adversaries, whether they're you know, state-sponsored um, or you know, some sort of terrorist group, what they have underway, what intelligence uh, our overseas collectors are, are finding about you know, what, what the North Korean program is uh, by Afghanistan. Do you feel like you've got um, a good open channel into that intelligence? Um, uh, that's that's yeah. always been a challenge, sort of. Yeah. The, the local FBI relationship is one that's sort of, it's, you know, obviously it's been fraught at times, but it's, it's a national relationship. It's harder to make the step to yeah. the CIA, for example. So from my position, I deal more with the local stuff. Um, the Intelligence Bureau has uh, contact with foreign entities all over, all over the globe. And they also have the guys embedded in the, in, into the, uh, their shops. So I think uh, in New York, we probably have a luxury of doing it better than some of the other cities. So I think uh, the lines of communication are pretty well. Good. Okay, good to hear. Can I just add a plug for FBI? We, I have gotten a call from them when they're, they have concerns here as well. So the health department and probably MTA as well has great relationships with them, um, and I have them on my speed dial. Yeah, I concur. We've regularly trained with them. They've trained on our facility, and, and we've trained with them in, in exercises as well. Yeah, I would just add that, that uh, foreign entities visit us frequently, and those relationships are forged, mm -hmm. and uh, it happens every week. Uh, we have a, a few minutes, and then we'll take a brief break and come back to uh, at 11.30. Any questions from the ex-officios? Um, just one. Thank you for your presentations and having lived here now 30 years. Um, I always feel so safe whenever I come back to New York. So thanks for everything you're doing. Um, one thing that didn't seem to come up is the incoming passengers internationally um, every day, which is quite a large number here. And um, so maybe if you can talk about your kind of coordination with uh, DHS or CBP about we certainly know who's on those planes before they arrive. Are you getting morning briefings about who's coming in? What risks might be? Uh, baggage handling seems to have changed now when I come in. They don't seem to check you on your way out anymore. Maybe that's being done behind the scenes. Are you feeling good about that relationship with um, Customs and Border? From a law enforcement perspective? Or just your the threats yeah, coming the port, in? Uh, yeah, the Port awareness. Authority in New York, New Jersey has investigative bodies at the airport. And I know they work with customs uh, on a daily basis. Um, from our perspective, we are, and we actually have a group that's out at JFK today meeting with CBP. Um, and we had a plane, if folks remember, in September that came in where they were from the Middle East, we were concerned about coronavirus. Um, and there was a really robust joint response between the health department, um, fire department EMS, uh, NYPD, CBP, CDC quarantine station. So. We all are working um, in, from the disease perspective. When something is curious, we get uh, rapid notification. So I, I'm, I'm sorry, how do, you, how do you know that? In other words, this is a really important point because if we're worried about the spread of an infectious disease, in this case from outside the US, how, how do what, what's the disease intelligence system that uh, enables you to say this, is, this person or this flight is a problem? So um, in September, the issue was there was over 100 
passengers that were complaining of symptoms that were concerning. So that was easy. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the other things to remember, yes, we have BioWatch and hoping to have, you know, better detection systems in the future, but we have lots of disease surveillance systems and syndromic surveillance systems that are the health department is looking at all the time. Um, and we also rely on astute clinicians. That's how we identified West Nile virus in 1999. And that may be where it comes from. So there's lots of different feelers out there. Uh, yeah, from our perspective, I, I, we don't, we're not concerned with the people coming in. We, we don't touch that. But as far as disease surveillance, um, on a daily basis, we do review our frontline employees' sick records. And they do call in with an excuse. And we look for uh, influ influenza-like illness. And we chart that to make sure that it's in, in line with you know, what the Department of Health is reporting with normal flu. And if that varies as well at all, at all we can report that to the Department of Health. So, yeah, yeah, thank you also for your, your excellent testimony. And it was also veterinarians on the front line in 1999, those astute veterinarians. And also thank you for your call out to veterinarians and the importance of animal health and vector control. Um, but Beth, your testimony, I think, was very, very frank, and I really appreciate that. The panel really appreciates your, your frankness and, and openness in your testimony. And, you know, I think, um, you know, some of the gaps that you um, revealed in your testimony, actually, I think we need to turn into a, a roadmap. They're really a roadmap if we are going to do something as a Manhattan Project for biodefense. So maybe a question here, perhaps for all of you is um, if we are successful in, in making recommendations and getting a real Manhattan Project for Biodefense launched, what do you see as the single most rec important recommendations that the Blue Ribbon Panel can make of how the federal government could make your job easier and you have the most important job on the front line? I mean, from my perspective, the most important part is increased, sustained, stable funding. Uh, we can't do any of this without the right funds. And when the threat goes away or the disease goes away, everyone seems to forget, right? And public health um, doesn't usually have uniforms and people don't really know what we do. And what we do is so diverse that you don't really understand what it is until there's a really big problem. And so um, I, I think federal funding is the most critical need that we have. Um, I just, just to stay in the law enforcement lane, I, I would say, you know, two things. Uh, number one is that real-time detection capability. You know, uh, we, we have it for RAD. You know, we, we need it for this. It's just, it's just uh, when it comes to shutting down, uh, you know, a subway system, you, that real-time actionable equipment can save a lot of aggravation and problems. And, you know, the federal funding is great. We have training programs that run, uh, we, and we benefit from uh, a lot of the federal funding for the PPE. We just redid some of the equipment for the offices, 1,800 offices, and we, uh, with the times change, you know, the equipment gets better, and uh, we appreciate the funding for that, and uh, continue with that, please. Yeah, I'll, I'll second the chief on um, the quick response. Uh, our recommendation is to develop an autonomous, high-confidence biological identifier that's cost-effective, ruggedized in our system. Our system is a bit harsh on instruments, and able to detect novel threats, not just the list that is out there now. And also with that, defect, develop cost-effective, low-regret re response options for these threats. I mean, that's super important. And en enable a clear mechanism for system or uh, for alerting the stakeholders to these imminent, imminent threats. 
Um, if we can respond right away, there's a lot of stuff we could do to, to minimize the spread, minimize the exposure. And after the fact, after everyone's out of the subway system, we might not be able to open for a long time if it's the right thing or the wrong thing. I think that's just one more piece we need to think about. And we've done a lot of this in New York City, is thinking about how do we clean up and recover in a reasonable time? Um, so remediation and recovery, how we're going to do that, especially if this an event spans more than one jurisdiction. New York City alone would be tough, but the number of contractors and materials needed to clean up after, for example, a wide area, wide area anthrax um, is pretty substantial and costly. Thank you. Uh, thanks to uh, the three of you. First, for your service. Also, you've been very helpful to us, you're very impressive. I think we have a sense of what we can do through a Manhattan Project if we can successfully advocate it to make your job uh, uh, easier. Um, you know, I thought, uh, Commissioner Beth, you said something really <laughs> all of us should remember, which is maybe obvious. Uh, New York City is the business and entertainment capital of the world. Media, let's say media capital. Growingly, uh, growing a, a high-tech factor too, but what happens here really does affect what happens. Uh, it, it becomes a national event, national consequences, and in many ways global. So um, I'm beginning to sound like Chuck Schumer now. Uh, <laughs> that, that, I've heard that speech several times before he asked for a special funding for New York City. <laughs> but anyway, it's a pretty good case that he makes, and uh, we'll do our best to uh, carry that on. Thank you very much. We're, we're going to take a 10-minute break. Thank you. We'll be back at 11.30. Thank you.
Thanks for having me. All right, let's get back right. to work. We're ready for the next panel. Can I ask everybody? It's nice that you all know each other, <laughs> but we're about to get started. Dr. Cadillac, good to see you. Uh, thanks very much. That's pretty timely as uh, groups go. Um, it's a, a pleasure to welcome the next panel. Uh, Dr. Cadillac, um, I may have said this to you once before, but it, you know, repetition never hurts. Uh, I learned, somebody said to me early on in my time in the Senate that if somebody in Washington says something good about you when you're not in the room, they really mean it. <laughs> so we said some good things about you, well, thank you sir. when you were not in the room earlier on because this uh, whole panel really was uh, your conception. And uh, I hope you feel good about what we've been able to do. Uh, we're very uh, grateful that you're here uh, in a way you stepped in to fill a, a gap that uh, unfortunately somebody else couldn't be here. But honestly, we thank you for all your work over the years on this problem and uh, we'll, we'll be glad to uh, hear you now, and uh, then go on to uh, Dr. Tahan. Well, Senator, thank you very much, Representative Greenwood, uh, Honorable Weinstein, and obviously Dr. <laughs> George. It's great to be back, I guess, if anything, but I think the most important thing is to send the regrets of Rick Bright, who sincerely wanted to be here and would have been a better person, I think, to talk about some of the details. So he's prepped me, and his people has prepped me, so I hopefully I'll be able to convey what will be useful to your endeavor which we highly endorse in the sense of saying, uh, it's now either to go big or go home on this issue. Quite frankly, uh, there's been a lot of good work, a lot of good progress that's been made since BioShield was enacted back in 2004, since the original PAPA was enacted 2006, but I think it's time for a frame shift because the world has changed dramatically. And I think the fact of the matter is, is we'll get into some of the particulars uh, that uh, it's gonna take some dramatic action to get us where we need to be. Uh, we're on the precipice of some very bad things as it relates to the Ebola outbreak in DRC. Obviously, that's not the only issue we have to worry about. Uh, the concerns around 8, 7, and 9, swine flu in China are things that should worry everyone. So, uh, and that, that goes to the theme, I think, of One Health, since I saw Dr. Carlin here just a few minutes ago. Uh, but my intent here is to kind of talk a little bit about, hopefully, what we've been doing that I think should contribute to your bigger idea, uh, which is uh, very important, uh, and that is the idea of how do you define the risks across a domain that, quite frankly, is ever-changing. I talked a little bit about pandemic influenza and emerging infectious diseases, but clearly there's an issue around antimicrobial resistance, which really represents the whole idea that we have two uh, challenges and an opportunity at the same moment. We have the uh, challenges of antimicrobial resistance on one hand, and then we have the ad advances in biotechnology that allow us to maybe address the opportunities to look at a, a spectrum of new antimicrobial products for both bacterial, viral, and obviously fungal uh, challenges. Because we're seeing in our everyday life that these things are emerging as significant issues that have to be addressed in our routine public health uh, endeavors much less the extraordinary events that would happen with some kind of epidemic or, or, or 
potentially a deliberate event. And then we can't ignore the issues of advanced chemical threats. I think the events in Salisbury, uh, uh, London, or pardon me, in the United Kingdom, and, and clearly what we're experiencing with the opioid crisis here with the fentanyls and the fentanyl derivatives represent not only in a, a weapon of mass destruction that is distributed across America today, killing more people than anything in this country today, when you consider car accidents or any other kind of circumstances, and killing young, capable people that otherwise are, are hooked on these terrible drugs, that these things can also be used as weapons. And I think that is an emerging issue as it relates to our uh, uh, thinking with our Department of Homeland Security and defense colleagues to say, uh, if, if one of these packages with a kilogram of fentanyl were used in a different fashion rather than distributed in a, in a drug supply were we to be detonated, that could have huge uh, impacts. And then there's this specter of synthetic biology that quite frankly is still kind of like the boogeyman in the room, but I think quite frankly really represents a compilation of the things above, that the, the techniques and tools that are available today can certainly be used to basically enhance agents that we have traditionally thought about them in maybe a two-dimensional way, but now could actually express toxins, chemical synthetics that could be uh, really challenging for us. And, and that's a maybe a 10-year problem, but we need to start today in developing the capabilities to address that. To kind of give you a think about how we're doing this uh, practically is that we see these as kind of bounded by this larger synthetic biology piece, which is to, to date really ill-defined, and we're trying to evaluate what are the capabilities we need to address that long-term. Things like advanced diagnostics, rapid sequencing, things that would give us better confidence to understand what's out there. A lot of bioinformatics. Uh, we're in the midst of signing a large uh, um, MOU with the Department of Energy, not because we need energy, but more importantly, we need the computational powers of the national laboratories to help us manage what are huge databases that will be needed to address this problem. So you can see that we've kind of looked at these as different buckets, but they're connected. The reason why they're connected is because there are certain requirements or capabilities we need to develop to basically meet the challenges that we have right before us and certainly in the five and 10 year horizon. And that is speed of response. We need this rapid identification of pathogens and agents. We need a rapid development of diagnostics. We need to be able to identify and develop countermeasures to address a wide range of potential threat agents as I define them, pandemic potential, emerging diseases. Just remember, emerging diseases are the next potential <coughs> bioterrorist threat. Why? Because they're a product of mother nature. Man does not, or animal, does not have natural immunity to these things, and they could be potentially used in a way that, quite frankly, worries me to death about what's going on in DRC today is because you have this convergence of not only this natural event, but a lot of unnatural conflict activities and groups that probably would like to export their terror outside that domain. Then there's the issue of scale of response. How can we rapidly manufacture, process, finish, and fill these products? Because while we can address one part of the challenge today, we have to address the full spectrum or end-to-end -end approach to this. And then it's how do you basically secure domestic production? We have gone through one iteration of learning through our last efforts in terms of developing pandemic 
influenza capacity domestically have been successful on one hand, successful to develop enlarge our domestic manufacturing capabilities, but are still addicted to eggs, I hate to say, uh, in the sense of that, quite frankly, even though that we've uh, funded and resulted in the, you know, the, the FDA re regulatory approval of a cell culture-based flu vaccine, and by the way, a recombinant flu vaccine, that production capacity is very limited. And even though it increases our speed of response, it still doesn't get us where we need to be. And so we need to secure that because, quite frankly, their flight of these activities to overseas manufacturing locations, I'm sure Representative Greenwood can talk about some of these things firsthand, is that that's been kind of flying off the shelf, so to speak, and now we're still in a position where we're dependent on eggs and we're trying to work desperately to make sure that we can expand not only what we have today, but look at future technologies that can increase our speed. And then the last thing is, it's, not, it's great to have a countermeasure, but unless you can administer it, and then administer it in a way that's timely to the people who need it when they need it, and basically have the people receive that countermeasure, because there's a lot of anti-vaccination -vax theories, you know, beliefs around here, that those are still major impediments, even if we had everything we needed. So when you think about this Manhattan Project, it, it's got to be big, it's got to be comprehensive, it's got to be looking at all these pieces, I would think, and our team believes. Just a few things on pandemic influenza. We talked about domestic capacity, novel therapeutics, in-home diagnostics, and personal diagnostics. This idea that we need to move to a universal flu vaccine. Tony Fauci's a better, uh, I think, ambassador on that. I know someone from NIH is here to talk about it. But that's a 10-year endeavor as well. There is no silver bullet, but there is an approach, and I think he's developed one that with time and resources, we can get there. But in, in lieu of that, in the, you know, in the near term, we can do a lot better in terms of the efficacy of our vaccines, the availability of some of our new technologies, cell culture and recombinant, that will work better than eggs, quite frankly. And that's where we're looking to do in the near term. Uh, the emerging infectious disease uh, issue. And, and the thing I, I wanted to just highlight really quickly here is that each one of these buckets requires a different approach as it relates to the commercial viability or the market sustainability of one of these capabilities. It's clearly with influenza, we have the benefit of a seasonal flu uh, market. When you talk about emerging infectious diseases, you're talking about a very limited commercial market. And so Merck has been gracious as has um, uh, Johnson & Johnson to make available these products uh, that, quite frankly, don't make them a lot of money. In fact, cost them a lot of money in opportunity costs. But they've been good soldiers and good as citizens to basically make these things available and to do that. But we really do need to focus on how do we do this uh, going forward. Some of these are predictable events, like SARS and MERS. Some of them are not, like Ebola-like events. But I think the key thing here is uh, we do really need to make a more concerted effort on this. Antimicrobial resistance, you would think there's a commercial viable market on this, but that's not the case. I will commend to you an article that was published in New England Journal, and I'll leave a copy of this with your team, that basically talks specifically about that there isn't a very good commercial market and model for this. We've just had one of our uh, companies that we invested $200 million into who has gone bankrupt and the sale of their IP and proprietary licensure went, went to an international uh, personalities or entities for $18 million. 
And so this is a crisis of a first order because we have several other companies in the pipeline who will probably end up on the same with the same fate. And that becomes a critical thing, and we're trying to move on that very aggressively, but it's going to take more than just us to move on this. It's going to take Excuse Congress me, Bob. Why is, why is that happening? Um, basically because the commercial revenue that is created by some of these products is not sufficient to basically sustain them over time. And so the New England Journal market, um, New England Journal article basically talks about, in fact, if it's a gram-positive organism or gram-negative organism, you could look at it, and it has a very nice chart there that will identify how much money per year you can make. And when you think about a drug that costs $700 million or a billion dollars to bring to market, and you're only return, getting a return of $10 million or $20 million a year in commercial revenue, that is not a sustainable market. And I would leave it to the economists to define that. But I think uh, it makes a very persuasive case that we got to do something ra radically different in this area. And then the issue of advanced chemical threats, limited commercial market. Obviously, with the opioid crisis, there is a commercial market for these things. When you think about fourth generation ag agents, which are you know, variants of organophosphates that are not covered by the Chemical Weapons Convention. Those are things that are going to be in the defense national security realm primarily. But as we witnessed in, in, uh, in Britain, these things can happen on our shores, could happen on our streets, and we have to be prepared. A place like New York City is a perfect example of why they worry about these things appropriately. So why is BARDA a good thing? Well, they're, they got the right stuff. I would just suggest to you that they've had 44 uh, product uh, approvals by FDA for a range of products that range from CBRN to pandemic influenza, devices, vaccines, therapeutics. They know how to do it. I can tell you what the secret sauce is here besides money, is basically they hire a group of people who have been successful in their lives, professional lives, and now willing to dedicate their post-making money time to basically helping the government develop countermeasures for public health and national security products. And so um, you could fit a bunch of them in a room like this, probably 50 or 60 people, but uh, Barter hires these folks. They do it uh, probably a dime on the dollar, and they do it because they believe it's the right thing to do, and they have the expertise to help us guide, guide through the regulatory process, doing those clinical studies that are essential to get to the finish line, and they've done it 44 times. That's pretty good in a 12- or 13-year history of that organization. And so I would suggest to you that there is a model out there that BART has created. It's going to have to be differentiated as it relates to the products that are being developed to be more attuned to that. But that's really the essence of this. The other piece of this is, and it gets to your question, I think, of how can we work better across government. We've, we're working to integrate our portfolios with DOD to make them a co-chair of the Public Health Emergency Medical Countermeasure Enterprise, <laughs> FEMSI. But it's the whole notion that we can do things better when we work together. And there is pattern of this already. ZMAP, the, the, the Merck vaccine, were all products of the DOD early pipeline that were transferred to BARDA that basically moved them forward. And so I think there is a process here that is being expanded beyond these onesies and twosies that were done under the, the situation of an emergency, which was in 2014, that we can routinize to basically do it across a domain to look at these kinds of products. It doesn't mean that DOD is going to make pandemic influenza products. They don't have to because we got maybe that covered. But certainly there's some things that we can do together in the CBRN domain. Certainly when you looked at these advanced threats, 
and advanced capabilities that would suit both our defense needs and our homeland public health security needs as well. And so we're looking at the whole range of activities. It takes time, nothing happens fast, unfortunately. But I think the thing is we're going there in a pace that is necessary. Despite all the successes, and you can look at the wheel of fortune here from BARDA, is that while we've got a few greens, we've got a lot of yellows, a few oranges, and a lot of reds. And the point here is a lot of this is resource constraint. We believe, based on what we've done in terms of analysis, that to achieve what you're defining, a Manhattan Project, you'd probably have to invest between two and three billion dollars above what we're doing today for the next 10 years. That's a rough order magnitude of 20 to 30 billion dollars over the next 10 years to do the advanced development and procurement that would be necessary to do this. Is that a number for BARDA particularly? Or That's for, I think, generally for the, for the U.S. government. I think the pandemic number, which represents of all of HHS, right. NIH for the universal vaccine is included in that figure. Uh, you know, I think the, that's just kind of a, I would say a swag, a scientific wild ass guess, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is, which is probably a reasonable guesstimate. You know, we talked about the aircraft carrier, but it's a little bit an aircraft carrier plus the airplanes to do that. It takes us about 10 years to build an aircraft carrier. That's about what we probably need to build a Manhattan Project of this sort, of this nature, covering those domains that have been identified. Um, the intent here is though, first of all, like the Manhattan Project, and, and we believe you can move at the speed of science, which is the technology and the regulatory clinical studies that are needed that can do this, and we can do this pretty well, we believe. And it has to reflect the, the full scope of the risks to the country that are not really only represented by that of terrorism, but natural as well as deliberate state actors today. The world is a very different place than it was in 2006 or 2005 when Asper or BioShield were created. Uh, one area that needs further maturity is on the One Health piece and the role of USDA. We've made them a partner, but they're not fully integrated in that portfolio. The importance of zoonotic diseases, I don't need to tell you about because you're more than well-versed in that area. But the, the intent here, though, I think is that this is not going to happen alone. It's going to take a whole-of-government approach, and it's going to take a real active partnership. I'm grateful that Monique Mansour is going to be talking a little bit later on some of that because I think that's an area that too needs bolstering as we move forward. But the fundamental issue here is we gotta develop models, economic models that fit the appropriate uh, bucket, if you will, of countermeasures or things we need, and then have the resources, the monies to do this because uh, it's, there's no free lunch here. You know, there is, you know, we have been successful in basically doing uh, this with some companies which have no commercial market and we've shown a sustainable model, though we're, we have fits and starts for that in terms of some of our countermeasures already on the shelf, if you want to call it. But the idea of doing that for things like antimicrobial uh, products, that's a different model. It's a different model for chemical products. It's a different model for emerging disease products and we have to be uh, aware enough to basically develop those models and effectively work with our partners in the, in the private sector to do this over the long term. Because this is not a fire and forget kind of activity. Um, and if we want an enterprise to do this and build a bioeconomy, which, which will benefit other parts of our 
uh, country and our industries and our sectors like agriculture and health and otherwise, it's really important to get this part of it right. The last thing I will say, and it's the first thing that's on my list here is, like the Manhattan Project, it's gotta be a secure process. We know that there are people who are very interested in this for not only the national security benefit that they would get to circumvent our defenses, but also for the benefit that they would get for the commercial proprietary information. And if we don't kind of figure out how to manage that information appropriately, uh, what we're doing is basically spending money and knowing that somebody's stealing it, not the money, but the, the outcome, the result of that effort in a way that basically would not be a benefit to our country. So we talked about the collaborations. I think the key thing here is we're building on HHS and DOD. We need to make USDA a full partner. That's, that's an incremental process, unfortunately, for us. But I think what we've done is we can do this. We can do it better. We'll do it a lot better with fully resourced. Uh, we'll do it a lot better if we can um, basically work more effectively with our private sector partners, which goes back to the idea of being fully re resourced. Nobody wants to enter into a dance or an engagement that results in the idea that we leave them at the altar. And the US government, unfortunately, has done that historically in some of these cases. Uh, witness what happened with the Ebola crisis. When the Ebola crisis waned, we just kind of said, well, we don't need it anymore. And yet, that left companies, big companies and small companies, basically holding the bag on what do they do with these products. And they're not fully developed, they're not fully approved and yet um, it's on them to basically raise the revenue and investment to basically get it to the finish, finish line. And so I'll stop there. Well done, not surprisingly. A lot of questions, we'll be back to you. Colonel Dr. Deirdre Tehan uh, comes to us, uh, I'm grateful to say, as the commander of the Army Institute of Research, Medical Research and Material Command uh, at Walter Reed. Thank you very much. Thank you, and thank you for the panel for inviting us. On behalf of Major General Hokum, who is the executive agent for the Department of Defense Bio-Risk uh, Bio Program and my commanding general at the Medical Research and Development Command, uh, which is part of the new Army Futures Command, thank you for your invitation. Um, it's an honor to be here today to talk about how Army medical research programs, whose mission is to advance science to protect the warfighter, also can support biopreparedness from a research perspective that leverages the joint interagency, intergovernmental, and multinational approach. The U.S. Army Medical Research and Development Command, also known as MRDC, is Army's medical material developer, responsible for advancing science to bring solutions the Army needs to allow soldiers to remain ready and lethal on the battlefield. Three of MRDC's six laboratories include biopreparedness or infectious disease research within their mandates to address both naturally occurring and man-made threats. MRDC is part of a larger Department of Defense enterprise that conducts biodefense for the Department of Defense interests in which is fully engaged in implementing the National Biodefense Strategy. And I'm honored to be able to tell you just a little bit about my role in that at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, also known as RARE, is the Department of Defense's largest biomedical research facility, and we really kind of build biopreparedness while we fight natural occurring um, endemic and emerging infectious diseases. And I'm gonna hopefully show a different light on this more than just the countermeasure development. Our laboratories work closely with academia, industry, government agencies um, to be able to get after this. As he said earlier, we typically underwrite risk early on um, so that there could be an economic model um, that academic and I mean, industry can take it forward. 
Although I represent Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, I will also highlight some of my sister lab's accomplishments, um, both the, the Research uh, uh, Institute of Infectious Disease, also known as RID, and the Institute of Clinical, Def uh, Clinical Def Chemical Defense, sorry, um, ICD. What I'd like to do is in the first half kind of just talk a little bit about our capabilities and what we can bring to the fight. Um, believe it or not, right now, uh, just Walter Reed alone, not MRDC total, we have 340 academic and industry partners to allow us to keep this mission. So I want to kind of talk about what we bring to that fight in case others want to partner with us. And the second one, show examples, specifically Zika, Ebola, um, our efforts in West Africa, um, and MERS to kind of highlight how that can come together. So what I'd like to everyone to realize is that every year hostility and tensions break around the world, requiring us to send your neighbors and our countrymen to approximately 140 countries annually. In these countries, those soldiers not only face the enemy, but the threat of disease. Our product development mission and research platform serve to protect the Department of Defense personnel from these infectious disease by leveraging the national defense strategy, the national military strategy, which is also nested in the president's national security strategy, by operating a global research network to detect and mitigate outbreaks to contain the spread of disease. As I will discuss, the research done by MRDC also supports the new 2018 National Biodefense Strategy, which we appreciate the panel's input for getting us there which really emphasizes the concept that infectious disease do not respect borders and recognizing that infectious disease threat anywhere is a disease threat everywhere in today's economy. And stipulating that the United States government will work with partners abroad to address these infectious disease threats. What you might not know is that although Walter Reed was founded in 1893, we've been really expeditionary in our, our mission since that time, studying disease threats, and we currently are in 26 locations um, currently. These are strategically placed locations um, in which our network is built off of to really be able to go where the diseases are instead of the diseases coming here to the states. And we have been in Thailand now for almost 60 years. This is our 50th celebration of our year in Kenya. Um, and almost all of our most junior locations are hitting 15 years as we join some of those countries in the fight against HIV and AIDS. As seen in this map, some say the sun never sets on Army medicine research. As these locations, what we do is work with the mill-to-mill -mill health engagements to boost biopreparedness by strengthening partner country capacity to prevent, detect, and respond. Real-time research and partner health systems provide a return on investment to us because it provides early warning of surveillance and samples to categorize these evolving pathogens to make effective and timely countermeasures. When we normally think about preventing and to, uh, prevention, we usually kind of think about vaccines. And what I really like to do is just kind of, this slide I'm a little proud of because really what it shows is that about half of all the um, current vaccines on the market in the United States has either been discovered, designed, or developed by Walter Reed, MRDC, and our academic and industry partners. If I take this another step, almost 100% of all FDA-approved drugs to fight malaria were developed by RARE and our academic and industry partners with MRDC. And I highlight that to actually highlight what was said previously, is that when there isn't a, a market for this, the government really has to step in and fill that void, and, and we have the honor of doing that. Could I just interrupt you? What's the difference between the, the, the blue and the green in this? Uh, the blue ones are available to everyone. The green ones are military-specific, and that they aren't um, 
uh, used outside of the military at this time. RARES, um, as a DOD research lab, is able to assist with any step of this research and development process. Oftentimes, we underwrite the risk early in development process by transitioning products then to our academic and industry partners. What's really exciting about this is that, and what might, most people don't understand, is we did these works out in other countries, right? And in those countries, they didn't really have a lab network or a facility to do these clinical trials. Um, so one of the examples I'd like to talk about is Liberia. When we arrived to Liberia, the labs didn't even have running water. So we helped develop the infrastructure in the extensive clinical and laboratory training, and now those sites are able to not only do clinical trials, but they're able to actually be there to diagnose and be an early warning of, of emerging infectious diseases. These labs are now starting to become College of American Pathologists um, certified, and some of them have now been certified for up to 15 years. And what's really great is how this has evolved. So in Uganda, we started with the first CAP-certified lab. Because of our ability to coach, teach, and mentor, they now have up to six CAP-certified labs in Uganda to help with their biopreparedness. And so although we are there to make vaccines, the byproduct is clear. The other thing, a part of that prevention is the training of the healthcare workers. And so in, I'll use Nigeria as an example here. We partnered with DITRA, the Defense Threat Reduction Agency, and CDC, and the Nigerian CDC to really figure out how to build up that network. Um, and the first steps included training infectious and prevention control. Um, and now at this point, we have about 400 folks partnered with us to really kind of improve that training and biopreparedness. The next piece is detect. And although we kind of think of detection um, as we talked about in the last panel with our, our uh, community um, and environmental protection detection, part of that is that the lab work can also detect that. And so the infrastructure to diagnose um, febrile illnesses has really been a byproduct also of the um, vaccine work. But what I don't know if everyone's aware of, the Defense Health Agency's Global Emerging Infectious Surveillance and Response System, also known as GEIS, really creates a worldwide network of surveillance that allows us to understand the threats that we send our countrymen to uh, um, every year. And that is really robust set of surveillance programs that when put in place with the Department of State and other people during surveillance provide us the early warning um, signs that we need. Now, one of the things that I like to highlight is that um, most people won't think of biopreparedness when they think of the um, PEPFAR program. But in the last 15 plus years, the Department of Defense has, has partnered with the Department of State on the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, also known as PEPFAR. The success of this program has been able to improve stability in these regions. Many of you might not know that in 2015, a bipartisan policy center study demonstrated political instability and violence fell by 40% in those countries that partnered with the United States on PEPFAR. And the strength of the rule of law improved by 31%. We often say our mission is soldier health, world health, but in a lot of these countries, that world health, when you fight infectious disease, can lead to world peace. Um, but the part of that that matters for biopreparedness is not just the decrease of threat of, uh, of um, bad actors, but it actually is providing biopreparedness um, foundations. So as we've put 340,000 Africans, at, for at least for the DOD's role, um, on these antiretroviral um, therapies, what we've done is built trust in these communities. And as you look in Uganda, the biggest issue, I mean DRC, is the lack of trust, right? And so the trust in these communities, as we've done HIV and AIDS research at the highest bioethical rigor, has built that. 
The other piece of it is that we have these community advisory boards which have to follow the good participatory practices. So we're out in these communities um, where these high-risk uh, um, countries are building a relationship with them that will also pay dividends if there is an outbreak. Additionally, these local partners have to learn how to do contact tracing. And as they learn how to do contact tracing for HIV and AIDS, that can actually be applied um, when there is an outbreak. So now what I'd like to do is transition to a couple good examples. So the Joint West African Research Group, also known as JWORG, was developed as a resilient, is a resilient network of laboratories and clinics capable to anticipate and respond to disease outbreaks across a wide footprint founded in the aftermath of the West African Ebola vi um, virus crisis. And the goal is to actually be able to prevent a second outbreak. It really has expanded the, expanded the clinical and laboratory capacity at each of these partner locations. And the host partner health professionals really now are conducting surveillance of patients presenting with febrile illness at clinics and working their cases all the way through laboratory, clinical, and molecular diagnostic testing. What JWORG has demonstrated is the ability for them to be able to prevent and detect infectious disease on their own and provide early detection of cases emerging from their population so that we can alert the proper authorities. The next example I like to t go to is MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. It's a cousin of obviously SARS, and it's a growing global concern due its high fatality rate of nearly 40%. Given global deployments to the Middle East and South Korea where large outbreaks have occurred, coupled with the close living quarters that happens in military um, personnel, the increase of risk of uh, MERS exists. There are currently no approved vaccines or specific treatment for MERS, and so RARE has initiated and has now completed the first in human and still only phase one trial of MERS vaccine candidates for human use. This study was conducted with our clinical trial network. We actually have um, a, a clinical trial network across the 26 locations that we are worldwide. Um, and this was done with our industry partners. Um, although before they have tested a MERS vaccine in camels, um, not sure that's really helpful for us, but it is where we, they believe the disease reservoir comes from. Um, this was the first time to be able to take it outside of camels. And the exciting part goes back to the morning conversation is that this was a DNA vaccine candidate which allowed for the rapid design and production and response to an emerging infectious disease. So its model is nice, and it underscores the importance of being able to work at the speed of relevance. Um, right now, just if anyone's interested, we're, we're doing a second phase 1-2A uh, um, trial in South Korea and a phase 2 trial in the Middle East. Um, before I move on to Zika, I'd also like to talk a little bit about malaria. So um, in most of these countries that we're working on, malaria is the glue that brings the mill-to-mill -mill relationship together. Um, if anyone remembers the famous Douglas MacArthur quote, is, um, and he said, at any given time, and I'm paraphrasing here, is I only can have one division in the field, one is suffering malaria, and the second one is recovering from malaria, right? And so um, luckily we're doing better with our countermeasures since then, but it is still the, the threat that really brings a lot of the mill-to-mill -mill relationship together. And this is important because malaria antimicrobial resistance is growing, and it really has the ability to threaten our ability to um, end their host nations. So across Southeast Asia, our research group is known as AFRAMS, the Armed Forces Research Institute of Medical um, Science. And it was formed originally 60 years ago to fight the cholera. And since then, it's been working with the Royal Thai Army, and we're everywhere from Mongolia to the Philippines and Southeast Asia to be able to do that mission. 
the story that I think you might be interested in is really how we were able to um, use this network to get after Zika. And we're really proud of our, our Zika story, although it also pays into a lot of the comments that you brought up earlier of the, of the, the um, risk in our current system. So we started to realize that Zika might be a concern in 2013, but we really didn't have a mandate at that time to work on it. But we were able to think about it and put our subject matter expertise on it, and those early efforts really allowed us to respond when the government asked us to. When the first case of Zika entered the country in 2015, Rare was asked to lead with our collaboration partners in government, industry, and academia to move a product forward. We believe that the Japanese encephalitis vaccine that we developed in um, Thailand and licensed in 2009 might be a good backbone for this um, Zika thing, the Zika virus. What we were able to do in nine months is to take it through two trials which showed 100% efficacy within 180 days, resulting in journal articles in both nature and science, and work with an industry partner to get a CRADA to be able to take it to the next phase. This is what we believe is important to be able to have a foundation and infrastructure, a backbone to be able to do to work at the speed of relevance. What I'd like to end on um, before we open it up for question is talking a little bit about Uganda. Right now in Uganda, there's a great effort called the JMedic, which is the Joint Mobile Emerging Disease Intervention Clinical Capability. And really is a Department of Defense capability to really be able to take human clinical research trial to where the, if the Ebola crisis comes over to the Uganda side. It's set up in Fort Portal, which is on the western part of Uganda. And really what they've been able to do is really set up a, a nice infrastructure, like we talked about before, of building clinical laboratory capability, training um, people to be able to respond, and getting the government involved so that when Ebola did cross, we were able to get a MURI protocol for Ebola virus disease approved, and we're ready at this point to be able to take product development to the next level. Our sister lab, RID, um, that has also been in Uganda, has really been doing a great job since 2001 following people that either um, uh, survive Ebola in, in Marburg to be able to figure out the sequela of that as they proceed. They really have a, a nice now bank um, of, uh, to be able to track longitudinally these survivors, which has allowed us to look at monoclonal antibodies for both Ebola and Marburg virus. Our role at RARE for the last um, 11, uh, on Ebola since 2009 is that we were part of the first vaccine trial um, that is currently um, showing about 97% effectiveness um, this, uh, when applied, despite the limitations currently in the DRC. Um, and we continue to um, advance product development in this area. It's been a real honor to be able to tell our story. We can't do it without our academic and industry partners. We have a unique role in underwriting that risk early on in the process. Um, and we look forward to um, being able to uh, continue this line of research to support um, biopreparedness across medical research and development command. Thanks. <clears throat> Thanks very much, Doctor. Uh, as often happened in my time in the Senate, the, the military is doing a lot more than I understood uh, in this area, uh, and I appreciate it very much. And it has implications, obviously, beyond, as you've said, beyond the military, both for global populations and uh, hopefully for here at home. We, we focused a lot of attention, as you heard in the, the last panel, on the uh, BioWatch system, the sort of early warning system. And uh, we, we believe it's uh, inadequate and, and outdated. 
Um, we also have the impression that the Department of Defense actually has better systems for early detection of a biological threat to protect our troops around the world than, than the BioWatch system. Uh, I know it's maybe an awkward question, but um, is, are, is our uh, impression correct? Well, sir, that would be outside of the scope of what we do at Walter Reed. Okay. But what Thank I would you. like to echo from uh, the prior is that our threshold for these type of devices is determined when we need to go up into higher protective gear, right? So when we're out in a deployed setting, we will take a couple false positives um, to ensure we protect the force. Um, and I thought the, the panel in the last one really talked about the importance in an urban environment um, that you really need the opposite. So I do think there's differences um, in them, but that's really outside of my expertise. I apologize, but um, we're more on the, the medical side for the human more than the environment. Bob, do you have a, a reaction to that now? Uh, uh, yes, sir, What's I your, do. Yeah, um, we're obligated uh, under the reauthorization of the Pandemic All Hazard Preparedness Act to actually right. do a report on biodetection. So we've actually initially convened a group, and I think your impression is correct, that their technology development has moved well beyond what the original BioWatch program and system has done. And so uh, they're looking at it. In fact, you're probably, uh, probably owed a, a conversation with uh, Assistant Secretary McDonnell at uh, countering WMD at uh, DHS because they're looking at, in their BD21 program, how they could leverage some of those technologies that would cue uh, sooner uh, potential releases in urban environments. So uh, not to steal his thunder, but I think your impression is correct. DOD has continued what I'd say is uh, a significant investment and around that. And, and quite frankly, it, it, there's a great opportunity to leverage it. And DHS is in the process of doing some of that. Thanks for that, uh, that direct answer. Um, let me ask this. One of the uh, arguments for uh, the Manhattan Project approach, part of it obviously is, I don't want to say marketing, but it gives us a, a, a way to advocate for more, uh, with more urgency for uh, more support uh, for the response to the bio threat. But um, the second is greater collaboration. So uh, you, you were in the center of things now. You've been for a while off and on, uh, both uh, inside the government and outside. Um, how, what might a Manhattan Project for Biodefense do to better coordinate the, uh, the efforts? Uh, you, you talked about um, uh, a couple of the agencies of our government and needing to bring U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture and more, but there's also obviously academia, the private sector. What, how, it, it, should we be looking to create a new entity? Uh, what do you think? Well, sir, you know, it's an interesting question. Back when we were considering the creation of ASPR and BARDA at that time, yeah. we looked at the model of a NASA-like entity that could be focused on that. I mean, realize that was for the purpose of putting a man on a moon in 10 years, right? right. We're celebrating that 50th anniversary this year. But the question is, is are we, are we uh, kind of do that same level of effort? Um, I personally believe that these things happen incrementally uh, in terms of what our government is willing to do. I just used the example in the, in the national security space. Department of Defense was created in 1947 and really didn't and went through a series of reformations until we got to the Goldwater-Nichols Act 
1986. And so it took a while to get to that point. So we may be at that precipice to have that conversation to say, what do we need to do? Now, I would think that there is two parts to this equation, right? One is if you use the NASA model and you consider the possibility that, yes, we want to end the risk from these kinds of threats. One thing that came out of NASA was all these spin-offs for the economy and for our society that goes from computational things to Velcro to Tang. I won't use that as an example, a positive example necessarily. But it's the thing is that right now we have a bioeconomy that is being kind of considered, which is this revolutionary revolution that allows us to do chemical synthesis and biological platforms and, and biological synthesis and chemical platforms, that there's a great opportunity across our economy and across our world to really address some of the biggest problems that we're facing, whether it be food, environment, health. And so I think this NASA kind of idea could be a little bit bigger in the sense of what can we do to build a sector approach to kind of promote these kinds of things, not only for the benefit of us and humankind, but also for the prosperity of our economy, which is, you know, China's making a big play into, the, into this domain. Uh, they're doubling down in their ability to do genetic sequencing. They're doubling down in other areas. So um, when you think about the Manhattan Project, uh, and again, that was creating a bomb, obviously, uh, but, but I think there's uh, great opportunities for either spinoffs or a dedicated portion of that to look at some other things that would have some real uh, benefits uh, besides protection uh, that could be really helpful. And, and I just offer that as a thought. It's, uh, it's a great thought. I, I really like the uh, NASA uh, analogy, and it's uh, something uh, for us to think about. Also, the reference to China is important. Um, I'm, I'm not one of those who's in a panic about China, but they, they have a, a government that's very centralized and is actively involved in implementing economic plans. It's part of why... Uh, in the telecom area, for instance, 5G, I think why, they're, why they've put themselves in such a strong position. And we have to come back and find in this country what we used to call, maybe it's still the best term, um, um, public-private partnerships. I mean, we're not going to ever have a government that's going to tell the private sector what to do, but we need that kind of partnership to uh, compete and also to protect ourselves in this kind of area. Congressman Greenwood. Thank you. So, Dr. Kedlock, um, first off, thanks for using the, the issue of, um, of antimicrobials to demonstrate the, um, the problem of price controls on innovation. That's, that's my commercial for the moment. Um, <laughs> thank you also for um, your, as usual, completely brilliant and completely comprehensive description of all of the challenges we face in this arena. It kind of reminded me of the uh, Hieronymus Bosch, Dante's Inferno triptych with all of the horribles listed out there in one place. Um, <laughs> but um, so what I'd like you to do is is so, so really focus on on one of those challenges, and that is the um, the, uh, the the ideal of getting to a, a universal vaccine, uh, influenza vaccine. And this is a question I asked the first panel. I don't think you were here at that time. Um, and, and it is this it, it, in the um, in the case of the of the 
Manhattan Project, we, the, we knew that the, the Germans were on their way to getting a nuclear bomb, atomic bomb, and that we, so there was a, an immediate sense of urgency. We knew we had you know, probably X amount of months to get there. Um, the, we've heard from this morning from, from uh, NIAD and, and BARDA and academia uh, about the progress that's being made, but it was also described as incremental, and we've, we've noted that it's been uh, sort of on the horizon for a very long yes, period sir. of time. And yet it could be of uh, inestimable um, value in the case of, a, of, a, of the, the right, uh, the wrong kind of influenza. So my question I have for you is, if, if we, um, and the hypothetical I, I proposed was that we knew that we had one year uh, to be prepared for an uncharacterized uh, influenza virus, um, and, and it was, had that level of urgency, how would we reorganize um, the, the government and the private sector in order to just focus on that and try to really accelerate? Because it seems to me that there's a lot of, still a lot of siloing going on here, industry, company to company, agency to agency in the government. I think that's fair, and, and I think the key thing here is two things. Is one is you're gonna have to look at a scale, scale issue. How, where and how can you produce quantities that would be sufficient for 600 million doses because you're talking about a truly novel flu virus that's going to take two shots for every man, woman, child in this country. Uh, and then the, the other side of this is not only that part of it, but also the adjuvants that you would likely need to promote uh, immunity in, in these areas. So it is a kind of a multi-sector factorial issue, and uh, you would probably need to convene, you know, the the larger uh, manufacturers, vaccine manufacturers in the country to see about their capacity and their capabilities in this space. Obviously, uh, seasonal flu is not a big seller for a lot of folks, um, and so you're gonna have to have some kind of incentive short of you know the world ending uh, to basically have them come to the table and talk about how this is gonna be a good thing for their country, uh, for their company and their shareholders. So that's economic incentives, tax, whatever it is, the package. I think the technical issues, to your point, are a fair one, which is uh, right now we talked about eggs, we talked about cell culture, which is faster but not fast enough. We talked about recombinant, which is faster, still not fast enough, and the scale is still very limited domestically. The question is, is there another technology? And, and to speak for uh, Rick Bright here, uh, messenger RNA may be that technology that allows you to produce scale and specificity in a rapid way. I think you have to kind of look at that in terms of what would be your best bet. It may be a combination of all those, honestly. You may have to prime with one kind of vaccine and then boost with another with an adjuvant, for example. And so I think that, that it would really take some extraordinary, um, uh, not arm wrestling, but I think uh, uh, convening to bring the, the scientists, our best scientists, of people at NIAD and from academia with our companies to basically say, how do you come with a strategy to deal with this? Should we not do that? I mean, should we not, my hypothetical aside, should we not be saying we need a, a mini Manhattan Project or a mini NASA, whatever it is, to, to confront that particular issue? Because it seems to me that's the one with the um, greatest Consequence. impact, right, right. And, and increasing likelihood. Yes, sir, and, and I think the point here is, is in my 
conceptual description there, the big blue bubble of pandemic was the biggest one there, and it does represent one that from the standpoint, if you build capabilities for that, inherent to that are other capabilities that would lend themselves to emerging infectious diseases and other things of concern. So your point is well taken. And sir, to your point and the, the, what Senator Lieberman said earlier, there's two things that I, I think the, um, the Department of Defense uh, might do well, I believe we do well at. One is every three years we sit down and we have all the stakeholders come up and we come up with a priority of effort of infectious diseases and which ones should be the ones that we use our existing resources and emphasize on. So something like a Manhattan Project would allow us to really prioritize efforts with the existing resources and make sure that we have um, a concerted effort that'll get a product out there, right? Not just science to advance knowledge, but to get a solution out, uh, out there. So I think that's a benefit. And the other one that is, is really the, the conversation that he said earlier, so many of these, and use Zika as an example, we got it to, uh, through those trials in nine months. Well, then Zika went away. Right, and then the um, industry partners, right, were less interested in taking it through. Well, one of the kind of thoughts that um, definitely Ditra uh, is focused on is what platforms do we need to have ready, and have different platforms. Maybe it's four or five platforms that when something comes out, like you said, that we don't know, but we only have a one year. You then have a platform that's pre-positioned, that's already through certain regulatory requirements that you can adapt to the existing concern that, that is coming. And so having these platform-based opportunities to fight what we don't know, especially in the synthetic um, uh, world that we're entering, um, might be part of what could happen. Thank you, Colonel. You, you um, did a very nice job in describing um, the, the extent to which, geographical extent to which um, we'll read in the Army is working um, in, in various continents. Um, and doing a whole lot of uh, preventative work and, and treatment work and capacity building, and that's very impressive. To, my question is, to what extent, since all of the world benefit is benefiting and does benefit and will benefit from these things, to what extent is the rest of the developed world, our partners in Europe and Asia and elsewhere, to what extent are they making, uh, not to sound too Trumpian here, but making their fair share of, of contributions to this effort? Well, what I what I'd like to say about our enterprise approach is we partner with everybody. Um, so we um, so for example in Kenya, we're getting ready to start um, depending on what gets finally approved, either two or three Shigella vaccine trials. That is with academic and industry. Um, I would say that uh, that network is one that is not easily reproducible, um, and it's done really with a. a um, minimal investment relative to the conversation we're having today. So for example, um, although I have a thousand people across Africa right now, only about 10 of them are military, right? The rest of them is really developing the infrastructure in those countries. Um, I will say where we're at, um, there, uh, other countries invest differently. So in the countries we're at, some, um, Germany often builds hospitals. Um, and that seems to be what we see. Um, and you can go to other countries. They have different strategies of how they help um, in this fight of global health. Um, I would say that there's not many doing the, the, the legwork that we are doing. Um, but I would say overall, there's a lot of other countries in this space, but they're, they're, they're adding a different piece um, to the puzzle, sir. Thank you very much.
Sir, can I just add to, to that answer, yep. which is uh, Secretary Azar has made it a point in his um, uh, interventions with his colleagues around the globe. So I'm going to talk now about the Global Health Security Initiative, which is the G7 plus Mexico, and basically making a direct, not plea, but a direct point to them saying that in light of the Ebola event or any other event of that nature, and, and clearly some countries already understand influenza, the model they need to adopt, but making it very clear that uh, the United States is not going to be in a position to help others because we're going to be in a position, we're going to have a hard time helping ourselves. And if they want to do things, we're happy to do it with them, meaning collaborative buys for Ebola vaccine or any of our countermeasures. I've engaged in a number of conversations with some of our G7 colleagues about what they can do to buy our things at rates that would make sense and helping with having DOD would help us do that with foreign military sales programs. And so I think the thing is, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a hypothetical. We're act, actuating that, not because of any necessary thing other than the fact is the reality of what we are going to be confronted with if there were to be an a, escape of Ebola, that we're going to be hard-pressed to provide for ourselves, and everybody else better consider that what they need for themselves. Thanks very much, Jim. Ken? Thanks to both of you for your excellent testimonies. Um, and Bob, I want to commend you. Um, I think you're probably the first public speaker I've ever heard analogize to Hieronymus Bosch. Um, that's a new one. I'll have to look it up when I get home. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's culture. <laughs> uh, I've, I've, you were Dr. Death back in the day, and now that, that reminds me why. Um, <laughs> I want to. I just want to follow up with you on the uh, one of the points that I think you really zeroed in on, which I think is is worthy of our attention, is the um, the notion that look, we're asking for a big investment here, but this is an investment that doesn't just provide the protection that is what we're seeking, but their secondary, really valuable secondary benefits, and um, you know, it sort of goes back to what you and I talked about very briefly before you you took the um, you took your seat, which is. You know, you've been banging this drum for a long time. Many people have. We've been doing it for five years, and we're still sort of in that cycle where, you know, everybody gets their hair on fire about Ebola, Zika, things recede, and then people move on to the crisis du jour and just sort of hope that we don't, you know, have a 1918 again um, and just, you know, we avoid catastrophe. So what is it that's going to – unless, you know – Short of a catastrophe, kind of like 9/11 got us to build the counterterrorism apparatus. What you know, short of something comparable in this space, how are we going to get? Uh, and this is a political question: How are we going to get the federal government to push? And I think you landed on the idea that look, we have to market this as something that has broader economic and national security benefits. And you ticked off a few of them, but I think I guess I'm just saying this less by way of a question and more by way of saying that you and, and others, the more you can think about sort of how we can enumerate those benefits, and that might be something that we take back as, you know, we've, uh, and Asha, as you know, has, has talked about this in the past, but we might want to raise the profile of that part of our argument, because um, the, more, the more time passes, the more pessimistic I am that good government is going to prevail and do a conscientious job of building something for the future, absent a crisis. No, I, I just want to comment to say, yes, I, I'm a slow learner. I've been at this a long time. Mm -hmm. But I think the point here, though, is that we're, we're seeing very soon what will likely happen in the DRC as being one of those events that will probably get everybody's attention. 
And, you know, I think chance favors the prepared mind in terms of what should be able, you know, what should be capable or needed to d address that problem. Uh, but I also think that the, the economy, the economic uh, argument is very profound. Uh, it's Representative Greenwood's point that pandemic influenza, if it happened today on the scale of 1918, would probably affect our GDP by 20%. That's a big, that's a big deal. Those are trillions of dollars of impact. That's not my number, that's the Council of Economic Advisors from the White House that has yet to re relieve, release a report that I think makes a very strong case to say why pandemic preparedness makes sense. In fact, uh, there will be a major probably release of, a, of an EO on pandemic next week. But, uh, but I just think the key thing here is to understand that uh, yes, we, you know, we, we haven't coalesced all the, all the points of light to get this done, particularly around Congress and particularly around the appropriations process. Um, like I said, you could get sticker shock from a number, but the point is it's a small number when you consider the impacts that it could have. But more, more I think to your point, it certainly can change the vector of our right. economic prosperity in ways that have yet to be considered that are probably value added. And I think there's some ongoing conversations on that, but, but to your point, uh, it's not yet been all put in one package. So, Sarah, on those lines, what I think is really interesting is looking at what happened with HIV and AIDS in Africa. Because of its size, it's able to show you the economic cost of this. Um, when I was driving to Uganda, my driver said to me, he said, ma'am, I want you to look to the left and the right. I looked to the left and right. They sell furniture on the side of the street, and the streets was lined with wooden furniture. He said, before you guys came here, the streets were lined with coffins. He goes, what you have done with the United States is bringing PEPFAR to our country is that the woodworkers no longer have to make coffins, they can make furniture. And what his point of his story was beyond that was that you no longer have children being orphaned, they're in a family with parents that can work, the husband can work in, in, the, um, in a lot of these countries, the wives aren't allowed to work still, but the, there's still this a family that provides that economic stability. I think that economic case is what led to the 2015 bipartisan report, which showed the decrease in, in um, violence and political stability associated with fighting infectious disease work. So I, although we don't have all the different diseases that we can study that had the impact like HIV and AIDS had when it rolled out across Africa, I think it provides a nice case study for us to look at. Yeah, and I agree with everything both of you said. I guess I would just say, Say this. I mean, we we have been talking about all the parade of horribles that could happen, you know, from various um, bio threats, and um, and that gets us only so far doing the Paul Revere thing. Um, but I think the addition of what you talked about to our our shtick would be or more addition of look, this is going to have secondary effects. It's going to grow, you know, help develop a Silicon Valley kind of. Uh, environment, this kind of thing, which will have ripple effects throughout the economy, or also in terms of our, you know, our, our role in the world vis-a-vis -vis China um, and other, you know, potential adversaries. So I think I just, that message, not just avoiding bad stuff, but that investment dollar for dollar isn't just going to be for countermeasures that uh, sit somewhere in case something bad happens, but also is going to be developing future benefits. I just think that's a message we need to try Thanks, to Ken. We're, we're over the time now. Does, does any of the ex officios have a question or?
We're going to let everybody go to lunch. Go to lunch. <laughs> okay. Uh, thanks, uh, Dr. Cadillac, uh, Colonel Tehan. Uh, great testimony. Really helpful to us. I don't know about this Hieronymus Bosch, but I got uh, a, a, a slogan from each of you that really summarizes a lot. You said, if I'm right, soldier health, world health. And that, boy, that, says, that explains quickly what you're all about. And uh, you said, Bob, which is typical of you, and I think where our minds are now as advocates, go big or go home. Yep. And the truth is, we can't go home, <laughs> so we got to go big. Uh, now, uh, uh, Patty, you want to explain how folks can get lunch? We'll be back at 1 for Max Brooks.
Hello. Uh, welcome back. I hope you had a good lunch and it was as healthy as it should be. Uh, we're really delighted to have uh, Max Brooks uh, back with us. He's actually become kind of member of the family, the biodefense family. Uh, Max is a, a scholar, a best-selling author, and uh, he provides really historical perspective on biological warfare and uh, bioterrorism and biodefense. Uh, he also, I think, can help us address the value of um, popular culture as a tool to educate and inform the public, the government, and the private sector. We are uh, we are very proud to have partnered <laughs> with uh, Max on uh, this volume, Germ Warfare, A Very Graphic History, which I think really probably is uh, more than any single thing we've done, drawn more attention to our work than anything else, so I appreciate it. Max, welcome back, and uh, we look forward to hearing you now. Well, thank you, Senator. <clears throat> For those who are tuning in who, who don't know why I'm here. Yeah. Why uh, are you here? <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> good question. Tell where you are. You know who I am, and you remember you the are. last time, so we'll do sort of in last night's episode. Okay. The last time I was here, uh, I heard all these amazing experts. You know, we heard from the medical community, from the intelligence community, uh, from the logistics community. And as encouraging as all this was, there wasn't one person talking about public outreach, uh, which is critical in a democracy when the people are the boss uh, and the people have to know the facts. And that is what is so important because as we discussed last time, when the people are on our side, we can do anything. We don't even need, sometimes we don't even need the science. And I recalled uh, with AIDS, the plague of my generation was defeated with public outreach. We still don't have a cure. We still don't have a vaccine. And if you had run just the purely mathematical model from the 1980s, it would have looked like it was gonna destroy the world. What stopped it? And remember, we made the joke about this Amish admiral-looking guy named C. Everett Koop, who went on TV constantly and who taught the American people how to protect themselves. And he didn't just do it in dry press conferences. Uh, I encourage you all to Google Robert Townsend Partners in Crime. There's a comedian, Robert Townsend. He had a comedy show on HBO. C. Everett Koop was in a sketch with him where Robert Townsend was literally about to have sex with a woman. He goes, oh, I don't have a condom. I don't need one. And then poof, see, Everett Koop literally appeared like I Dream of Jeannie. And he said, Robert, wait a minute. When you're having sex with her, you're having sex with all her sexual partners. And then he went, and then poof, all these guys appeared next to the bed. And it was funny, and it was brave, and it told people what they needed to know. It was a great way to educate the public, and it used to be the norm. Remember, we... It sounds crazy, but the United States used to be the leader in public outreach. The Cold War, obviously World War II, but also the Depression. Uh, within a few weeks, uh, recently, my son has discovered the old movie Grapes of Wrath. And he watches it all the time now. And it's not a coincidence that after these poor Okies get kicked around and end up in this camp uh, run by the government, that the guy who runs it looks just like FDR. And John Ford literally zooms in on the sign that says Department of Agriculture. And it was a way of saying, we in the government are here to help you. And we used to be amazing at doing that. And we used to use every single medium. 
uh, not just movies. We used to do television, we used to do print, we used to do radio, and we used to do comics. The last time we talked about the fact that comics were the greatest way to educate people because unlike print, the brain doesn't have to take an extra step. In film, we have an expression, show, don't tell. Just show it. And I talked to you about how, as a comic book writer, when I would go to these Comic-Cons, uh, it would be amazing because comics are the only thing that can compete with digital media, with this, with this distraction. Kids are actually reading. Now, in the, in the interim period, we got together and we made this, and it's working. We have been to AwesomeCon down in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was there with Weinstein and with Osh, and we had a panel of regular people, not science wonks, not people in the know, just regular citizens like me, and it was packed. And I spoke for a few minutes, and then we opened the floor up to questions. And it was a huge win, because the questions were not only intelligent, they were not only massive, they also were not to me. They were to the experts. These were regular citizens talking about how to keep themselves safe, which proves the fact that the American public are not dumb, they are not lazy, and they are also not willfully ignorant. That comic book convention proves that the average American wants to learn about how to protect themselves. We need to be willing to teach them. That's why I'm here, because somehow I seem to have talked myself into the public outreach representative for the biodefense panel job. <laughs> but we have to. Actually, thought we talked you into it. I think you, I think you yeah. drafted me last time. Yeah. Uh, because we, we know what we're up against now. We're up against a society where, as the science is becoming more complex, the belief in science is going down. We are up against the anti-vaxxer movement, which is now global. We are now up against measles outbreaks. We are up against a presidential candidate, an actual presidential candidate stood on a platform recently and spoke to 23 million people as a legitimate candidate for the highest office in the land. Marianne Williamson has actually said, I believe, somebody quote me if I'm wrong, that vaccines are Orwellian. The anti-vaxxer movement has gone mainstream. Now, maybe she apologized for it. I don't know. Maybe she did. But even if she did, it doesn't matter because prominent people are speaking out against vaccines. And that is because we've lost the living memory. When I was a kid, the grandparents of my generation grew up where diseases had killed members of their family. You couldn't think of not vaccinating your children because there was a living memory of how horrible it used to be. But now, the grandparents of today are baby boomers. The grandparents of today have been vaccinated. So there isn't a gut check, there isn't an emotional memory of how dangerous this is. We need to remind people that viruses, bacteria, diseases have killed more people than all the wars in history. And all it takes is one tweak of a gene, and those plagues are going to come rushing back. And we need to prepare people with education. So when it does happen, whether it crawls out of a jungle 
or whether it comes from a homemade bio lab, that the American people understand how viruses work, how vaccines work, and are willing to help take a part in their own defense. That's why I'm here. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, so wh what do you think about the idea of a Manhattan Project for biodefense? We need a Manhattan Project for biodefense as much as we needed the real Manhattan Project in the 1940s. Yeah. You know, this is the problem with um, our national defense policy because all of our money has gone to protecting us from nuclear weapons. And it's good, we need that. However, uh, nuclear weapons depend on fissile material. And fissile material is finite. And we know where every atom of uranium is all around the world. And yet, trillions of dollars have been spent since 9-11, from invading the wrong country to why we take off our shoes at the airport. Everything is revolving around the doomsday scenario of a terrorist sneaking in a nuclear weapon to this country or a rogue state firing a nuclear weapon at the United States at the nose cone of a ballistic missile. But viruses, they're everywhere. And unlike a nuclear weapon, which detonates within a certain radius, a virus can spread. Once that bomb goes off, it's not going to keep going off. Whereas once a virus, once a germ gets out, it keeps going off, and it can spread and spread and spread, and it is everywhere. Uh, when I go camping with my son, uh, we get hantavirus warnings. Well, what if somebody were to take that warning in a different way? Oh, that's where the hantavirus is? Now I know where to collect it. There's plague warnings in California in certain desert areas for certain squirrels. Okay, what if somebody traps that? I was just at a conference at SOCOM where we had a special weapons expert talk about how the genetic codes of superbugs can be emailed around the world. So a bioterrorist here in America doesn't need to go collect a virus. A bioterrorist in their garage or basement can get the genetic code from somewhere else. So we need that. We need a comprehensive Manhattan Project and it can't just be about the science, it has to be about the outreach. We know now that the Russians are putting bots on medical websites that are trying to start arguments. The bots are on both sides. They're not just anti-vaxxer. It's to start a debate. So when the average citizen goes on these sites, they say, oh, well, I didn't realize vaccines were debatable. This is a direct attack by a foreign enemy. They are using information warfare to enhance germ warfare. So when we do this Manhattan Project, public outreach, public education has to be part of it. Uh, well said. You know, you said you made a historical comment that I think is really quite important, uh, which is generational. So when I was growing up, uh, there was a terrible fear of polio. Yes. And um, then a vaccine came along, the Salk vaccine and Sabin, and there was a tremendous sense of relief. So in some sense, I think, the public has been not having had that kind of living with the, with the uh, presence of watching people get polio or hearing stories about. So uh, to, to, as you said, to a certain extent, the, the advance of science, the success of science has numbed people a little bit. Um, and whereas we've got the, the threat of the viruses, we were 
kept quoting numbers this morning. You know, CDC says every year, on the average, 36,000 people die in America, 650,000 in the world, from seasonal influenza virus. And God forbid another uh, pandemic comes along. Incidentally, there is something, uh, and this is all a combination. People are busy, the focus of news takes their mind away from it. It's not present in their lives, but you know, the last time the, the Ebola scare emerged and the, and the media really focused on it, I found people around me, my, my friends, my relatives, people were in a panic. And it was at that point a pretty remote threat, certainly remote yes. as compared to uh, flu influenza. A anyway. Th I and, this, and this is the problem, is unfortunately in this country, uh, from a mass perception point of view, we tend to ping pong in between blind panic and blind denial. Right. And we've lived through this. We lived through this in the 1990s where we thought, we were told it was the end of history. Somehow there was gonna be no more wars, no more enemies, and we could all just invest in the internet and watch people be naked. Yay. <laughs> end of history. And then 9-11 happened and we jumped into this blind panic where we freaked out so badly we invaded the wrong country and we're still there. That is the problem. If we educate the public now, then we will avoid that blind panic. Because what we don't want is there to be a biological attack and to go back to a massive freak out like we had after 9-11. Because God forbid we make bad decisions that get even more people killed. Right. That we don't want. If we, if we reintroduce the public to the concept of disease and the concept of prevention, they will be ready to deal with it in a rational way. So as I said when I started, your uh, work has helped us do that. Do you have any ideas beyond your own areas of expertise and talent as to how um, we can better advocate for better education of the public about these diseases? Yes, I think there, there's many things that we can do uh, from the grassroots to the halls of power. Uh, from the grassroots, I think we need to reinvest in education and education in science. I think that America's science teachers on the grade school and high school level need to be taken seriously. The same way during the space race, if you were a math teacher, that was an important job because you were getting the next generation of possible future aeronautical engineers ready to combat the Soviets in space. We need to do the same thing now. Every elementary school and junior high and high school science teacher needs to make sure that they're educating their students about what it means to have a germ and what it means to prevent them. That's critical. And on the levels of power, I'm sorry, there is no substitute for both parties to confront the extremists on their side. And this is important because on one side, you have now this anti-vaxxer movement, which is in my hometown of Santa Monica, California. We're ground zero of this. And we, as moderate Democrats, need to push back when somebody calls vaccines Orwellian. We have to, publicly. No letters, no petitions. It has to be on TV, it has to be on the internet, with a face, with a name. But on the other side, and I've seen this from the 1980s, there has been this notion that government is not the solutions to our problem, government is the problem. So while Democrats need to confront the anti-vaxxers on their side. Conservatives need to confront the anti-government forces 
on their side, that look at the government as some sort of evil cabal that just wants to spend your tax money and throw it away. Those who know better need to speak up and say, that's not true. That is not true. Very well said. I haven't yet in my work on <clears throat> the biodefense panel quoted the Talmud. I, uh, but here it is. Yeah. Once some, some rabbi hundreds of years ago said, without government, people would act like fish. The big ones would eat the little ones. <laughs> in other words, you need, that doesn't argue for authoritarian government. No. It doesn't argue for uh, overreaching government, but it just says we need government to both set standards, educate, and protect people from That's exactly harm. right, because we are a government of the people. When we talk about the government, we're talking about ourselves. And in other countries, yes, you have a ruling class of people, and that's it. And they run things, and then they say to the people, you go on about your business, we're in charge. But that's not us. So if we have a problem with our government, then we need to change it, and we need to get involved, and we need to vote, we need to read the newspaper, and we need to know what's happening. So those in the know, those who understand this threat, need to make a concerted effort in every medium, public medium possible, to reach the voter, to reach the taxpayer. And just like we did during the Depression, early Cold War, and World War II, convince the American people of the basic truth that this is in their own interest. Sure, sure. Thank you. Congressman Greenwood. All right. <clears throat> so you're a communicator par excellence, writer, and producer of movies and all of the rest. And you've made a passionate case for the need to educate the public in a democracy. And of course, everyone completely agrees with that. But um, we're in the era of fake news, real news being called fake news, the polarization of the news media. Uh, confirmation bias just leading us all to decide what we want to you know, listen to that makes us comfortable so we don't have to deal with anything that's ambiguous in our lives. Um, you, all kinds of anti-scientific information out there. And <clears throat> I, I appreciate your comment that people are smarter than, you know, I think when you talked about, you know, at the comic book thing, that people are smarter than, you know, don't minimize the intelligence of folks. I used to be a real believer in that. Um, <laughs> especially when I was in political office, I would always say, oh, never underestimate the intelligence of the voters. That's because they were voting for me, which was proof of the fact that they were smart. Um, but I'm not so sure anymore. And um, the, the thing that, um, that, that occurs to me, we, people have been talking about the need to teach critical thinking for a long time, um, but it is now, more important than ever. I mean, it doesn't do us any good to teach our children to read if when they start reading things on the internet, um, they have no way of discerning its validity. Um, and so I just, um, I, I like your thoughts about how we get there because um, it has to be, I mean, it, it should be as fundamental a basic education requirement that, that undergirds everything else because otherwise, otherwise you have people out there um, in, in, unable to discern you know, truth from fiction. Honestly, I think 
it takes courage. I think it takes courage to act in, if you are a leader, if you are in a position of power, if you are in a position of authority where people look to you to lead the way, you need the courage to speak the truth even if it hurts you in the short term. You need what I call the John McCain moment. When that woman said, uh, Obama's an Arab, and John McCain said, no, 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 he's not. He's a decent and good man. We just disagree on which direction to take this country that we both love. That probably cost him the election. He could have pandered to the dark side of American populism. He could have rallied those people up and screamed Lugan press, but he didn't. He stood for what was right, and he took the hit. And we all need to do that. And then Colin Powell followed up on national television by saying, yeah, so what if he is an Arab? So what if he is a Muslim? What, a little Muslim kid right now watching TV shouldn't think that I could be president of the United States? Powell just lost a section of the American people. But he did the right thing. If everybody followed John McCain and Colin Powell and spoke truth, even at the cost of their own private, short-term self-interest, we would be exactly where we need to be as a nation. Except that the, the, the cal current calculation in politics, and we're getting a little far afield here, but current calculation in politics is if I sell, tell the truth, I'll lose the primary to someone who's even worse than I am. Right. And therefore, you need to, you need to fight back, and you need to say what's right. And right now, there is the culture of cowardice. And part of that comes from not being able to combat social media and not thinking that, well, if I do that, I will just go away. But it has to start, and it has to be rewarded. We as voters and we as listeners need to reward those people that speak truth. That means confronting the media and saying, no, no, no. This person may have just lost the election, but gained their soul, and we need to cover these people. These are the people that may not get us the ratings, but they need to be followed. So we may need two Manhattan projects. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> And a Bronx Project, Queens. Um, great comments. Thank you for, for all this. And thank you for this. And those of you who have not gotten a copy of this and read it, it's fabulous. I actually, we were at the Awesome Con together, and I read it that morning over my, with my Wheaties and uh, got to the part where the arms are being chopped off and, and tossed into a bucket and uh, <laughs> to put down my Wheaties. But it really is a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an excellent, excellent read, and it's a great um, way of getting the message out. And uh, so you've done us a real service, you've done the country a real service. But I, I want to go back to something we talked about with Bob Cadillac this morning, which is um, right up your alley, which is the, the messaging. And, you know, we've talked about this, that we need to have a Manhattan Project for biodefense, biodefense writ large. Uh, we need it in the worst way, as you pointed out. Um, while we can come up with all the good rational reasons for it, our political system, I'm talking about the federal government's role here specifically, yeah. but our political system is uh, constructed in a way that it responds to crises and catastrophes. And if there's nothing blowing up, they just look to the other you know, crisis du jour and ignore it. And that, of course, right, is right. exactly where we are. That's where we were. You know, you listed a, a few situations, counterterrorism up until 9-11, same kind of thing. So one of the, the thoughts we discussed this morning is, you know, how do we – make the point that, okay, not only do we need to invest this time, energy, resources into this effort to prevent bad stuff, but how do we get the message out that not only will it prevent bad stuff, but it will also bring all sorts of other benefits to society, to our economy, 
that the sort of the secondary effects of whatever, you know, whatever research and development that we do through the Manhattan Project will redound to the benefit of, of our economy, maybe our position, economic position vis-a-vis <coughs> -vis China, et cetera. Of how do we get that message across and get it better? That, that wasn't the point of this, yes. but how do we do that? Uh, honestly, I, I think this is the same issue that the United States military is having with the, the technical community, with the technological community, mm -hmm. because it's an issue of culture. It's an issue of validation. Uh, Silicon Valley, the reason that they're not on board with so many of these projects, which will keep us safer, is that they don't understand the military. The military doesn't understand them. And if you send a general in with his high and tight after running 10 miles in his crisp uniform and he tries to talk to these techies, they'll say the same thing that the military says about me when I speak to them. Who is this guy? Mm -hmm. I don't know him, I don't trust him, he's not one of me. And what I've said to them is stop trying to recruit <clears throat> Silicon Valley and start recruiting the recruiters. Bring someone in that is trusted from that community. Show them what you're doing and show them why it's important. So then when that person from Apple, Google, wherever, goes back and says to his friends, hey listen, you know me, you trust me. Trust me now when I tell you this is important. So when you need a specific community on board, be it biotech or just the regular writ large American population, you need to find those people who are thought leaders, who are trusted, and you bring them in and you show them why this matters. So when they go back, they say, this is why it's important. We have done this throughout history. We did this during the AIDS crisis. When public health officials were trying to close the bathhouses, it was seen as sort of some crackdown on the gay community. Mm -hmm. And it took leaders within the gay community to say, hey, no, 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 this is real. You know me, you trust me. This is important. This is why we need to do it. We're doing it with measles now, just a few miles away. They're recruiting the rabbis to come in and say, hey, 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 you know me, you trust me. Trust me when I tell you, you need to vaccinate your kid. We need to identify who are the rabbis in these communities all over the world. And they need to be spoken to, and they need to be educated. So then they can go back, and they can educate their people. That's what's so important. Instead of just shouting a message into the ether, we need to find those trusted individuals who can be validated mm -hmm. within their group. Yeah, that's an interesting point. We sort of methodically thinking about the different communities that we need to reach out and touch and then create, identify, and then sort of recruit emissaries, ambassadors to those groups and try to get them on board. Oh, yeah. We, I mean, we, you just look up here. We're, we're a government group. We're right. If, if, you go into, if you go into a regular, if you go into Santa Monica, California, and you say, well, listen, we're, we, we need to do this. And they say, well, who are you? You say, well, I work for the Bush administration. Check, please. <laughs> No, you don't do that. If you go to Santa Monica or Venice Beach, where I'm from, you go to the yoga masters. You go to those people who say, okay, everyone, we're going to have a sound bath. Um, we're going to do some hot goat yoga. And then we're going to talk about vaccinations. Those are the people who are trusted. And then people go, oh, wow, yeah, I trusted you on, on kale and healing crystals, and I'll trust you on vaccinations. <laughs> talk to. So, <laughs> okay, uh, that, was that a showstopper?
Ex-officios, we have some time. Uh, Rachel Levinson. Beyond yoga masters, yes. who else would you identify as the recruiters? Well, here's the thing. We, we need to identify who are the anti-vaxxers who are being listened to. In what world are they speaking? What do they do for a living? Because nobody's just an anti-vaxxer as a job yet, thank God. Uh, but who are they? And, and what is their community? Well, then you need to go into that community and you need to find people who do the same jobs and have the same amount of respect and who understand this and who say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Have you ever watched a child die from whooping cough and cough themselves to death? That's serious. And it's going to happen here. These are the people that we need to be reaching out to. You know, in, in my hometown of LA, uh, in the 1980s, when the local police and governments were trying to speak to gang members, anytime you bring in an LAPD officer, they're the enemy. But you bring in a former gang member who says, hey, I know. One of the greatest uh, anti-gang songs was written by a rapper named Ice-T, who was himself from that world, who has said publicly, hey, I got into rap to get out. And in his song, Colors, one of the most famous rap songs ever, in the video, he says, at the end of it, please stop, because I want you all to live. And he was the only one who could say that, uh, to use my own sci-fi nerd uh, phrase. In Star Trek VI, Captain Kirk is reaching out to the Klingons, and they say only Nixon could go to China. That's the philosophy. Only someone who has proven their bona fides can do that. So find these anti-vaxxer community sources. Who are the thought leaders in those communities? and find thought leaders who understand really what's at stake, because only they can do it. Uh, Dr. Parker. Yes, thank, thank you for the, um, those recommendations and comments. It's, they're excellent. You know, and I, I, one, I'm gonna juxtapose local public health and federal public health, and, you know, and I think at the local level, that's recognized uh, the need to do that and to reach out and find these you know, the right people in the community is much more recognized. And I would suspect that CDC, using federal public health, you know, believes that they may be doing a good job in public, you know, public service announcements and things like that. But I suspect they don't know how to really translate at the federal level how that would happen at the local level. So you have any recommendations, you know, how, how that may translate, um, at the federal level that could be more effective in helping those at the local level? <clears throat> well, uh, when we're talking about the CDC, uh, they could be funded better. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. That is a huge one. I mean, if our government really does care about protecting us, then we need to treat public health like just one other facet of national security. That needs to be in the national security budget. That's simple. And the CDC needs to be as well-funded as the Air Force. It just does. And that money will then go to public outreach officers who can go all over this country. Because a small town in rural Alabama is not going to have the same cultural concerns as Venice Beach. So you're going to need different people who speak different languages to go to different communities. The very same way in Afghanistan, uh, northern groups have nothing in common with southern groups outside of Kandahar. So we need that. We need those people, and if we can recruit people. We did this, well, I didn't do this, but it was done in the NYPD after 9-11, where 
experts were brought in and realized, wait a minute, when we're talking about public outreach to, let's say, immigrant Muslim communities, we have kids from those communities in the LA, in the uh, NYPD, but they're writing parking tickets. So take them out, change their jobs, send them back into their communities and say, hey, you know me, I grew up here. So that kind of public outreach requires a massive amount of funding and it requires specific communication with specific groups. And you mentioned the Surgeon General Coop. You know, and I think that's, you know, we, you know, we think about the, you know, that, that era and he was the nation's doctor and he yep. was very effective. Who do we have today as the nation's doctor who can do something, accomplish something that Surgeon General Coop did? Well, this is, this is why we need to look and we need to study who are people listening to. And maybe it's Dr. Oz, I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, if Dr. Oz gets this ratings, then he needs to be reached out to and he needs to be able to say, listen, measles can kill you. And by the way, if you have a child who is unvaccinated and spreads that measles to a little baby who's too young to be vaccinated, that baby could die and people would watch. So who are these thought leaders? Thank you. <clears throat> Editorially speaking, not Dr. Oz. <laughs> well, but this is, this is what I mean is, if Dr. Oz has the microphone, listen, I, I didn't want to be on his show. He, I, no, but if someone that I personally disagree with has the ability to reach people to save lives, I would reach out to them. I will do that. Winston Churchill once said, when Hitler attacked the Soviet Union, Churchill said, if the Nazis invaded hell itself, he would ally with the devil. Uh -huh. That, when we talk about saving American lives, this is exactly the philosophy that we need to have. Fair enough, thank you. Uh, Billy, do you have a question? No. So I was thinking that your choice of Dr. Oz is a good one. The only, if my inclinations are a guide to anybody else's, the only doctor who may be consulted more is Dr. Google. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. I, I don't, sure. I got a, you know, Henny Youngman joke, I hold my hand up. So I go, I go to Google, and because uh, they refer me to various websites. Maybe there is something to do there to get um, um, some of those medical websites to uh, proactively yes. talk about the importance of This vaccines. is important. This is, I, I would encourage uh, outreach to social media. Yeah. Uh, like you said, Dr. Google, because we need to reach out to them. We need to reach out to Dr. Google. If he was alive, I'd reach out to Dr. Seuss. I would reach out to anybody that the public trusts to get them to make people understand. Yeah. Listen, Dr. Seuss is still dominating the bestseller list. Which, by the way, Dr. Se I have a book on my desk called Dr. Seuss Goes to War. During World War II, Dr. Seuss became a wartime cartoonist and wrote and drew important public service cartoons for the Roosevelt administration. It's a wonderful book. I encourage everyone to look at it because it's a great example of how artists can use their talents to help their fellow citizens. Okay, thank you very much. You continue to be very helpful to this panel. And if I may say so, you're very impressive and I'm about to say something I hope you take the right way. You should think about running for elective office. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
transcript will show that Mr. Brooks did not offer a response. To <laughs> okay, we're going to go now to the next and last uh, panel uh, of non-federal contributions, so to speak. We're not going to take a break. We just, just took a lunch break, I think. If anybody needs a break, they can go out on their own. This was a consensus agreement between bipartisan. Joe and Joe. Between Congressman <laughs> Greenwood and I. I hope you agree, Ken. Uh, so it's uh, uh, Dr. Monique Mansoura, Dr. Patricia Falcone, and Dr. Akila Kosaraju. Welcome. He went to the theater with her. Oh, that's good. He went to the theater? Uh, thank you. And in some ways, we have uh, referenced throughout uh, the day uh, so-called non-federal uh, contributors uh, to, the, uh, uh, to, the, to the response to the, uh, to the problems. So uh, it's great to uh, have you here now. Uh, I think in the order of things, we've got Dr. Mansura First, and um, let me say for, the, for those who don't know, Dr. Mansour is the Executive Director of Global Health Security and Biotechnology at the MITRE Corporation. Dr. Mansour. Thank you, Senator Lieberman, uh, and to, to the esteemed panel. Uh, it's truly an honor and privilege to be here and to have this opportunity. Um, I am uh, currently with, uh, proudly with MITRE, uh, uh, but also I've spent the last 17 and a half years uh, in biodefense generally and in the medical countermeasures program in particular. We'll focus on those particular elements. So just for the record, if you will, but, uh, but tell us about MITRE just briefly. Indeed. So MITRE uh, is a nonprofit that operates federally funded research and development centers. Uh, we've been in existence for over 60 years since 1958 mm. uh, and uh, provide uh, expert support uh, tackle challenging uh, problems for a safer and healthier world. Uh, we've been supporting the Department of Defense and Intelligence for 60 years. Uh, more recently, uh, have really in, engaged in the healthcare sector, also Homeland Security. So uh, I'm privileged to lead uh, Global Health Security and Biotechnology at MITRE, uh, working in partnership. I'm grateful for the work that uh, we're currently doing with Dr. Kadlik. I appreciated his shout out earlier today. It's uh, a real privilege to be able to work with him and the teams at Asper and, and Barb. Please go ahead. Thank uh, you. But my introduction, let me start there. My introduction to biodefense was in the wake of 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. Uh, I had been working as a scientist uh, and postdoc and policy analyst uh, uh, on another extraordinary scientific project, the Human Genome Project. So I was working in the front office, office with Francis Collins uh, at NIH, uh, when on that horrific Tuesday morning of 9-11, uh, and the follow-on anthrax attacks um, created an opportunity for me uh, to go to this new office that was led by two extraordinary leaders, uh, arguably uh, what uh, Honorable uh, uh, Ken Weinstein referred to earlier, the general and the scientist. Uh, it was General Phil Russell, uh, Major General Phil Russell, retired 
from the U.S. Army and had uh, a storied career in leadership at Rare, um, and uh, and D.A. Henderson, uh, the public health champion uh, that uh, led the eradication of smallpox on the globe. So I think. Uh, as much as I am uh, very much a fan of the branding of the Manhattan Project and bringing that into this domain, I think it's also important, I think there's a lot of lessons that we can and sh should learn from, number one, the Human Genome Project. And to build on what Max just referred to, um, it was a, a stunningly successful scientific project that in parallel addressed the ethical, legal, social implications of the science. Uh, and I was a beneficiary of learning from Francis Collins that I was obligated as a scientist to talk and to communicate about the science, what the Human Genome Project meant to people, um, but also to be very conscious of the misuse of that science. Uh, and that is part in part why after the anthrax attacks, I asked Francis to go down to this new office that was forming after, uh, after these horrific events uh, for a 30-day detail and had the privilege to stay for nine years and lead uh, the programs that are now BARDA. Um, and, and to be a part of really seeing Asper stand up. So that was my start, uh, nine years in, in that. Uh, but I realized, and this will be a major theme of my remarks, um, that this wasn't just a science challenge, that we had a business challenge, that this was inherently a public-private partnership, that the government doesn't make a single dose of vaccine or drug or diagnostics. All of those 44 FDA-approved products that Dr. Catholic referred to earlier today that are justifiably the pride of, of the U.S. government's program, um, uh, all those licenses are held by the private sector. Uh, and I realized as a, a government leader that I didn't speak their language, I didn't have the business acumen, I didn't speak finance. Uh, and so when I left there, I went to MIT Sloan and as a Sloan Fellow got my MBA and then transitioned into the private sector uh, uh, with Novartis Vaccines. and led a business unit there that was, uh, had a portfolio of contracts with the U.S. government to supply uh, pandemic vaccine, uh, was the very proud sort of uh, owner-operator of the Holly Springs uh, influenza manufacturing, vaccine manufacturing plant, um, and draw from that a lot of life lessons uh, that I'll, uh, again, be remarking on today. Because for all of the successes, I think we now have 18 years, 17 and a half years of data about these medical countermeasure programs. And it's really important that we highlight the successes, but it's equally important that we really document and learn from their shortcomings. And, and they've been referenced throughout the day, um, a number of the shortcomings in these public-private partnerships. Um, I do also want to mention that before I came to MITRE, I spent a year working with my um, finance professor at, at MIT, um, really looking at financial engineering techniques, and this was referenced earlier today, this idea of co-investment. I think we really have to look, if we're talking about significant investments that are going to be made in order to support um, the, the significant step increases that we're talking about today, um, ideally, yes, the federal government will step up and will fully fund. Uh, this, but if not, I think we have to be really innovative in our business models as we are innovative in our scientific endeavors as well. So um, uh, we, we didn't, unfortunately, in the year I was with uh, Professor Lowe solve the problem, but I, I, we did really look at some bringing these new financial engineering techniques into developing a portfolio of medical countermeasure assets that could be co-invested by both the government and, uh, and industry.
Um, I do want to acknowledge again, I, there is no uh, larger champion of the folks that are leading the charge in biodefense, especially in the medical countermeasure program. They are incredibly hardworking, dedicated folks. Uh, and I think what we're trying to do is ensure that they have the tools and the resources that they need to execute. Um, Dr. Kedlick also mentioned sort of the, from the private sector perspective, my experience as well, um, this idea of being left at the altar, you know, the false starts. Uh, the vision I have is uh, uh, with Charlie Brown trying to kick the football that Lucy keeps pulling away. Um, uh, we've got to be able to, and I've had the privilege over the last year or so in working uh, in partnership with uh, BARDA leaders and, and Dr. Cadillac and the ASPR team. Um, again, we've got 18 years of data, 200 companies, um, hundreds of products that have been um, processing through the pipeline. Um, it, it, there are a number of, uh, it, it, is not, it is not the outliers that have struggles in these public-private partnerships. And what I'm proposing is that we really reframe the frame shift, one of the frame shifts Dr. Cadillac referred to earlier, um, to look at this as our biodefense industrial base. Uh, this is not a series of transactions. Uh, we have to fundamentally think about how important this manufacturing sector is, not only for our national defense, but the other I wholeheartedly agree with, viewing this sector, the biopharmaceutical sector, um, is not only vital to our national defense, but to our economic development and our economic security. And again, we have led. It, it is the pride of our nation that we have led innovation in this sector. Um, but we've heard uh, more than a few times today about the investments that China has made in the way that they are managing those investments. Uh, and so there's much more at stake here um, than defense. So I, uh, again, would echo what Dr. Cadlick said earlier, that it's the, uh, the economic security, it's the economic development uh, and as luck would have it, a couple of days ago, I ran into my macroeconomics professor at the airport in D.C., um, and he's just written a book uh, uh, entitled, let me get this right, Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Re Revive Economic Growth in the American Dream. So I think there's really a lot, to, there's, there's really something going on here, and, and they weren't specifically thinking about, about defense, although they did really talk about the Manhattan Project and the post-World War II infusion. Uh, of uh, and focus on R&D, where our R&D investments in 1940s to 1960s was on the order of 2% of GDP, I think $400 billion, um, where currently we're at 0.7% GDP, the equivalent of $240 billion. That has consequences, cumul accumulated consequences. So what I really want to focus on is three key messages. Um, I do feel like we are funding, trying to fund a national defense mission with a public health mindset, and it's a dangerous combination. So we've talked about some of these tribal clashes. I know Ken Bernard was real, really eloquently articulated this years ago. Uh, the tribal clashes between the public health or global health community and the national defense uh, and, and security domain. And we've got, really got to figure out how to break down the, that uh, um, and, and, and get away from that tribalism and really toward an integrated view. But I do think from a budgeting perspective, we've really got to look at this. This is national defense. The consequences of inaction or uh, chronic underfunding have, have done an accumulated, again, this is what uh, we were able to document, uh, accumulated damage. Um, so if we go back to this sector, the biodefense industrial base, and think about uh, you know, it, it is not a monolith, right? So when you think about the large multinational uh, pharmaceutical companies, Dr. Cadillac mentioned 
uh, Merck and J&J &J and really the extraordinary efforts they've undertaken over the past few years to develop an Ebola vaccine. And yet it is very clear um, that there has been harm to their companies, uh, that the, um, the opportunity costs um, are significant. It's interesting because in 2004, the very first report we had to deliver to Congress was uh, barriers to implementation of Project BioShield. And we mentioned two key issues. One was liability and the, the other was opportunity costs. And we largely have solved liability in the U.S., but opportunity costs is as much an issue today as it was back in 2004 when this program was launched. So we need, really need to figure out, because I don't imagine any more than you can imagine having in a defense industrial base without a Raytheon or a Northrop um, uh, imagine trying to do our biodefense without the large multinational pharmaceutical companies like J&J &J and Merck. Um, so we do need a Manhattan Project and we do need the WHO. So the what is the Manhattan Project? The WHO is the, is the um, biodefense industrial base. We, have, we can't do it without them and we've got to figure out a way, not just the science side, but we need a business model that is sustainable. Uh, the last, I, I would, uh, the third point I wanted to make is the how. Uh, and, and this question has been asked a number of times today. You have got to have life cycle management of this mission. You cannot have the fits and starts. You have got to be able to move at the speed of science. So I, I was there when we conceived of what is now the Public Health Emergency Medical Countermeasures Enterprise, or FEMC. Um, and, and conceptually, it's the right idea. Um, one, one of the brilliant elements of General Russell's uh, when he was given the title of his office as the Office, office of Research and Development Coordination, nobody wants to be coordinated. Uh, NIH and CDC and FDA don't want to come to the Secretary's office at HHS and be coordinated. Um, so he immediately changed the, the names of those meetings to the anthrax risk management meeting, the smallpox risk management meeting, um, and we all came to mitigate risk. And everybody uh, came from proud cultures and had a lot to bring to the table. Um, and I, I think, uh, it, but it has to be end-to-end -end planning, and ideally, it has to be concentrated budget authority. Again, this, this idea of having to pass the baton and assume that it's going to be seamless. Um, uh, I have my own personal example of, of managing a great scientific team at, uh, at Novartis that was leading on, we've heard it referred a couple times today, an mRNA platform, the self-amplifying mRNA platform, or SAM. Uh, it was a very successful DARPA program. We tried mightily to get it integrated into the sort of next phase of development um, uh, at, at BARDA multiple times, uh, and, and it wasn't picked up, and mergers and acquisitions happen, as they do in this sector, and that brilliant team of, uh, you know, five scientists then ended up in five different companies. So what they tell us in uh, business school about mergers and acquisitions and value creation, uh, there is also value destruction, and there are also setbacks. And this is a very dynamic sector, and if we don't figure out how to ensure that we, through our contracts and program management, are managing end-to-end, -end, um, then, then we really risk uh, losing uh, uh, in innovation and falling behind on these timelines. Uh, the last thing I'll, I want to really point out is to emphasize further um, the, the importance of the bioeconomy, that there is so much more at stake here than the, uh, again, not that it isn't enough, that the, uh, uh, if it was only about national security, it would be enough to justify these resources if you looked at the economic impact. Um, but 
uh, to look at uh, what is at stake that this, bio, this biotechnology drives so many of our sectors, not just health, but manufacturing uh, and other uh, key elements, energy, uh, agriculture, we've heard or heard about sort of the spillover effects of the particular investments we'd make here. Um, we also, the, the uh, two other things, and then I'll stop. Um, one is metrics, right? We've got to have a metric beyond counting FDA approvals because as Dr. Kadlik alluded to, uh, a very successful FDA approval of a novel antimicrobial uh, was followed on a few months later by the bankruptcy of that company. So we have got to look, again, life cycle management, if you are thinking about industrial-based policy, you have to have surety of your supply chain. And, and that extends for as long as you need that asset. And that supply chain is managed by that company. And if that company doesn't exist or its IP assets are sold ex-US, um, that is a loss, a significant loss. The last is test and evaluation. How do we know? How would we measure? If we're not testing and evaluating, it's inherent in our defense posture that we test and evaluate our assets. So if you could think about, I know we've talked about pan flu, but think about pan flu and what happened just this year in the 2019 seasonal flu. We had a second peak evolved. Evolve. Uh, there was a second wave of flu for which we're finding out just a couple of weeks ago the vaccine provided no protection. Imagine that we had had a little bit of a heads up and had a new platform that we wanted to test. Even if we couldn't field it necessarily to say, hey, we see this second strain coming out as a major sort of concern for this year's seasonal flu, um, test and evaluate those platforms. Make it interesting, develop a challenge model where folks that have established platforms, our addiction to egg or our new FCC flu cell culture technology or recombinant or RNA platforms, all have an opportunity to respond or the ones you didn't even see coming. You know, be more open in this competition and see who can do what. Seasonal flu gives the opportunity to test and evaluate every year and we should think about that. I'll end there. Again, very much appreciate the opportunity. Look forward to the questions. Uh, that was great, thank you. So, uh, so again, some really uh, con some conceptualization, I think, that's uh, very helpful to me. Uh, I never thought of a biodefense industrial base before, but it's a, a really <clears throat> constructive insight. Uh, Dr. Falcone, Deputy Director for Science and Technology at the famous and much appreciated Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Thanks for coming out. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here and delighted to talk about uh, this Manhattan Project, um, largely because, as implied, I think, as you all know, we are an inheritor organization from the original uh, Manhattan Project. And uh, we also are an FFRDC um, at like one of the ones that, that MITRE runs. And so uh, I don't think we... Um, are exactly non-governmental. Uh, we are a federally funded research and development uh, corporation. We work on um, center, I'm sorry, and we work uh, on topics we're funded by and tasked by the government, but we're operated by managing and operating uh, limited liability corporation, of which the uh, majority um, per, uh, member is the University of California. So excellence in science and technology has been a part of it, but tied to mission. And so that kind of approach really is what has grown out of the Manhattan Project and all of its inheritor organizations. There are 17 laboratories um, in the Department of Energy, and um, all, um, not all of them, but uh, several of the laboratories 
um, have long worked in the biodefense domain. And I would say at the outset that uh, my colleagues and I concur with the panel about the growing risk opposed by biological threats and further concur that a focused, a more coherent and uh, focused, mission-focused um, effort is warranted. Um, I think uh, throughout the day we've had a number of uh, points already made about what constitutes those lessons learned from the Manhattan Project. For me, the things that I think are most important are the, the partnerships. We've talked about a couple of ideas of uh, government folks and leading scientists. We, of course, are named after Ernest Orlando Lawrence, a physics professor at the University of California, Berkeley, but often acknowledged as the father of team science in the U.S. And um, so really part of our heritage has been bringing multidisciplinary science so that you have lots of expertise, but what is the continuing thread is the mission. How do you um, stay at the, the forefront of science, but always have an eye and deep knowledge about what the missions are? And so that's a characteristic that I think is really important. And maybe it gets that I was um, interested in the phrase uh, that uh, Mr. Cadlick used about moving at the speed of science, because really what I think is at issue here and it's at issue in a number of advanced technologies, but particularly in bio, where the government does not, in fact, have a large investment um, in the basic science um, and the national security mission. And so this partnership and collaboration with where the frontier is, that the government, that's not a spectator sport. So to actually be able to um, use and yield um, the knowledge from this developing technical area and ad understand national security implications. I mean, you have to have on your team people that are good enough to be in those front waves. And that was true in the Manhattan Project when the physics was brand new and being developed, and it's absolutely necessary now because we don't really understand the implications and you can't read it in journals at some later time. You've got to be a part of the mix. Um, I was pleased also the Human Genome Project's already been mentioned. That was, our laboratory was one of the three DOE laboratories that really started that. And the kind of tools, again, are different kinds of disciplines, but computation and precision instrumentation. And in fact, a number of the patents and licenses that have come out of uh, work done for the government inside our laboratory, those that yield the most licensing and revenue actually are the ones for bio. Um, discoveries that have been made over the years, uh, including uh, fluorescent marking and um, fish and a number of other things. Um, our work that we do today and um, biosciences is driven by national security missions and, and does greatly benefit from this multidisciplinary approach. I'd like to highlight just two areas that I think this research and development undertaking needs to have. I do come from a science and engineering perspective, mission focused, and so I acknowledge that, um, that many of the issues we've talked about already I concur with, um, the need for communication, uh, the industrial base, but I really focusing on the discovery and targeting and the two things that I'd like to highlight uh, as need for prioritized attention and enhanced resources are one, um, the scientific assessment in a more deliberate way of the potential deliberate bio incidents 
and then second, the enablement of rapid response capabilities. Both of these areas do need more research and development and should be um, focused on. Now, understanding the evolution of a threat is critical to mounting an effective defense. It's pretty self-evident. And so understanding the risk associated with new technologies and the scenarios in which they might be used is a grand challenge for the national security community. And in the biodomain, as already has been referenced and, and long studied, there, um, you know, we've got a set of um, agents and infectious diseases, but in fact, we have the prospect of many other kinds of approaches. I mean, other kinds of infectious diseases, but also alterations and, you know, fundamental building blocks here. And so, uh, as the National uh, Biodefense Strategy lays out in goal one, they highlight key issues needing work to more clearly understand the threat from a technology perspective. So that includes uh, assessing the security risks posed by deliberate misuse of new biotechnologies, research on preparation and dissemination methods, and risk-informed planning scenarios to facilitate capability and capacity assessments and to identify gaps. Um, without that, without figuring out, and we have known this now for a long time, some things are easier than other things, and some things have bigger impacts than other things. And we need to do some real focused work because that allows us to prioritize. Even if you're successful, there will always be limited resources. So we need to know what do we do first and what do we second. Um, this does require increased and better connections between the life science community and the national security community. Um, I think as already referenced, it, um, it's still well short of the critically important engagement uh, that we've enjoyed um, since World War II over the 20th century between the physical sciences and engineering communities and the national security community. Um, further, um, the scenarios and risk assessments tend to require a facility with a wide range of scientific domains that range from biology to biotechnology, but also including high-performance computing, artificial intelligence, micro and nano fabrication approaches, advanced materials, and other related areas. It also requires continued work on how do we understand predictions and uncertainties because um, things are not certain things, some things are not going to be able uh, to, to be defined precisely, but there is a growing science in predictability as um, actually the new uh, OSTP uh, director, Calvin Drogemeyer, talks about um, in recent speeches that the science of predictability and furthermore, given this domain, and because it's important to state that, of course, the Manhattan Project, when you use this analogy, you don't want to be walking into anything that we're only talking about defense, uh, not over offense, of course, which we that was a part of the original Manhattan Project. And so such work um, does need careful oversight. And, um, and to be clear, it's important it is very useful to analogize between natural, accidental, and deliberate sources of bioincidents, but in fact, in detail, they need to be studied separately. Some study, some limited study needs to be separate. So the first recommendation I have for this uh, effort, once you land it, uh, is to prioritize research and development on uh, these um, 
potential deliberate bioincidents so that we can have better risk assessment and defense strategy efforts, what really would constitute the strategy. I'll comment, I um, have been working in and around this area since probably the 90s, and one of the interesting things after um, the anthrax events, for example, was a large amount of work on detecting. And the question then comes is like, what do you do when you detect? Do you save any lives just because you have managed from one way to turn a red light on? So this is why really understanding an end-to-end -end scenario is important and not um, dwelling in, and because we have so many disciplines, I mean, in the anthrax scenarios, for example, you know, it's very different sets of folks that understand about the issues of selecting a strain that can be virulent about growing something, to dissemination, to um, effects on plumes and weather patterns, and then respiration. Um, so you have a whole set of disciplines and you're trying to answer the mission. You've got to be able to compare the uncertainties all and the impact at every step, and that's what we need to do. So the second um, thing is, and I think we've talked a lot about this, and I think there's a, some knowledge about what we need to do, I'm not sure we're quite there yet, but is a rapid response capability in bringing platforms. So action here is also aligned closely with items in the National Biodefense Strategy, specifically in Goal 3, and this is really moving away from a sort of one bug, one drug approach, which I guess is memorialized in that great um, colored uh, chart we saw this morning. Um, but, you know, not surprisingly, this is a goal also from the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industries to develop rapid response capabilities. And that as a shared vision, the grand challenge can, as we've already heard about, provide a foundation for innovative public-private partnerships that could simultaneously target critical health needs, drive down health care costs, and and importantly for a mission organization, build the scientific foundation for countering complex future biological threats. So one scientific approach to actually accelerate progress towards this goal is to apply uh, the revolutionary advances in scientific computing and information sciences. Um, this became clear during the Human Genome Project. So computing along with uh, new precision instrumentation really were key enablers. Uh, to get going on that. Um, our laboratory has been focused on applying high-performance computing and, and other colleague laboratories in the Department of Energy to an analyze complex biomo biomolecular systems um, and so a set of partnerships, and I just wanted to speak to those a little bit. Um, in the early um, this decade, we stepped up our efforts in computational biology and purposefully have been working on a strategy to expand partnerships with both university and industry partners. And the vision is to build a predictive biology capability. This has been embraced and supported by the Department of Energy. And um, we've had a, several major partnerships that ha have blossomed, are blossoming. In 2015, the DOE secretary and the director of the National Cancer Institute agreed to launch something called the Joint Design of Advanced Supercomputing Solutions for Cancer. This partnership aims to develop next-generation supercomputing technology and accelerate cancer research to enable precision medicine. And from the computing point of view, one of the reasons that we are so interested 
and let me say that in the Department of Energy, we have the biggest computers in the world um, and the biggest computers by definition in the US right now if um, measured by flops, uh, the floating operations per unit time, the most recent list of supercomputers, um, half of those um, are in, in the top 10 are in the United States, but all five of those are in Department of Energy laboratories. And two of those, number two and number 10, are at our laboratory. We have some 25 uh, supercomputers. Um, and we're interested in solving problems with those supercomputers. And biology presents really interesting problems because we're so two reasons for computing. One is enormous amounts of data. How do you handle that? That's one of the real frontiers. And also continuing phenomenological models where we write partial differential equations about atoms moving around. So one of the great things, um, so first of all, this allows us to do lots of things. Uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence coupled with writing equations or phenomenological models. That's what we use the big computers for. And bio is just now writing equations uh, for its really big molecules and inherently is a domain with tremendous amounts of data. And so that's why we are interested in it from just pushing computing and using advanced computing for it. So in this program with um, the National Cancer Institute, we have been working on three pilot projects and four national laboratories. We have in particular been working on um, a molecular level project. The le projects are at the molecular, preclinical, and population level uh, domains. We've been working actually in two of the three but in particular have been uh, developed in atomic resolution, molecular dynamics, simulations of RAS, an important molecule in cancer, and uh, the dynamics of as it moves through a cell wall. And these simulations steered by machine learning have uh, yielded um, some new ideas and some exciting publications that I can refer you to. Um, in June of 2016, the Department of Energy and the National Cancer Institute uh, announced the formation of a public-private partnership, which is called ADAM, which stands for Accelerating Therapeutics for Opportunities in Medicine. And the consortium founding members for that are GlaxoSmithKline, uh, supplying data, uh, dead drug data, and um, also resources, significant resources, our laboratory, the Frederick National Laboratory for Cancer Research, and the University of California, San Francisco. It now includes some additional members, uh, in industry members, including hardware manufacturer NVIDIA, um, as well as um, some other uh, bio uh, firms. Um, Adam has set its goal to transform drug discovery from a slow sequential process with a high failure rate because of the need to do, take molecules and do experiments to translating, to starting to do more of that inside the computer. So you can, and with really big computers, you can do that a lot. Um, the consortium is integrating high performance computing, diverse biological data, and emerging biotechnologies to create a new pre-competitive platform for drug discovery. Um, the, um, our molecular optimization there can target efficacy, drug efficacy, safety, and pharmacology in parallel, and we can do very rapid design cycles with thousands of iteration per day. 
And finally, in a third partnership, DOE Secretary Perry has been championing an effort to partner with the Veterans Administration along with University of California, San Francisco to address traumatic brain injury. And so scientists are uh, in the lab, a set of laboratories are beginning to analyze some of the largest and most complex uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury patient data that are collected. Um, and the analysis is with artificial, state-of-the-art artificial intelligence-based technologies and the state-of-art computing resources. One of the things that that is, uh, has the glimmer of hope, we're starting to move some of the analyses of the, the MRI data and the like and genomic data from being purely research to being able to be computed fast enough to be able to be applied clinically. Because one of the things about TBI is there's not really a scientific um, basis or metrics to aside, assign um, diagnoses about mild, medium, or severe concussion when people come in. And so really being able to take these measurements and do the data processing so that the clinician can then have that data within 24 hours and then begin to uh, have more measures. So each of these projects um, is delivering results via collaboration and work at the frontier of discovery. They really are um, part of this wave of bringing uh, converging technologies, but they are also exemplars of the kind of work that's needed to get to a truly rapid response capability. So that's my second recommendation, that uh, a national research and development structure to bring broad economic health and national security benefits for the nation, administration and the American people, and um, concur with your desire to form a new research and development undertaking that's structured for excellence, um, brings national security perspectives, and a strong ethos of partnering and collaboration to address this important challenge. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Falcon. That was a uh, very impressive report on <clears throat> what's happening at Lawrence Livermore. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Kosaraju, thank you for being here. Dr. Kosaraju uh, is the president and co-founder of Varian Bio, uh, previously at uh, Sega Technologies, former special assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to the esteemed panel, um, to my other panel members um, who had some really excellent ideas and comments, um, and to Asha for her tireless uh, efforts on this panel. Um, you all have done tremendous work, and I've had the privilege of being a part of this uh, community from a few different perspectives, and would love to share a few lessons learned from each of those perspectives. So. Um, coming out of actually undergrad, I knew I wanted to work at this intersection of medicine and innovation to help further our nation's security and global health. 9-11 um, had happened, I think, right after my junior year of college, um, and it was a firebrand for uh, new innovation, new activity, um, that kind of mission that you're really looking for when you're you're young upstart uh, looking for what you want to do with your life. Um, so I had the privilege of, of going to medical school and deciding very soon after to uh, go work in the Pentagon uh, for the Assistant Secretary. Uh, his name was uh, Dr. Ward Cassells, and he was an entrepreneur himself. Um, so I got this very kind of privileged view of what the government could be. Uh, he would just sort of take his initiatives and turn them into action. Uh, he started some of the first telemedicine initiatives um, at DOD. 
Um, he did a great deal of work in biosurveillance, trying to harmonize the VA and DOD, um, and also worked very closely with CDC on uh, new infectious disease efforts. So I think I got kind of a Pollyannish view of uh, everything the government can do and, and how it's working correctly. Um, as soon as I got out of that role, I uh, was helping to grow a company called Sika. That's a very traditional biodefense company. So we worked in partnership with NIH and BARDA at the, at the inception of BARDA to develop the first antiviral for smallpox that's now in the national stockpile. Um, that was a tremendous experience and also a tremendously difficult experience. Um, I know this panel, having gone to many of your meetings in the past, has been barraged with um, recommendations for how to improve sustainability, uh, the regulatory frameworks, um, international stockpiling. I won't belabor some of those points. Um, but I think actually from the outside, I was able to much more clearly see um, some of the inefficiencies and sort of some of the major gaping holes in working with the government. Um, and just to touch on a few of those, um, and also at, at the end of the day, though, we did create an innovation, a true innovation um, in biodefense. So it works. It just requires patience, time, um, and I think teams that are able to both be innovative but also be patient. Um, so I think it, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's, very, it's a niche um, that I think could be scaled uh, much more easily with some, some relatively uh, minor tweaks. Um, so in terms of the lessons learned from that experience, I just want to uh, focus on three. Uh, one is sustainability. So um, again, you've heard this a number of times, but uh, for us, for SEGA, the uh, sustainable funding source of Project BioShield was invaluable. Um, it provided a simple message to investors, um, and I wouldn't underestimate um, how little many investors will really pay attention to the details. So the idea that we can just say that there is a $5.6 billion fund um, and that it's a 10-year fund was enough certainty for them to put more dollars behind our company. Um, it gets, it, you know, at the end of the day, in, in fact, that the procurement funding had sound bites to really explain that, that you know, there is a, a government commitment. Uh, the second piece in terms of sustainability is that you have to have companies that not only have one success, but have multiple successes. So I think what we saw with SEGA is that even though it was, a, it was a tremendous success in the industry, we had an FDA approval, we had a major procurement contract. What we found was that our stock would often go down uh, when a major success had happened because I think the feeling was, well, what happens next? Um, and I know you've heard this a number of times. We had a follow-on contract, thankfully, and I think that you know the company again um, ended up being one of the uh, the, the more the, the more privileged and lucky companies in the space. Um, but I think you have to have more companies and more examples of that kind of not single shot, uh, single uh, molecule kind of success. You need multiple successes within individual companies. Um, and then the third thing I'll mention is on the regulatory side. We did get through to an FDA approval, but I think there was a lot of learning along the way. Um, thankfully, we had tremendous leaders like Lou Borio at the FDA um, that were willing to cut through a lot of process to really help companies get to the finish line. Uh, that type of leadership, I think, has only increased, and I think the FDA, um, almost more so than any other agency, has uh, really evolved uh, to work with companies better in this space. Um, the final thing I'll mention is in terms of global health and biodefense. So uh, we tried uh, tirelessly for eight years uh, to build global stockpiles of our drug of TPOX for smallpox. Um, and there are many other companies in our space, once they got an FDA approval or once they had stockpiled drug, were trying to do the same thing. 
Um, and I would say it still hasn't, there still hasn't been a major success story um, internationally. And I would have two recommendations there that um, in our experience could have helped. One is uh, regulatory harmonization. So uh, because we have this EUA process um, and then ultimately you get an FDA approval but you can be stockpiled using a EUA-able uh, type of F FDA regulatory authority, it's a little confusing. I think for many foreign governments. And so the, I, to explain to a foreign government that our drug is stockpiled, um, but it's not yet FDA approved, they don't really take that as enough for them to stockpile the drug themselves. So I think a little clearer communication on how to harmonize regulatory standards um, could be a major bottleneck that's um, overcome in international stockpiling. Um, and then the second piece is doing more joint stockpiling. I think uh, Dr. Cadlick mentioned foreign military sales. Um, there are other examples where you can have countries come together. Um, I know for in, in the flu space, there was more of that activity around um, H1N1. Um, and I think in biodefense, there still could be um, more pilot projects that really show that model in action. So those were a few lessons learned from working in the biodefense space. As soon as my company got our FDA approval, I had always had this, I went to my undergrad at Stanford, and I just had this entrepreneurial bug um, that I think was even furthered by having worked uh, with an entrepreneur in the government. Um, so I was talking to venture capital firms, knowing that I wanted to start my own company. And the first thing I mentioned was my current role, that it was a public-private partnership, this incredible governmental uh, enterprise, and I would immediately be greeted with eye rolls. The sort of, uh, you know, immediate fatigue of, well, that sounds really interesting and, you know, good for you that you've been doing uh, mission-oriented work. Uh, but to really sell getting these venture capital firms to want to engage, not just in this space, but with an individual who spent a lot of time in government uh, was challenging. Ultimately, what ended up working was um, creating a commercial model for a new company with biodefense applications. So instead of having a company that was really predominantly biodefense focused, we iterated over the years and then came up with a commercial model. So my current company is called Variant Bio. Um, I'm so glad we mentioned the Human Genome Project and, and some of the work in uh, computational biology. So this is a genomics company, and we are uh, searching the globe for individuals, populations that are outliers for traits of medical relevance. So um, in the biodefense and emerging infectious disease space, uh, one great example is uh, populations that have been found that have a mutation in the CCR5 gene. Um, that confers uh, resistance to HIV, and it's a natural resistance that was found in some northern European and, and African populations. What we're trying to do is take that idea, take that model, scale it, and, and look for populations and individuals that have these sort of natural resistances and create new therapeutics. Um, so the idea, again, is much more broad. It's much more commercial with a biodefense application. That is an easy sell across industry. Um, and I, I'm not necessarily recommending that that's how you build a biodefense enterprise, but it's more a commentary, I think, on where the investor community is with this space. Um, and I think a couple of things that could help um, in terms of pulling them in, I loved what Max had to say um, about, you know, kind of going to the thought leaders, um, creating your ambassadors, um, and really having them then go back to the communities and sort of evangelize for what, what good work the government is doing. Um, I think the other piece of this is really bringing folks in who 
you know, I often see the same few people representing um, sort of quote unquote startups or um, the entrepreneurial space um, that already have a fair amount of government know-how. Um, I think that, you know, we could do a better job of really going out to the community um, in, a, in, a, in less accessible format. So, you know, for example, now uh, the government has often representation at, at meetings like J.P. Morgan's healthcare conference, but you don't often see as much representation at um, South by Southwest or, um, you know, have uh, the BARDA director do a, a TEDx conference or um, really make this fun, exciting, nimble, um, youthful, um, I, one of the most, uh, I would say, existential crisis I had in terms of going from more the governmental space to startups was realizing that I'm by far the oldest person in the room now. Um, and, um, and I think there is something to, you know, if you have a panel of entrepreneurs that are advising uh, the government, if, if, it's a, if it's a number of older individuals who have started a couple companies and are now in, you know, a later stage, stage in their career, I think that's not necessarily where you want to go. You want to go for the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings um, that are really going to be the next wave um, because it's so much easier to uh, work, work with those folks, um, tap into the mission orientation that many of these entrepreneurs already have. Um, I think that is a stereotype that is abundantly true, um, that if you're working with um, current-day younger entrepreneurs, they want a mission. They want the the innovation to be serving a larger purpose. So I feel like it's ripe for many of these individuals to have some kind of government interaction, whether it's through a part-time fellowship or a secondment for a couple months. Um, I don't think you'll be able to find many uh, really kind of disruptive entrepreneurs that will go into the government um, and survive for very long. But um, I do think you can find these, these programs and other ways to make it um, an add-on, an addendum, another way to, um, you know, drive forward their mission. You may be relieved to know you're not the oldest person in this room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I agree. <clears throat> when you said that, I could feel your pain. <laughs> uh, but it's good to be here. <laughs> so, anyway, thank you. Um, thank you all. Um, I wonder if you want to add anything more about the lessons you learned during your time at SEGA, uh, uh, working with the federal government to develop smallpox vaccine, uh, in the sense of what, what didn't work that we should be trying to change to make it easier for private companies to make the contribution they want to make? So I think um, it's... It, it, it's a tough question because it depends on where the company is. So I would say early on in the company's development, um, there was a sort of question of, uh, I, I think we felt that there wasn't as much transparency. Um, what is the actual requirement for smallpox antiviral? Um, and I think that that piece of it, we increasingly realized was not, was not, was not gonna be something that we would get consistently. Um, so we would look at different sources, and then one RFP would say, you know, 12 million courses. Another would say 1.7 million. Um, and we would try to really, you know, pin down, like, what the actual requirement is. I think what we realized over time is that as leadership changed, as budgets changed, 
potentially the requirement was changing and we would maybe not be notified of those kinds of changes. So I think that that level of transparency is really needed because if you are ramping up your manufacturing capability, um, you need to know to what level that's gonna be. And I, I realize that you have to have like a competitive marketplace and all of that, but I think that you, you need to know what if you're working with a government uh, partner, um, you know, that you're giving them information, but they're giving you information back. So I think there was that piece. Um, the second challenge that we in particular had was on the regulatory side, there was a number of um, FDA guidances that were changing um, as we were developing our drug. I think that problem has since been solved um, because we were one of the first movers in the space. Um, so for example, we had to double our dose of the drug that had already been stockpiled because of a requirement for uh, the level of efficacy you need to show in animal models. Um, I think uh, that what seemed to be a small uh, issue for the government that turned into an enormous issue for our company. Um, so I think that those sort of moving of the goalpost, um, especially on the regulatory side, is an, is, in, is can potentially shut down a company because uh, you, ha you have a certain amount of runway and you have to really plan every single month on your Gantt charts. So the transparency piece, I think the regulatory standardization were our two biggest challenges. And then the third piece, um, you know, which I was, uh, mentioned earlier, was just the investor confidence. Um, so I think that there's a few ways that you can build that confidence. One is by having these large pots of money that are sustainable and that show no sort of uh, wavering in confidence on the government side. Um, but I also think that sh having other companies in the space that are successful that you can sh uh, show as examples. Um, I think this is one of those industries where all ships should, should and can rise. Um, and there's, it's too small of a space for it to be all that competitive. So I think we would really revel in the successes of other companies in our space. But unfortunately, I think that there were too few of them to really uphold as, as great examples. Okay, those are good suggestions. What, what about the, rel the related but more general uh, question of um, how do we more successfully involve private companies in solving the bio threat problem? In other words, we, we, when we talk about a Manhattan Project, we're talking about more money to the federal government. We're talking about better uh, coordination of effort. Th those are a couple of the lessons in addition to the ones you, you all talked about from the Manhattan Project. But then there is this question of how do we engage the private sector, uh, particularly when um, sometimes the, mar the, well, the market doesn't uh, reward, does, doesn't incentivize the kind of investment and product development that the nation needs for well, medical countermeasures, vaccines maybe. Did you want to? Sure. So, yeah, if, if I could uh, lead in on that and follow up also, uh, Kayla is really elegant and in, in exquisite in her remarks, but just to add on some of the private sector perspectives that I had at Novartis that I think complement in many ways some of the remarks she made. Um, uh, and, and this has been said for almost a decade now, this idea of tell us what your requirements are, right? Because um, if you're in the private sector, you're in this biotech, biopharma space, um, there's basically three fundamental questions that they teach you. Uh, uh, number one, is there an unmet medical need? Number two, is there a market? Somebody willing to pay for the product you'll develop? Right. And three, can you be competitive in that space? Um, and that's how this industry, based, it's, it's sort of that simple at some level. So when you go to investors or when you go to your CEO, and I was leader of a business unit, and I was competing against other business units in the division, 
uh, you know, again, they, they have, everybody has finite resources. They want to know how to deploy those resources to get uh, a reasonable return. And there are multiple factors. It's not just maximizing return necessarily. Um, there are other factors that would determine whether or not, uh, we heard company after a co company when, when I went to interview them, they are not looking for blockbusters from the U.S. government, but they are looking um, for a reasonable return. Um, on their investment. Again, they have fiduciary uh, responsibilities and accountabilities to their shareholders and to their boards, um, and that's not unreasonable. Again, we, the U.S. government, need them much more than they need us. They have what, many other opportunities to deploy their technologies, and I think this whole concept of dual use um, that Akila brought up, you, you drive it on a commercial the technology on a commercial platform, and we hear the U.S. government talking a lot now about platforms, but again, I would go back to ask, do we have a business model for that? How would that, how would you do justify deploying that platform that has a high uh, probability of um, viability in a commercial space and ask for any component of that platform, that capability to be redirected to a less attractive space? Um, it's not impossible, but I would I would sort of uh, talk about the example we had at Novartis with H7N9. So for folks that uh, recall uh, Easter Sunday uh, 2013, there was uh, a new strain of uh, flu that we had never seen before. Uh, it seemed to be highly uh, lethal. It had all the sort of signals uh, of being a potential pandemic. And that's one thing about pandemics, you don't know, you know, what those signals are that would then force a decision to develop the capability, develop the product. So in this case, we had a platform. We made flu vaccines. We had commercial customers to deliver to make sure that kids had their flu vaccines in the fall and, and the elderly and the rest of the population. Um, so we had customers, we had contracts. And then this new H7N9 strain em emerges, and, and hard decisions have to be made. And to Barta's credit at the time, they ran it like a pandemic drill. They said, we, this might be the next big one. This might be you know, our, our 1918 happening in 2013. Um, and hard decisions had to be made because again, you're, you're asking to deploy assets to break contracts with commercial customers in order for that platform then to make a biodefense product. Um, the, the one thing I will say that uh, has got to be fixed uh, from a private sector perspective is contracting because time is money. And so this whole concept of non-dilutional funding, time dilutes that money. And if you're a small biotech with cash flow issues, and many, many, many of the partners in the biodefense portfolio are at significant risk of default and are managing cash flow on a, on a monthly basis, um, time could be death. Delays could be death. Mm -hmm. um, in large companies, there are opportunity costs. Um, uh, so. Um, time is money, and that has got to be um, reconciled somehow because commercial contracting looks nothing like government contracting. Um, and, and importantly, in the new authorities that are provided um, under the reauthorization of the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act or Innovation Act that was passed last month, um, there are some very interesting new uh, other transaction authorities that are provided to this mission space that should be looked at very hard uh, and considered because they do allow um, uh, non-FAR-based contracts that allow uh, commitments to be made for acquisition under these OTs 
And so, uh, again, it warrants closer look because contracting is, it can be paralyzing and, and just one more reason to, uh, to cause investors to, uh, to be drawn away from, away from the space. Helpful, uh, very, thank you. Jim. Um, Dr. Mansour, you've done a lot of work on supply chain issues and we've talked a lot today about the universal vaccine, uh, the idea of a universal vaccine. Could you comment on what would be the challenges in terms of supply chain were for us to succeed in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. No, thank you, Representative Greenwood. Um, the one thing I would mention in, in thinking about supply chain, because there's real, been a real awakening on the defense side about the vital uh, need to attend to supply chains, uh, and I would draw people's attention to Executive Order 13806. Um, it was recently, it was issued in July 2017. There was a report issued about the same time that the uh, uh, the National Biodefense Strategy was released, uh, and it really focuses on our defense, manufacturing, industrial base, and supply chain resiliency. So to answer your question, the concepts of universal flu vaccine, uh, again, we really need to think this through at a systems level, because if we're talking about this concept of having, uh, you know, at one extreme, we talk about a single vaccine for life. So one of the intended or unintended consequences of that is that our entire manufacturing infrastructure make for making flu vaccines would arguably go away. There would be no justification to maintain capacity to vaccinate what we vaccinate 140, 150 million people every year. So what happens to that? What if that universal flu vaccine doesn't protect against the pandemic strain and we've lost all of that infrastructure? So I think that's one, talking about supply chain, what we have to consider. Um, another supply chain consideration for flu vaccines, of course, is it's, it's not just the antigen or the adjuvant. It's not just the manufacturing facility and the supply chains within that footprint. Um, it's the needles, it's the vials, uh, and, and I think we're, we're finding out some very difficult lessons about how our dependencies, XUS, are for all of those ancillary supplies. Uh, and again, if you look at a systems level, if it, any one of those elements that is required to get that individual bioshield, if you will, that vaccine that will give your, your, the host uh, the immunity it needs to protect against that, um, any shortcoming in that supply chain will lead to that uh, inability to administer that vaccine. So I, I think, and I know there's people working hard to understand, especially uh, with escalating uh, trade concerns, uh, that we, every element uh, of our supply chain for this medical countermeasure enterprise needs to be considered. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Falcone, um, we, th this whole idea of a Manhattan Project for Biodefense is a pretty new idea that, that this panel has been working with. And I, um, it occurs to me that even if, if Congress woke up tomorrow and said, oh, yeah, great idea, let's do it, how much do you need, and gave us a blank check, we still have to think about so what does it look like? Is it a is it a virtual Manhattan Project? Does everybody sort of stay put? Is it just a sort of governmental reorg and and then ways to bring in the private sector? One thing that occurred to me listening to you is that I guess Department of Energy has something like what is it, 17 labs? Um, I'm wondering if if the National Laboratory is an would be an appropriate model uh, for a Manhattan project for biodefense, probably not within the Department of Energy, maybe it would be the first HHS national lab or, or you know, combination HHS Department of Defense, whatever it is. I'm just, just in terms of the, the strengths and weaknesses of the, 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 the structure of a national lab, where even in this day and age, I would think that actually putting people in the same building and 
uh, interacting and bringing the private sector in might be uh, a very efficient way to, to, to develop the intensity and the urgency and the co collaborations that would be necessary to do this. What do you think about that? Well, let's see. First of all, I do think there's something to be said for aggregating people. So in our Atom partnership, we do have physical space that all the partners have um, people working together in um, space in Mission Bay and San Francisco in, um, you know, commercial building, but it's leased from uh, the University of California, San Francisco as one partner. So there's an excitement about having people together. That said, I think we all do science in a more virtual way. Um, the Department of Energy runs a lot of user scientific facilities, for example, and many, you know, including um, being partners with NSF on telescopes, but many of those can be operated remotely so that even if you're an experimentalist, once you've set up your experiment, you can be taking data remotely. So I do think there's sort of a network idea. Now the fact is for national security, it's of course a little more difficult when you're doing classified work to have that be virtual. But having said that, uh, we do have classified networks and, and uh, you know progress has been made there. So I think you maybe it's a hub and spoke and you might have multiple hubs. Um, but I do think that making deep partnerships takes doing real work. And I think that's the problem about underfunding is that um, we often have enough funding to get together to have meetings to talk about working together, but we don't actually get enough money to do real work. And it's in the doing the real work that you deepen those partnerships. And so I think it's better First of all, we need real money, and then we need to do real work, and you have to have real partners in there that all have skin in the game. But people, um, these organizations, all of us have our own, you know, they're not just disciplinary cultures, there's organizational cultures. And so it's been interesting to me, I sit on the board of some of these efforts, just watching, even after we get to the signed agreement, as we undertake to do a research plan and to execute a research plan, that um, you are working to bring that team together across these cultural barriers. So the management of this uh, is this enterprise that you're thinking about, I think has to be purposeful. And, and one of the problems is that we sometimes weight down the uh, management I mean, I think it needs to be purposeful. I think it needs to be very mission-focused. But what that means is that the leaders have got to be able to, to make those regular risk assessments about here's where we're trying to go, what is our biggest impediment at this point, and then sort of putting the team to eliminate the biggest impediments, not to just hand out money and say, everybody do this and we'll just meet to talk, right? We're really trying to understand all these pieces, everybody's got to be on the team, lots of different things will go on, but it's, but your management's got to be able to um, modify things in the goal of getting to the mission. So it's important how it's set up, it's important that it is uh, above critical mass, mm -hmm. and I think though that, you know, it'll be a hub and spoke, because um, we have capabilities everywhere, and that's just the way it's done. But to some extent, you do need to have some co-location. So it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Thank you. Radicus Raju, um, thank you, by the way, for being one of BIO's newer dues-paying members. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> to have you. Um, 
there's been a, in, in the biopharmaceutical industry, there's been a lot of talk for a long time about pre-competitive um, working together. You know, the theory being that so you have all these different companies out there might be working on the same disease. Um, there's duplicated, du duplicative work being done because there's not one can't see into there's no transparency between company to company and and maybe we're missing the opportunity to find some great cure to a disease because this company has this piece and this company has this piece and if we all got together you could solve the problem. Mm -hmm. But it always does. Um, uh, it, there's always the confounding issue of well then how does you know how do we after we we pre-competitively get together how do we then zoom back to our companies and start competing you know and is who has the IP and all of that so thinking about this space um, I'd love to hear what you think about that because let's whether it was a whether it's a universal vaccine or whether it's a particular countermeasure for a, a bioterror event or treatment of some um, disease, um, how, does it, how can you imagine that working so that, so that uh, all of the private sector companies would in fact be incentivized to absolutely be forthcoming, to not hold anything back, waiting to get some little competitive edge um, when, the, when the time comes for them to go back and, and start competing? So I, you know, I think it's um, again one where if we had examples that we could look at to say, you know, if I'm looking at it from the company perspective, like, okay, it worked in this scenario, um, and um, these companies still made money and they still generated returns um, based on this model. I think that's one one element. So seeing a model that works is always the most powerful way. Um, I think the second thing I would say is that um, from my p previous company perspective, my own perspective, is that that's something we probably would have done on this side, but not necessarily for our main kind of lead candidate. Um, because I think what you want to do is you, you want to maximize uh, return on the, the part of your portfolio that you're the most confident about. And then I think- Investors would demand that. It, absolutely, yeah, and then I think the things that are sort of add-ons that aren't core to your business model, you're willing to be more creative, um, in, just in terms of the business model itself, and in terms of science, of course, you're creative across your portfolio. Um, so I think that is something that if it weren't the core piece of a company's mission, it would be more likely, um, because then you can also um, gain a, a network that ultimately maybe you would be doing uh, business development deals with some of those um, co-developers. There's there's sort of um, auxiliary benefits to working with other companies on one product, and then maybe eventually you start to get to know them and work on another product together. So um, that that's my immediate perspective, just because I think the IP is very tricky. Um, and then also, how do you uh, you know adequately divide up the returns? And I, you know, again, it would be it'd be very interesting, I think, to show off a model of that working uh, to drive that model. Because that's what I've been thinking about: whether there is a different model that could be used here, whether it would, and I, I don't know what it would look like, but where you could actually yeah. figure out, okay, so we co-own the, you know, we 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 collectively five companies develop uh, yeah. something and we get a patent, we co-own the patent and then we divide the the, the returns and, and so forth and how do you make sure everybody's pulling their weight and all. It's a very difficult problem. I think it's worth, it's one that's well worth sort of brainstorming. Absolutely, yeah. And, um, and you know, I think that the two examples I can think of where this kind of thing worked 
very well is when you have an extreme time constraint, like the NASA examples. Um, and then, you know, an infectious disease with HIV, there were, uh, industry was working hand in hand with the government. Um, whether those industry players were really sharing IP and, and really coming to the table with their own trade secrets, I'm not sure, but um, there, there would have to be a way where you have to, you tell companies up front that your IP is your IP, your profits are your profits, and I don't know how exactly you'd put those puzzle pieces Or you'd together. do a prize. You'd say there's going to be a, you know, a $500 million prize for this, and you guys are going to divide it up five ways. Yeah. Well, but with the democratization of technology, the profit models may be different. So I think these, some of these platform technologies might well be open source. Certainly, we uh, believe in software. There'd be more open source. So the company will build, on, could build, you know, on top of this shared uh, work that comes in from the shared pre-competitive. So if you were part of the group, that joined in that pre-competitive process. So an example in microelectronics is the Semitech uh, effort. Um, and of, what's interesting with that, of course, that had a long run and then kind of came apart. But there are a set of industries, including it, led by Intel, that are back uh, working together um, and doing some pre-competitive research in a slightly different group. So there are models. and But I also think that some of the things that now I don't have the industry experience, uh, but um, where not everything is going to be as private. Mm -hmm. uh, you mm -hmm. know, I, I think that open source software and platforms may well be more available. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> when I was in the Senate, I would occasionally say that I was a senator, but my wife was the commander in chief. Now I mention this because I got an email from my wife telling me she's outside in a car <laughs> waiting for us to go to the airport. <laughs> going away for the weekend, all of which is to explain with apologies that I have to leave before I yield to Ken. I, I want to uh, uh, say I think this has been a really productive, stimulating day. And we've really, we, we've sort of launched a new phase, I think, of our work. Uh, we put an idea out there, and the witnesses have really helped us feel, I think, that there's something to it, and you've helped us also begin to think, as the last this, this panel has, of, of how to actually give, uh, put flesh on the bones of this idea. So I thank uh, all of you very much. I thank my colleagues, uh, both official and ex-official, <laughs> and I thank Asha, uh, George, who really uh, put together a, a remarkable uh, group of witnesses uh, who care enough about this and uh, uh, respond enough to her to come. Yes? Ken does not have any questions. Ken does not have any questions for the exit yet? Unbelievable, but your wife just emailed me. <laughs> <laughs> no more? Yeah, we you all do? got it. You got <laughs> no questions? All right, that's all she wrote. Uh, I think with the power invested in me and with your I approval. I have one, one thing to say. Go ahead. That's all right, sir. Go ahead. Uh, okay with Please. your wife. Yes. I just wanted to point out that uh, this last panel today <laughs> is the first panel uh, that's all female that we've had since we started the panel. Here, so here. Really hey. <laughs> <clears throat> and I, I might add, we haven't last. had a better panel <laughs> since we started. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you all. Thank you all uh, for spending the day with us. Take care.
Me too. 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 Me too.